It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. He'll be joining us later today. Welcome to the mop up for October 18th. Could it possibly be October 18th, 2021? I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 60 degrees and cloudy. Coming up in about 55 minutes, Emmy nominated writer and comedian Dave Cyrus. Now, I'm going to talk about Colin Powell, the the uh, the general who passed away today, the uh, founder of modern day conservatism, Bill Buckley. I'm going to talk about Colin Powell and Bill Buckley, and I'm going to talk about Phil Spector, and I'm going to talk about the response to last Friday's show where I discussed Dave Chappelle. I'm not going to talk about Dave Chappelle's special. Relax. I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about the blowback that I received. I'm going to talk about how life gets down to just a few moments, determining whether you're a good person or a bad person. Life is just a few moments. The rest of those moments camouflage exactly who you are. I call it the Autobahn argument. The Autobahn argument. If you tell me the Nazis gave us the Autobahn in defense of the Nazis. You're not reading history properly. The Autobahn is inconsequential to the real history of the Nazis. The evil men do far outweigh their good. All it takes is a drop of poison in a gallon of water to kill somebody a drop of poison in a gallon of water. Your life is measured by the drops of poison and whether or not you've put those drops of poison into the water. Michael Richards, Seinfeld, 
He screamed the N-word at the top of his lungs during a set at the Laugh Factory nearly 15 years ago. That drop of poison is his legacy. It's not fair. It's just the way it is. Phil Spector's legacy. He killed Lana Clarkson. That drop of poison is his legacy. That one moment where he killed Lana Clarkson blocks out the wall of sound. Life comes down to a few moments. Your legacy, who you are, comes down to where you stood on the important issues of our time. It comes down to the crimes you committed or the crimes you didn't try to stop by remaining silent. Everything else, every other moment is noise. Colin Powell died today. He could have ended the war in Iraq before it even started by resigning as Secretary of State. He didn't say back in 2003, I will not be part of this travesty. And so that sin of omission, his not resigning, and his commission of a sin by going before the UN in the lead up to the illegal invasion of Iraq as Secretary of State, he either lied or failed to tell the truth about Saddam Hussein's capabilities to commit acts of terrorism against the United States and his weapons of mass destruction. Therefore, Colin Powell is a bad guy. He's bad for what he said and bad for what he didn't say. And that eclipses everything else he accomplished in life because you are judged by these moments, the really important moments. Words have consequences. And Colin Powell's words or lack of words resulted in massive death and slaughter in Iraq and Afghanistan. Words matter. If you run someone over and they die, that's accidental manslaughter. If you leave a paper trail on social media that reads, I'm going to find Joe, and when I find him, I'm going to run him over with my car, that's first-degree murder. Your words, what you chose to put on Facebook or say to your friends, have consequences. It's the difference between manslaughter and first-degree murder. What you say has consequences. What you don't say also has consequences. Evil occurs when people don't speak up. Now, I'm not going to talk about Chappelle's special. I talked about it for 90 minutes on the last show. Go back and listen to it. I'm getting a lot of blowback from it. Now, his special was evil. Not all of it, just a few drops of poison. He had just enough drops of poison to kill the entire special. Now, you cannot tell the police when they come knocking on your door, when your wife calls 911 or 911, when your wife calls 911 because you've just beaten your wife. You can't say to the cops as they're handcuffing you, 
You need to judge me by the entirety of the day, not just when I punched my wife. I also bought her dinner today and flowers and told her I loved her. And I punched her. You have to measure me against the entire backdrop of the entire day. No, no, you are judged by that one drop of poison. You punched her. That eclipses the flowers, the wine, the meal, the tenderness. Dave punched the transgender community. And that is a drop of poison that destroys that entire special. Now, the people at Netflix who are speaking out, pretty amazing. It's a new day. The employees at Netflix are speaking out, and on October 20th, they're walking out. At least some of them are. That is a new day and a new way to get fired. We're taking part in the great resignation where 4.1 million people quit their jobs in August. 4.1 million people quit their jobs. I can't think of a better way to get fired than leaking the financials on Dave Chappelle's special, which a transgender, actually it wasn't a transgender, it was a pregnant and black Netflix employee who leaked the documents and she got fired. That's a moment upon which you are measured, that bravery measures measures you as a person. Uh, if Dave Chappelle made the comments he made about transgender people in the Netflix offices as an employee, as opposed to being on stage for Netflix, he would be fired immediately. Go back and watch the special. A gratuitous comment about transgender people, about gender being a fact. Trust me, if he said that in front of other people at the Netflix offices, if he said gender is a fact, that he would be fired with good cause. Not only that, the, the superiors in the room who didn't admonish him for saying that would also be either fired, depending on how much they're getting paid. There's, you know, if you want, if somebody's being overpaid and everybody at Netflix is overpaid because anybody can do what anybody does at Netflix. So there's always a, a reason to get rid of these people. They're all extraneous. So the person who remained silent, but was Dave's uh, superior, he would either get fired or get called into human, or she would get fired or get called into human resources. Uh, why didn't you speak out when he was trashing transgender people in that meeting? Uh, you know, we're going to suspend you. There would be consequences in the back office of Netflix for what Dave Chappelle said in the front office of Netflix. So you might not like what I'm telling you, but that's a fact. I'm just telling you the same way people didn't like uh, the 64 and 65 civil rights legislation. It's the law. And my advice to you, if you're if you have a job and you don't want to get fired, uh, watch what you say. Watch what you say. Uh, the world has changed. Work is no longer what it used to be. And 
your speech is monitored at work, whether you like it or not, and it will be enforced. And older Americans, especially older white Americans who are unable to evolve, they turn to the Republican Party. They refuse to watch what they say. They prefer to be lazy in their thinking, and they run into the waiting arms of the Republican Party. But the law is the law. You have to watch what you say. You have to watch what you say in some states before you punch somebody. If you punch somebody, it's different if you say something anti-Mexican or anti-Black or anti-LGBTQ before you punch them. You have to watch what you say. Whether you like it or not, there are consequences for, for what you say. And you either evolve, you think harder, or you die. You end up not being, nobody will hire you, and you become a Republican, and you have free time to storm the Capitol on January 6th because nobody wants to hire you. That's my that's advice I would give to children. Watch what you say if you want to be a productive member of this community because words have consequences. Uh, if you say to your coworker, nice tits, especially to me, I'm wearing a T-shirt. If somebody said nice tits to me, I would be uh, offended. You'd be making fun of my gynecomastia. It's a, it's a male condition where men grow breasts. I don't want, I want to be able to wear a T-shirt when I go to work with my gynecomastia and not have anybody say nice tits. When you say nice tits to a, a female coworker, you're engaging in the cancel culture. Nang, saying nice tits to a coworker is cancel culture. 40% of female doctors quit being doctors after six years. Google it. 40% of female doctors quit being doctors after six years. Google it. You know why they quit? Because male doctors and patients are pigs and they get away with saying things like nice tits to a doctor and nice tits also leads to income disparity. So female doctors are quitting. Nearly half, 40% of female doctors quit after six years because of what people say. Saying gender is a fact. You are engaging in cancel culture. You are canceling the entire transgender community. You're saying that your struggle is not legitimate. The same way saying nice tits to a doctor is canceling that doctor. You're reducing a female doctor down to a pair of tits. And maybe you don't think that's offensive Ask the doctor if she thinks it's offensive. You have no right to tell a member of a protected class whether or not they can be offended. It, I had a friend who I don't talk to anymore who got fired from a big job because he insisted that a joke he was telling was okay. And he kept being told, no, 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 you don't understand. This is offensive. And it was in a work situation. And he tried to explain to this member of a protected class why this joke was OK. And the more he explained why this person shouldn't 
be offended by this offensive joke, the bigger the hole he dug. And he was fired. And he can't sue because that's the law. You cannot tell a transgender person not to be offended by something you're, you're saying at work. That's the law. Now, you may not like that, but my advice to you is shut the F up. Don't tell dirty jokes or offensive jokes at work. And if somebody complains, you immediately say, I'm sorry. You don't mansplain why nice tits isn't offensive. This is not this is not to be debated. This is this is the law. So if you want to survive in today's corporate climate or any job, shut your effing mouth. Watch what you say. So uh, that's not cancel culture because words hurt. Words have consequences and words are the precursor to persecution and violence. Watch what you say. I got a lot of responses, surprisingly positive to my 90 minutes. I can't believe I did 90 minutes on Chappelle's special. It was actually longer than his special. Uh, Now, some of the criticism, again, I'm not going to talk about the special. I'm going to talk about the blowback I received. And I'm also going to talk about other things. But some of the criticism was, why are you spending that much time on Chappelle? Uh, And the answer is because he spends so much time on transgender people. And so much time is being spent right now making this about cancel culture rather than keeping transgender people safe. I don't want to argue cancel culture. I want to talk about transgender people and are they safe? That's all I care about. I couldn't give a shit if you're transgender. I just care whether or not you're safe and you're able to love and be the way you choose or were born to love and be. There are 360 million Americans in this country. I couldn't give a shit about any of them including transgender people, including Jews, Arabs, Muslims. I want to be left alone. All I ask is you leave me alone. Let's just leave each other alone. I'm not interested in you. None of you. I'm not interested in anything about your life, your poker game, the the football game, the new couch that you were farting in while you were watching the football game, your car, your children's, especially your children. I don't give a shit about your children. All I care is, first and foremost, that you're safe, that you have housing, that you have food, that you are physically, emotionally safe, that you have health care, that you have free education, and that you're able to love whichever way you choose or whichever way you were born to love so long as it's consensual and you're both adults. Both or all 10 of you are adults. I don't care what the number is. Just leave me out of it. Keep it down. Don't make any noise. I don't want to hear you having sex. I don't want to hear your music blasting and I don't want to smell whatever spices you put in your cooking. I don't want to smell it in the hallway, in the elevator or on your breath. Just get out of my way. I have places to get to walk faster. And most importantly, don't be an asshole. Keep your mouth shut. When I'm at Starbucks, watch what you say. I'm not interested in how the date went. I don't want to overhear how the date went. So when I look at this population of 360 million Americans, that is all I care about. 
I don't care if you're black, a transgender American, gay, Jewish, Mexican, old, young, leave me alone and I will leave you alone. That's the one right I cherish here in America. It's the freedom to be left the F alone. And Dave Chappelle needs to leave transgender people alone. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of spittle spat on his special because he is a cultural touchstone. And he decided to wade into a deep tidal pool of race, gender, sexuality, freedom of speech, power, money, and of course, comedy. And one of the things I discovered over the weekend while engaging with my critics, uh, why would you waste your time writing to me, but I'll engage with you. Americans love criticizing, but they are sorely lacking critical thinking. I am positively stunned by how shallow the argument against the cancel culture is. Life comes down to moments. There are just a few moments, just a few sentences uttered that reveal who you are and whether or not you're a good or a bad person. People are not complicated. Your entire life gets down to one or two moments. And if those one or two moments are evil, everything after that is a distraction from those two moments. I believe in redemption, but you must make amends for those one or two moments that define who you are. So I object to a few moments in Dave Chappelle's special, specifically when he stated gender is a fact. I. I do not condone the erasing of transgender people. I also objected to his saying that the LGBTQ community has been way more successful in terms of civil rights than the African-American movement. Somebody wrote to me saying transgender people are not being killed by the police the same way African-Americans are. What a horrible thing to introduce to a conversation especially since that's wrong. But it's not even supposed to be discussed. But uh, so somebody uh, said to me, wrote to me, uh, tell me how transgender people are treated as badly as African-Americans are. I sent the person stats on that one. And of course, radio silence. Google the way the police rape and kill the transgender community. But that shouldn't even be brought into this discussion because I categorically object to the complete and utter waste of time spent discussing this special. So if you wanna know what, I already got there, I already did it, listen to my last podcast. My time is spent now addressing the people who are coming to his defense with this faux cancel culture argument. You call it cancel culture. I call it a boycott. You have a problem with boycotts? Nobody would answer me on that. I believe in boycotts. You might want to call it cancel culture, but it's a boycott and they've been around for centuries. I support boycotts. In fact, Dave in his special mentions the Montgomery bus 
boycott, a one-year boycott where African-Americans refused to ride the buses of Montgomery, Alabama until blacks were no longer forced to sit at the back of the bus. This was the work of Dr. King and more importantly, Rosa Parks. For a year in Montgomery, Alabama, they walked. They boycotted the buses. For a year, they canceled the public transport system of Montgomery, Alabama. From December of 1955 to December of 1956, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, canceled the Montgomery buses. And it worked. They canceled, they boycotted, and the rich and powerful in Montgomery, Alabama, who only care about power and money, and they were racists, money was more important than their racism. Boycotts, the cancel culture works, whether you like it or not. But it's interesting that conservatives choose to call it the cancel culture instead of boycotts, because who's against a boycott? We're all for boycotts. People have every right to boycott Netflix if they don't approve of hate speech. People have every white right or white to quit their job or walk out, which they're going to do on the 20th over at Netflix. You don't ask for change. You take change. And that includes boycotts. And that includes canceling people. Now, I'm not calling for Dave to be canceled. I'm calling for a conversation. I'm not saying Netflix should take the special off because it's resulted in, a, in an important conversation. I haven't canceled Netflix. I'm thinking about it. I'm watching their damage control. They're having a corporate conversation with their consumers right now. Ted Sarandos is up against the ropes right now. Let's see what he does, because this isn't over. This isn't over. Let's see. It looks like the transgender community who work at Netflix have some agency to speak up. They fired uh, a lot of the transgender employees for crashing a meeting, but they Netflix seems to be listening to their transgender workers and their transgender community. They fear a boycott. Let's see what happens. I'm not calling for a boycott of Netflix. I'm not calling for a boycott of uh, Dave Chappelle. He wants to have a conversation. Netflix wants to have a conversation. That's what comedy is. We're having the conversation. So let's see how many Netflix employees walk out on the 20th and how many after they walk out are allowed back in. Let's see how Ted Sarandos, the guy who runs Netflix, let's see how he engages in this ongoing conversation. Let's see. That black and pregnant organizer of the employee walkout scheduled for October 20th over at Netflix, uh, she was fired for leaking financial documents. Let's see if she gets her job back. Those financial documents reveal that uh, Netflix spent about $25 million on Chappelle's special, and it, it didn't really make the kind of money they were expecting. So let's see, because money is speech, money's important. Let's see how Netflix responds 
to the backlash. I believe in freedom of speech I give to the ACLU. I believe Dave Chappelle should be allowed to continue to work. And I believe people have every right to boycott him if they're offended by him. That's also freedom of speech. I give to the ACLU. I believe Nazis should march in Charlottesville. I also believe those Nazis should be outed. If you have the freedom to march in Charlottesville, screaming black people and Jews will not replace us while you carry your uh, tiki torques shamelessly, not wearing your hood, then I have every right to take your picture, post it on Twitter, Facebook, and say, do not hire this person. This person is a Nazi. Do not hire them. I have every right, if they have every right to march in my neighborhood, I have every right to take their picture and post it all over social media and say, this person is a Nazi. And that's the way it works here in America. It's not the cancel culture, it's freedom of speech. That's my freedom of speech to cancel you for your speech. And you can cancel me for my speech. You want to cancel me for being Jewish, but I can't cancel you for your, your, your speech? It doesn't work that way. It's the free market of ideas. In a democracy, the majority wins. We try to protect the minority voters. I'm not talking about people who are minorities. We, we try to protect people with a minority viewpoint from the majority, but the majority wins. If your speech is more popular than mine, then chances are you're going to win. So is Dave Chappelle's speech about transgender people more popular than mine? I'd like to know. If you're going to say gender is a fact and cancel transgender people, I want to know whose speech is more popular, Dave Chappelle's or mine or the transgender people's uh, transgender Americans speech. That's what freedom of speech is. Let's find out whose speech is more popular. You where I come from, you don't get away with erasing an entire protected class of people in your comedy. Otherwise, it creates a cultural norm that fosters a perception that Americans are against transgender people adopting children, using our bathrooms, playing in the, the proper league in sports. If what you say about transgender people goes unchallenged, it creates a norm that persecutes transgender people. You have the right to say whatever you want about transgender people. Transgender people have every right to defend themselves, especially if it's peaceful. That's the beauty of democracy and, a, and free speech. It's not canceling speech, it's correcting speech. Again, I am not talking about Chappelle. I am addressing the people who have come to his defense, but not willing to say they're against transgender people. They automatically fall back on the bogus counterfeit position of cancel culture and freedom of speech. It's what bigotry hides behind, cancel culture. The people I've spoken to are too chicken shit to say they agree with Chappelle. They only want to fight 
for his right to say that. And that is complete and utter horseshit because this isn't a conversation about freedom of speech. It's a conversation about my freedom of speech to correct Dave Chappelle's speech. And they don't want to go on record because they're chicken shit. Most of them are are comics and they don't want to go up against Chappelle, his management, Netflix, the comedy club bookers, the two chicken shit to challenge Dave Chappelle for what he says. Anybody who bemoans cancel culture and makes it about freedom of speech, but doesn't address the issues of transgender Americans, uh, you're hiding behind a, a bogus argument of freedom of speech. It's a shop-worn rhetorical camouflage, and I'm not allowing it. I'm not allowing it, and I'm being very vicious. If you want to come after me, I need to know whether or not you agree that gender is a fact. Nobody's telling you what you can or can't say. I'm asking you what you're trying to say. And what you're really trying to say is that you agree that gender is a fact. You don't give a shit about the cancel culture. So if you want to shit on blacks, migrants, transgender people, we're going to talk back. If you're going to erase transgender people by saying gender is a fact, then expect people to erase you, to try to erase you. If you're going to erase me or if you're going to erase my friend or my fellow American, I'm going to erase you. That's the free marketplace of ideas. I'm not the government. I'm just a citizen. Life is filled with consequences, my friends. Words have consequences. And it's not just what you say, it's what you don't say. It's when you keep your mouth shut. By not speaking up when you should, you're a bad person. By hiding behind cancel culture and not saying Dave Chappelle is wrong for trying to erase transgender people, you're a bad person because this isn't about cancel culture. This is about making sure that transgender people are safe. And you're on the wrong side of history. By not saying anything, you're on the wrong side of history. Your silence allows transgender people to be persecuted, to be erased, to be canceled. When you make bigotry, only about free speech and cancel culture, you're a bigot. It's a cheap trick. It's an easy way out to avoid having to speak out or reveal bigotry. When you say it's about cancel culture, you, sub, the subtext is I'm a bigot because it isn't about cancel culture. There's no such thing as cancel culture. It's a dog whistle designed to allow bigots to say horrible things with no consequences. Words have consequences. Boycotts. Boycotts. If you're against cancel culture, that means you're against boycotts. Now, certainly nobody would say that uh, the, the Montgomery bus the transit system. Why are you trying to cancel the Montgomery transit system? Because just because they won't allow black people to sit in the front of the bus. I mean, I'm all for uh, 
or maybe I'm not all for, but but uh, certainly, the, you know, why would you want to cancel the bus company? That's what a boycott is. And that's what canceling is. Uh, boycotts are democracy in action, whether you like it or not. Money, our Supreme Court insists, is speech. So and it is speech as it becomes increasingly difficult for people of color to vote and poor people to vote. These days, the best way to make your voice heard is by being careful how you spend your money, because it looks like we're not going to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. So you better be careful how you spend your money, because boycotts work. When Georgia passed some of our country's most draconian voter fraud laws earlier this year, Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game out of Atlanta. They canceled Major League Baseball. Is anybody against that? That's how the free market of ideas work. I do not want to support a state that makes it hard, next to impossible, for people of color to vote. And boycotts have more power than your vote because they're not moving yet on the John Lewis Voter Act. The state of California doesn't do business with Texas because of Texas's draconian anti-abortion laws. California has added, the state of California, Blue California added Florida and four other states to its official travel ban when the attorney general for California, Rob Bonta, said that these states Florida, Kentucky have passed anti-LGBTQ laws directly targeting transgender youth. Are you for that? I'm for that. I think that's a great idea. That's cancel culture. It's boycotting. The state of California doesn't approve of Texas. So if you work for the state of California, we're not paying for any of state employees trips to to Texas. We're not putting money in their pockets. I boycott Amazon. I boycott Walmart. I refuse to give my money to corporations who, not that, who are evil. That is a form of protest. That is a boycott. That is cancel culture. When you call it cult cancel culture, you are depriving me of my First Amendment right to protest. You are canceling me. I subscribe to the idea that if no people are free from discrimination, then I am not free from discrimination. If transgender people are not free from discrimination, I am not free from discrimination. I'm a Jew. Don't mean to shock you. And despite many of the stereotypes about Jews controlling the world, I am not free from discrimination. Now, maybe my I haven't experienced the same discrimination as Dave Chappelle by any measure, but I can assure you that as a Jew, I am not free from discrimination. There are parts of this country where I cannot travel. Uh, there is discrimination, whether or not you want to believe that or not. Jews are discriminated against, even though they're thriving in other parts of the economy. Black people are discriminated against, even though they're thriving in our economy. 
Jews are discriminated. And it's that discrimination that forced John Leibowitz to change his name to John Stewart. Now, I don't measure my oppression against the oppression of others because I subscribe to the idea that if one man or woman or whatever is being persecuted, I am being persecuted. It's what Dr. King was preaching before they killed him. And it was what Malcolm X was preaching before they killed him, that none of us are free until all of us are free. I am not free until Dave Chappelle's beautiful children can walk the streets of New York without getting harassed by New York City pigs, police officers. I am not free until the pigs of New York stop harassing Dave Chappelle's beautiful children. I am not safe until the Palestinians are safe, and Israel can't be safe until the Palestinians are safe. Dave Chappelle's children, his beautiful children, are not safe until transgender children are safe. Discussing who has had it worst and which movement is moving faster does not make us safe. Comparing the plight of the LGBTQ with the plight of African-Americans is divisive. And it's not what Dr. King or Malcolm X wanted, and it's why they killed them. That's why Dr. King and Malcolm X were killed, because they didn't compare their plight to those of poor white people. They stopped doing that. So when you say something like it was easier for Caitlyn Jenner to change her name than for Muhammad Ali to change his it was easier for Caitlyn Jenner to change her sex than it was for Cassius Muhammad Ali to change his name. I'm not doing that joke any justice because it doesn't deserve any justice. Uh, that's that's a rhetorical device, and it it sounds more clever and profound than it actually is. You're comparing Caitlyn Jenner to Muhammad Ali. Why? It's what the rich and the powerful want. They want divisiveness. Now, uh, I want to show you a response I got to my show because it's representative of pretty much every criticism I received. It's criticism without critical thinking, and it reveals everything you need to know about the people who rail against the cancel culture. It's shocking. And this is from someone who is educated. Okay, so I'm going to show you this. Uh, I hope you can see it. And let's read along, shall we? Here we go. This is from somebody who is uh, defending Dave Chappelle, hiding behind freedom of speech, but really belying his bigotry. This is what he writes to me. Comparing the plight of the LGBTQ with the plight of Africa. Oh, no, that's not what he read. That, that's uh, where is it? Oh, why do gays and trans? First of all, it's trans people or transgender Americans. Trans is offensive. Why do gays and trans? S.I.C. have some special immunity to honest, acerbic, satiric treatment that was not at all based on anything but the truth that was hilarious. Uh, based on the truth and hilarious. Well, uh, first, 
non-queers making fun of queers is highly problematic due to the power imbalance, okay? That's the first thing. You want to call it punching down? People find that tiresome. Pay attention to the power imbalance. Dave Chappelle is more powerful than transgender Americans. Uh, Satiric treatment. That wasn't satire. He was saying exactly what he meant. There was no satire. He writes uh, it... uh, Okay, why does 3%, he writes, of the population get to dictate the other 97% and shame it over what it finds funny? Why does 3% of the population get to dictate to the other 97% over what it finds funny? Uh, This is exactly, that statement is exactly why you need to speak up. Where do you get these stats from, Mr. 3% of the population is dictating what the other 97%. That's a perception that public opinion slants this way. You've decided, with no citations, that 3% of the population is dictating what what 97% of Americans think is funny. I'd like some proof of that. So you have to speak up. This is exactly why you need to speak up, because it perpetuates the illusion that it's open season on the transgender community. By not speaking up against Dave Chappelle, it creates the false illusion that the American people side with transgender abuse. And they don't. This is a conversation. That's what the First Amendment is laughter is speech. What you laugh at is speech. And I'm allowed to argue with your laugh by, you know, I can, if I'm on stage, I'll argue with your laugh. If I'm in the audience, depending on how I'm feeling, I have every right to hiss and boo and speak out. It's not a one-sided conversation. That's what stand-up comedy timing is listening to the audience. So if they're booing and hissing and you're not you, you and you're not responding, you have no timing. And then he goes on to write, and this is the best part. This is where he just reveals his hand. As someone with a master's in clinical psychology and mental health experience, good God help me. This is this person has a master's in clinical psychology. Dear God, help America from to save us. Who will save me from this, this disposable mind? He says, I can tell you that that kind of narcissism and demographic chauvinism is much more rampant in the LGBTQ community than others. And the main thing responsible for their disproportionate suicide and homeless rate So his diagnosis, I love this. Citations, please. I love this because this guy has the courage not to hide behind cancel culture. He has gone full hood. He's put on the hood and he's burning the cross. And he's saying that the suicide rates that are the transgender suicide rates are the highest among the uh, the transgender community. He's saying it's because of uh 
the chauvinism, the demographic chauvinism in the uh, LGBTQ transgender uh, community. He goes on to write, fortunately, the world, as effed as it has rendered itself, still doesn't work that way. Here we go. Here we go. LGBTQ are the most apathetic and callous regarding all other more needy and unattended and discriminated demographics. I never talked to a gay, <laughs> to a gay, as a clinical, he has a master's in psychology and he refers to them as a gay who gave a shit about world hunger, global warming, universal healthcare, homelessness, or war or sexual trafficking. Isn't that, I mean, it's, it would be funny, but it's what gets people killed. It's what gets transgender people erased and beaten up. He calls the LGBTQ the most apathetic and callous regarding others, that they don't give a shit about world hunger, global warming, universal health care, homelessness, war, or sexual trafficking. And I believe that he has a master's in clinical psychology. And this is the most honest criticism I received from last week's show. I salute, I wrote back and I said, God bless you. God bless you for, for saying that. And I mean that because he said what everybody who's defending Dave Chappelle isn't willing to say out loud. He is saying out loud what Dave Chappelle didn't have the, the balls to say out loud, that the LGBTQ community is narcissistic. They only care about themselves and they don't care about black people. This pretty much was the message. And then he calls for mutual empathy. You know, it's like Ellen saying at the end of her show, be nice to everyone. Meanwhile, she's a union scab, a union busting scab who shits on her workers. But people who lack critical thinking like Dave Chappelle's fans who come to his defense don't realize that when he says, you know, let's have mutual empathy, blacks and LGBTQ need to have mutual empathy. That's like Ellen saying, be nice after she just fired one of her assistants for giving her a red gummy bear instead of a blue one. If you don't have critical thinking, you can't wade through the bullshit and see the drops of poison. It's Autobahn thinking. It's seeing the Autobahn instead of the Holocaust. Like I mentioned earlier, General Colin Powell passed away from COVID. He was 84. Powell had been vaccinated, but succumbed to a breakthrough case. It was intensified by multiple myeloma. myeloma. Now, Powell will be lionized by the never Trumpers and the media. But the only thing he should ever be remembered for is his speech before the United Nations when, as an American Secretary of State, he made the case for America's illegal invasion of Iraq in 2003. After serving as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Clinton administration, Powell became the single most popular as well as most trusted person in America which means by the time he became Secretary of State 
and the George W. Bush administration, he had the political capital to stop the march to war by resigning in protest. But instead, he served as a loyal foot soldier for two draft dodgers, Dick Cheney and George Bush, and he used his stature to stand on the world stage and gin up a phony case for an even phonier war. In a 72-minute speech, about, you know, about as long as my rant against Chappelle and Chappelle's special. Interesting. In a 72-minute speech, one month before the illegal invasion of Iraq, Colin Powell said there was a link between al-Qaeda and Iraq. He knew that was a lie. He said Iraq was in possession of weapons of mass destruction and that American soldiers, when they invade, were in danger of Saddam Hussein using poison gas on them. That was a lie. And he said that the use of poison gas would violate the Geneva Conventions. You know what also violates the Geneva Conventions? Preventive war. Preventive war is against international law. A preventive war, which is what our invasion of Iraq was, a preventive war involves a military invasion to stop another country from building up enough weapons that it will be perceived as too powerful. So you have to get them before they get you. It's against international law. You can't invade a country just because you think they're getting too strong. And Powell never apologized for spreading lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. In the three years following the invasion of Iraq, Lancet, the British medical journal, put the number of Iraqis killed from the war at more than 600,000. 600,000 dead Iraqi civilians in three years. And a recent poll shows that a vast majority of Americans consider the invasion of Iraq a mistake. Why? Because people spoke up and tried to cancel Colin Powell and George Bush and Dick Cheney. If nobody spoke up and said, Dick Cheney can't teach at this university. If we didn't try to cancel cancel George W. Bush, most Americans would not know that the, the war in Iraq was illegal and wrong. Two years after the invasion of, Amer of, of Iraq, most Americans knew it was wrong. Why? Because we spoke up. We canceled. We canceled the Bush administration, not successfully, but we spoke up. Uh, Powell gave an interview in which he admitted his speech at the UN where he sold the war, sold the war. He admitted in an interview about two or three years after the invasion that it was uh, painful for him that they didn't find weapons of ma mass destruction. And he said, and this is, gets back to these drops of poison that, that your life gets down to a few drops of poison in a gallon of water. He said it will be a permanent blot on his record. Hey, I'm going to be done in five minutes. I, I know we have people waiting. I'm just going to wrap this up in five minutes. Uh, he, he, he describes his speech before the UN selling the illegal invasion of Iraq to a blot on his record. Your record. So, so we're expected to look at the totality of Colin Powell's life and say, yes, 
He beat his wife and children, but he was a good provider. That's how we're supposed to measure a man's life? No. That moment at the UN, that's it. No Autobahn. We don't look at the Autobahn. We look at the Holocaust. I don't care that, uh, Obama, uh, that Colin Powell endorsed Obama in 2008. I care about that speech at the, U at the UN. Colin Powell's endorsement of Obama, that's the Autobahn. Who gives a shit? I don't buy into the idea that Colin Powell was a, a mixed bag. That's garbage. I hold the highly ambitious accountable for their actions and their decisions. I offer no indulgences to the rich and the powerful, and that includes Colin Powell. I subscribe to Colin Powell's Pottery Barn Directive. Remember that? You break it, you own it. That was Powell's private warning to George Bush about invading Iraq. You break it, you own it. Well, America broke Iraq. We didn't own it. Nobody owned it. We just packed up and left. It's still a clusterfuck. Colin Powell owns spreading false intelligence about Saddam Hussein's capability to use weapons of mass destruction. You broke Iraq, Colin Powell. You have to own it. And that eclipses everything. Before you delivered that speech at the UN, you spent days poring over the intelligence. You grilled the CIA. There was intelligence. The State Department has intelligence. The Defense Department has intelligence. And the, and the CIA has intelligence. You were the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff before that. You grilled the CIA on their intelligence. And you couldn't suss out fraud if you, you either lied or th this is gross malfeasance. Before delivering that speech, you were either lying or, were, or irresponsible. You should have known there were no weapons of mass destruction. You should have known that Iraq and Al-Qaeda were not linked. You should have known to give the weapons inspectors more time. You are responsible just as much as Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Bush. You are responsible for Iraq because you had the political capital to stop that war by resigning. That's your record. And everything else you accomplish in life means nothing to me. Robert E. Lee fought on the side of the Confederacy. That's it. I don't care that he was a good father. Robert E. Lee led the Confederacy. Charles Manson wrote a song, it's quite beautiful, entitled Never Learn Not to Love. A beautiful song, which was recorded by the Beach Boys in 1968. I recommend that you listen to it. It's beautiful. Uh, somehow, that's not part of, if you'll pardon the pun, Manson's record. He wrote a beautiful song. We only remember the Tate LaBianca murders for some reason. We as a people must stop being so forgiving of the ambitious and the rich and powerful because they are not forgiving of us. Colin Powell 
didn't forgive the 600,000 Iraqis who died because of his lie. Why are we so forgiving of Colin Powell? Stop measuring the totality of someone and focus on those drops of poison. It's their drops of poison that kill people. I don't care that Colin Powell endorsed Obama. I don't care that Colin Powell was a never Trumper. He had one important moment in history in 2003 to stop the war in Iraq and he shat the bed because he was a coward. There's a need, there's a need to, to, to have a price that one pays for becoming rich and powerful which General Colin Powell became. He had sharp elbows and he was ambitious and you are measured at a completely different level for that. You have to be held to the highest standards if you're rich and powerful and your negatives are amplified because they have consequences. Your negatives will always outweigh the positive. I don't care how many... Beautiful drawings George W. Bush does of wounded soldiers. He's a criminal. He is a criminal. He broke international law. I don't care that he handed Michelle a breath mint at John McCain's funeral. George W. Bush is a criminal. Dick Cheney is a criminal. Donald Rumsfeld is a criminal. We need a cultural shift especially towards the rich and the powerful. If someone is rich, someone is in a position of power, we owe it to ourselves and our country automatically to never give them the benefit of the doubt. We owe it to ourselves in this country to be suspicious of anybody who is rich and powerful. Ask yourself how they got to be rich and powerful. What crime did they commit? Whose back did they stab and then step over? You owe it to yourselves as Americans to hold anybody who's a multimillionaire as suspect. When you see a general wrapped like a Christmas tree in his bogus medals, you should automatically assume the worst about that general. And the same goes for hit movies and hit television shows, hit songs, hit books, hit comedy specials. You need to apply a razor sharp critical eye to anything that has succeeded in capturing the masses. Ask yourself, why are people buying this? Why are they buying the invasion of Iraq? Why are they buying this TV show, this movie, this book. You should be suspicious of anything that has mass acceptance. Nine out of 10 times, someone who succeeds does so because they figured out how to succeed, which means they're calculated, they're playing us. While the rest of us were just trying to do a good job, they, they were not the team players. This person was calculating, trying to figure out how to succeed. Nine out of 10 times, they're successful only because while the rest of you were doing your job, your boss was busy calculating 
with his sharp elbows how to rise above you. It's okay. We, we have successful people. They're not all bad. Their kids are. I believe their children should be taken away from them because I think it's child abuse to be raised by a billionaire. Whether or not a successful person is bad, there are successful people who are not. Their success must come with a price. And that price is we are watching you. And you will be measured by the pivotal moments in your career. That's the price you pay for being rich and successful because your opinions, your words have consequences. People die because of what the rich and powerful say. Or they don't say 600,000 Iraqis are dead right now, probably a million, because of what Colin Powell didn't say. Colin Powell didn't say, I quit. So he has to be held accountable for that. Colin Powell said he wanted his speech before the UN, and he's never apologized for it, by the way. Lawrence Wilkerson, his chief of staff, has apologized for Colin Powell's speech. Lawrence Wilkerson hasn't. Uh, Lawrence Wilkerson has. Colin Powell hasn't. Colin Powell asks that his career, his life, be measured against the entire record. That's not how it works, Colin. Your entire record are the little steps of experience leading up to that big moment at the UN. You are remembered and judged on how all those little moments, that the, all, the, your entire record led to your career being galvanized at the UN, that one speech. Your life gets down to that one moment, the speech at the UN. Nothing else was important. Bill Buckley, I got to wrap it up. Is Chappelle, uh, Chappelle, is Cyrus here? I don't have enough time. I was going to go off on Bill Buckley. Cyrus, are you here? Yes. Sorry for keeping you waiting. How are you? I'm good. I've actually got a bit of a scoop for you today. I have a story I bet you haven't talked about. Maybe you have, but I have. I actually did some journalism and I learned something about a story. You're, you're breaking up. It's not a big story. But my... hmm? You're breaking What's up. That? Oh, can you hear me? You hear me all right? Hi. Dave Cyrus joins us. Uh, say testing one, two, three, one, two, three. What are you doing? C c count to three. Testing one, two, three, one, two, three. Okay. Dave Cyrus, Emmy nominated comedy writer and uh, King of Staten Island. Countless movies I can't keep track of. Just, just the one. Just the one. But you're, you're, what, 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 aren't you on like some sitcom? What are you? Well, I mean, I've worked on other stuff. I only have one movie I've made. And I am not an Emmy winner. I work for a show that won an Emmy. But I only win an Emmy when they win a writing Emmy. You were nominated for an Emmy. I was, well, um, yes, yes. I was nominated for an Emmy for Best Writing for SNL. But we always lose that to John Oliver. Right. Right. So you'll be happy to know I have no Emmy statues. That makes me very happy. Your, your failure yeah. is my success. That's at the of course, you, but you have Emmys. Yeah, but a long time ago. Do they, do, are they tarnished? Yes. Did all the, uh, the paint come off? I, I think they're with my mother. 
Mm-hmm. So I think she's when I don't if I don't call her, I think she, you know, rips the head off one of the Emmys. So they don't anyway. Uh, and it was part of a writing team. You know, you get you luck into these things. If you know you get hired for a show and it wins an Emmy and and uh, it, anyway. So what is the information you have? So I read a story earlier today uh, about something called the Sentner Academy in Miami, Florida. Are you familiar with this? No. The Sentner Academy is owned by a, a philanthropist, quote unquote, named David Sentner. And it is a private school that costs upwards of $30,000 for children. You know, not like a college, a $30,000 a year private school. So you, I know what you think about those people. I know that you don't have a lot of affinity for people who send their kids to these super elite private schools. But I think you'll like this particular case because people who spent $30,000 to send their children to the Sentner Sentner Academy, also known as the Brain School, that's what the, that's their, their under, like their under their subtitle is on their their awnings, the Brain School, recently announced that vaccinated students are not allowed to attend classes. But unvaccinated are. Yes. Several months ago, they were in the news because they told all their teachers, please do not get vaccinated or you will not be allowed to teach. Because David Sentner, who is a donor to multiple Republicans, including Trump, and has donated a lot of money to some of those anti-vaccination videos that Robert F. Kennedy was part of. Uh, he's been telling people and has been telling his staff and his belief is that only vaccinated people can spread the virus, uh, apparently, allegedly. I'm going to say allegedly a lot because I don't want to get sued, but right. trust me, I'm not making any Believe me, no, Nobody's listening to this show. Yeah, okay, so... So David sent. So they said they recently. So first in in April they said that no teachers would be allowed, and now they moved the policy to students, where they're saying we don't want anyone to get vaccinated because we believe that vaccinations are dangerous for the people who are who are unvaccinated. They said they believe that vaccinated people spread the virus intensely after their vaccination, which of course is not true. There's no, there's been no evidence of that. It would be pretty obvious by now after the hundreds of millions of people who have been vaccinated, if every time you got a vaccine, you infected people around you. Right. So, but here's where things get really fun. When asked for evidence of this occurring, uh, a spokesman, I believe the Sentner himself, a spokesman from the school said that three members of our staff, three teachers came into physical contact with a recently vaccinated person and it had a negative impact on all three of those women's menstrual cycles. So what, is this a scoop? No, no, it's not. Are we getting to the uh, scoop? I'll get to that. Yes, I wanted to lay the frown. I love so that's this. Obviously, that's obviously a fun thing. He's yes. saying that being in, the, in a room with a vaccinated person can ruin a woman's period. But they're, okay? they're, they're our sink sisters. Yes. Uh, right. But I mean, do you, do you remember when we were traveling together? Yes, we did uh, sync up. Yes, we did. I found I, I often had a I'm not going to go there. That you, we, we no, no, I was going to I was going to be real dark room. I was going to say, I no, nope, not going to do it. OK. All right. Fine. So here's what I found out with my journalism. 
This now, guy, if I were imagine. a bad person, I would. No, I'm not going <laughs> to. Sorry. Now, the thing is, what I, I learned something about the Sentner guy that I didn't. That isn't really online, so that's why I have to say allegedly. But hear me out. Okay. Apparently, this guy does a lot of ayahuasca retreats, mm-hmm. like where they go with different people and they trip balls as like a you know one of these like self help things, and then. As part of the tripping, at the end of it, you're then sort of pitched a multi-level marketing Herbalife type mm-hmm. pitch about how they can fix your life. And it basically sounded exactly like Nexium with mushrooms. Uh-huh. When I heard this, this alleged story about the fact that this guy, who this anti-vax guy, does a lot of hallucinogenic drugs. And I just thought that was very funny. And that it's basically, there's no, there's, it, there's nothing sexual about it. I've, I've heard nothing about it being anything sexual, but that it is a, basically if, if Nexium didn't do the stuff they went to jail for, it sounded a lot like that to me. Just the idea that like, but it's, a, but with acid, with, but with like ayahuasca where they get you super tripping. And then when you're like, when your brain is mush, they say, by the way, we have a really, <laughs> really expensive program that, that could fix all these problems. That's how broadcast television works. For three days. Broadcast television with advertising is here's 10 minutes of mind numbing entertainment that weakens you. Here, buy this car, this deodorant. They, that's how television's designed. It's designed to make you stupid enough to buy the products that are being advertised. Yeah. So that's my scoop. That's what I, uh, well, I, I was able to, to learn about this. Thank you, Stella. Thank you. And uh, yes, and that, but I was reading about this. I mean, this is, I believe he made his money doing energy drinks. I, th- I, th- I think someone said, and it was like, this is just such a, and, and of course this is Miami. And I just think this, you can't get a more perfect Miami, Florida kind of story. <laughs> Than people spending $30,000 to send their children to a school called the Brain School run by the dumbest goddamn beings <laughs> I've ever heard of. It is so, and of course, it's a Trump donor. Of right. course, he's an anti vaccination activist. But I mean, it. You know what I didn't want to be? I didn't. Don't you, but don't you love that people who spent 30 grand to send their kids there then found out this is where they sent them? Now, and let's be fair, let's be fair here. It's gonna be really hard to get into college with that on your transcript now. Now it's a joke. That money is gone. Hmm. Imagine what $30,000 could do for one classroom. If you were to take, you have $30,000 a year in New York, $60,000, like Dalton, 60,000 a year. And then they ask you for donations. Imagine what 30,000, what $60,000 could do for a classroom or a school. And if you're, and you're, think about the lack, what you're teaching your kids. This is why I, I mean this, that the children of the rich are victims of abuse. Because what you're saying to your kid is, I'm going to spend $60,000 on you each year, but not the other kids in our neighborhood or in our community. That is the height of irreligious. And yet religious schools It's hard to imagine what they're getting out of that money. 
It's a, it's almost hard to imagine. Are you getting more from that thirty thousand dollars than you would have gotten if you gave it directly to a public school? What are you worried about? But you know, again, I've been through this with parents because my kids went to public school. What are you getting? Wasting this money on this education. How much do you hate black people or, or Mexicans or poor people that you would spend that kind of money? Why are you doing this? And and well, they don't the way, have they don't of, have the right answer. Speaking of minorities, black people and and the kind that's actually when I was looking up this guy, David Sentner, he was mentioned in an article about anti-vaccination propaganda that was accused of being directed toward minorities and and trying to encourage them to not get vaccinated because. You're frozen. Demic as a opportunity. The anti-vaccination people have taken this whole pandemic as a marketing opportunity. So who's benefiting from all this? Well, individuals benefit by being hucksters, by being con men, by pandering to people who are the quickest to part with their money, so to speak. Um, I think people, most of all, anyone who is on the on the extreme right benefits because this just shores up their donations and their followers because the kinds of people who will vote for you because you're anti-vaccination used to not vote at all. And now they vote Republican. So there is a benefit there. And it's about just parting fools from their money by selling them magic pills that they say, this is what the FDA doesn't want you to know about. This is about, this will make you smarter than your, your, piece of crap doctor uncle because he thinks you're supposed to use regular drugs and i'm saying use this special oil that i anointed like it's just it's a means of taking advantage of people it's no different than what psychics do it's no different than what you know crooked astrologers do they're just taking advantage of people who are looking for answers and medical and the traditional science that does answer those questions doesn't work for them either it's over their heads or they resent it or whatever it is so it's just it's this is all about one big snake oil sale that's all this is this is these are all people riding in the back of a pickup truck through the south selling people some liquid and then getting the hell out of town before they try it right i didn't want to be the guy who railed against the stupidity of the country i can't tell if i've gotten older and more intolerant if I've gotten smarter and the country's gotten stupider. I can't figure out where I am in relationship Mm. to the body politic. I can't figure out what we're up against. Have the American people gotten as stupid as I feel? I have no nothing to back this up other than let me ask you. Let me answer that with a with a a, with a question. Yes, Um, Rabbi. let me let me answer let me answer that with something I I was watching a TV show from 20 years ago and I was taken aback by something a teenager said in the 90s. I brought a book to read. I'm not saying that everyone is smarter now. It was smarter then because they read books because they didn't have as many options for entertainment, but they did read a lot more, didn't they? I don't know. I feel like there were always stupid people. 
there were always people to know what they were talking about, but we used to have a more elitist culture where yahoos didn't have a voice. Honestly, we used to have elitism, which had a lot of problems in and of itself, but it also meant that you couldn't really be on TV telling people what to think unless you had a doctorate in something. It usually meant you didn't get to have that voice until you earned it. And some, and I'm not saying elitism, it wasn't bad, wasn't bad too, but it did prevent people from believing the Alex Joneses of the world. Right. It did prevent people from believing the Tucker Carlson's and the hucksters who just kind of throw information out there with no responsibility. There used to be more of a sense of you need to earn your place to have a voice. A newspaper was a thing that you could open and you could be reasonably sure that they couldn't just make up anything. You knew that there was grift. You knew that there were lies, but it was on a different level. Now you have people who a lot of them don't speak English or just don't read their, their home you know, language. And so they go to YouTube and they treat YouTube like the news. I've heard so many people refer to YouTube as the news, which is so goddamn scary. Because they just not very few people are going to take the time like I do, but I don't do it because I'm a good person or because I'm smart. I do it because I'm obsessed and I feel the need to be right. And I will spend way too long investigating stuff until I can feel that thrill of knowing I'm better than someone else. (laughs) Most people don't do that. They don't really put that much time. in. if they just see a nice background and graphics, they think this is news. This is something I can believe. And I'm going to watch this. If the person is saying things that I like, right, right. and people can you become a consumer reality, <clears throat> news yes. pe- people have become consumers of news. Yes. People have become consumers of higher education, and so you cater to consumers. There is knowledge that you may not want to consume, but you have to consume. That's you know, there are requirements in education. You are required to learn a language. You're required to study math and science. We're, we're not asking you to fill out. We're not doing a focus group to find out what what uh, six year olds would be most interested in learning. Here's the stuff you have to learn. And this is why liberals and lefties have to get involved in the schools. School Mm -hmm. boards dictate how kids are raised. And the Christian right and the Federalist Society and the Mike Pence's, they're already infiltrating the school boards and trying to influence what something is taught and how it's taught. What changes society is the schools and the laws. I said earlier about uh, Dave Chappelle, and I, I wanted to get your reaction to this. I said, if Dave Chappelle said what he said about transgender Americans in the back office of Netflix, as opposed to the front office on stage, he would have been fired. Is that a fair statement? No. That's not, a, you say that you mean is. If, a, he wa- if he wasn't Dave Chappelle. I'm saying if he was an employee at Netflix. Yes, yes, yes. I'm saying if he was Dave Chappelle, they'll let him say that. Well, if he but were. if he was just a guy who worked there, no. Let, let's say if, if, if he was having a meeting of his staff and he said, gender is fact. I think they'd let it slide no matter where he said it because it's him. But would you have a legitimate case before human resources? If I went to human resources and I'm I'm writing on Dave Chappelle's show and he's uh, in the meeting and in the meeting, he 
he's talking about gender being fact. And then I compare- think that you might, I mean, it's, I don't think human resources would tell you to get out of their office. They would probably be very nice to you and tell you they're going to get on this and nothing would happen. What should they is do my, legally? And, and what is my lawsuit? The point I'm making is whether or not- I have a lawsuit. Huh? I don't, I, I don't know the law whether or not you would have a lawsuit that you could sue because you're not the one being discriminated against, but you certainly would have a case that this is a toxic work environment. Uh, if there, if I'm a, if I have a transgender child, well, that would, that would make it different. Maybe. I don't know. I honestly, I can't speak the legality of it. I'd think you, Dave Feldman, you know, just as a random person who is not trans, who is not non-binary, I don't see how you could get money off of it, but I could see how he could get punished. Yeah. I'm not talking about the money. I'm talking about. That's what I meant. Yeah. You you can't do that. You don't cash, but yeah. You can't talk that way in corporate America. You can't can't talk that way at any job that has more than 200 people in it. Now, whether or not you think that's, you know, violation of free speech, whether or not you think that's cancel culture, who gives a shit? The law is the law. Well, there's a lot of things you can't say in the office. Yes. You know, that that you can say in polite conversation. And that's because the workplace is different. Um, And by the way, just to back up track for one second, I just wanted to give you another example. When you asked about people getting dumber, the one that I thought is the the best example is flat earthers. Flat earth did not. The flat earthers have not existed for many years. And then they came back during the Internet. Right. 30 years ago, there was no flat earth society that to speak of. There was no, there was basically no numbers. And now people like Kyrie Irving, because they have a voice, they can come out and say, well, I think the earth is flat. And then a lot of people believe them because they trust their sports heroes and not their teachers. But they don't really, and, nobody really believes the earth is flat. They're saying that. Yes, just they to do. Get yes, they do, though. They're stupid people no. who think, who are egomaniacs and they want so badly to say, I'm smarter than every scientist. That's where this comes from. Did you make phony phone calls as a kid? You may be too. Yes. Yes. That's that's what the Flat Earth Society is. It's a phony phone call. I wish it was. A lot of them are mentally ill and vulnerable people. And some of them are just egomaniacs who don't have the wherewithal to know what they're talking about. And, but I, I didn't want to get off on, on that. I wanted to continue. Uh, How the comedy. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm saying I, I don't want to derail us, but go on. How are the comedy clubs? Have you been doing stand-up? Yeah. I've been doing stand-up, and I think I mentioned this to you, how, like, on one hand, the clubs have been great, but on the other, you know, you can do a show, and then the next guy can say something that you're really offended by, and the audience applauds, and you're like, huh, that's a little disconcerting. Because the thing about, you know, what Dave said is that, you know, it's a very complicated discuss because you don't want to just say I'm the arbiter of what's okay, not okay to say. But I, it's certainly, I didn't like what he said, but it, to me, it sounded a lot like a less, a less harsh version of what half the standup in the eighties was about gay people. You look at mid eighties standup about gay people. It is unimaginable. The hatred, the abject hatred that would, you would never imagine hearing someone say now on TV. But I mean, People talking about gay people as if they were this alien race that just landed in 1980 to destroy their lives. And, you know, a generation earlier, you could have heard the same jokes about interracial dating. You could have heard someone get applause by being like, I hear the black guys and white women want to get married. What's the matter? You go through every single one. 
Like, you know, there were people doing disgusting stuff. Yeah, but here, like here's here's in its time. And here's the thing that there were a joke. It is possible of that time to do those types of jokes, but not mean it. When you look at Monty Python, like I read an interview with one of the Pythons who said, well, we would never dress up like women the way we did before. But they weren't being mean to transgender people, the Pythons. I agree. But it would be now, now time, you know, times they were. So it's it's the intent. I mean, Dave token. is saying what he means about transgender people. Right. I mean, he's Golden not making Girls a joke. A lot of gay He's, he's saying what he means. There were a lot of gay jokes that weren't hateful, and there were a lot that were. There were both. There are, I, I believe you can make any types of jokes. I think you can make fun of AIDS. I think you can make fun of transgender people. It has to be funny. I and, agree. And you don't yeah, have no, to mean it 100%. You know, I, when I lived in L.A., uh, my friend Karen, comedian, used to do a, a monthly show to battered women's uh, shelter in Silmar, California. And she said, just do your act. And it's not just intent. It's what you're saying, how you're saying it, and whether or not you really mean it. So, like I said, like I, they knew me at the <laughs> the battered women's shelter I, and i would go there every month and one night i said somebody was heckling me and i said i see why you're here <laughs> and the place just, like <laughs> and my son saw it he couldn't believe the place just and it was she well, knew my know it's a joke because she it knew my funny in, if you she knew it my wouldn't intent have been funny if you yeah exactly it wouldn't have been funny if you meant it if, exactly Thank you. That's the mistake that unfun people with third rate comedy minds think just ranting on stage is funny. You know, just spewing hate is funny. It it better be funny. It's if it's just if you mean what you're saying, or it comes across well, as because the well, th those are the people. They're not making a joke. They're trying to be iconoclasts, right? They're trying to be the brave truth teller, but sometimes brave truth is lazier than you think. Right. And Mark Breslin's here. Pandering. From, yeah. Mark Breslin from, yeah. I used to do this battered women's shelter every month and I would walk up to the mic stand and I'd go, I'd I go, ladies, I'm just reaching for the mic. I'm just reaching. <laughs> and they would laugh hysterically because I'm not, tr I'm not saying they were never beaten. I'm not saying they were right for getting beaten. I'm saying men beat women. And it's okay to, that's not offensive. And if you yeah, think it's offensive, let's go. Let's have the conversation while I'm on stage. If you think that's offensive, let's have a conversation on stage about why you think that's offensive. But the people who say, who say uh, cancel culture, you're canceling the audience's right to challenge you on your joke. Mm -hmm. It's cowardice. Well, yeah, it's people who there's that it's a weird double blind thing where they're like, I don't want to have to think about this. I'm just going to hear certain words and say that means this is bad. And yeah, you could have 
two jokes with the same words with opposite meanings because one joke comes in the perspective of I'm clearly joking and the other joke is saying, no, actually, I think this. Right. Here's the, the dealio, as the kids say. <laughs> they sure do. They sure do. Here's the dealio. Uh, I'm going to get I apologize for keeping you waiting, but I want to mm -hmm. run on time today, if that's yes, OK with so. you. Dave Cyrus is a Emmy nominated. Thankfully, he didn't win the Emmy this year. So mm -hmm. I was so relieved. He is a great comedy writer and a great comedian. Where are you performing next? I believe on Sunday, I will be judging the Comedy Fight Club in New York. Hmm. So you can look up Comedy Fight Club. Is that Club in a basement? In I, I'm tempted to come. Is that in a well-ventilated No, room? it's actually it? now in a real venue again. So I would Mark, love do you, you know come. about Comedy Fight Club? Unmute yourself. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club in North America. Uh, this is Dave Cyrus. I know, Matt. Hello. Tell, tell Mark about Fight Comedy Fight Club. It's really a brilliant idea. Who, who started yeah, this? The first rule is you can't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> Stupid marketing. The second rule is... We don't have that many audience members. We really need you to talk about it. Okay. Uh, well, who invented Comedy this? Fight Club is, it's one of several roast battle. But who, uh, who's the guy? Shows. Who's the guy? Who, well, the original roast battle was created by accident at the comedy store when two comics were in a were getting to a fist fight and the host made them argue on stage. The Comedy Fight Club was but, before the pandemic. Comedy Fight Club was Mark Maron. Uh, Mark Maron. I'm sorry, <laughs> Matt Maron. Matt Mar Matt Maron. Uh, as a comedian who started Comedy Fight Club uh, shortly after the L.A. roast battle was begun. And know, it was in basements. A, it was, it was mm -hmm. like a cockfight, right? Yeah, you went to. Yeah, it used to be. It used to be always just in basements. It was <laughs> it was a real underground fight atmosphere. It was mostly open micers in a circle and two guys or two women or guy and girl would get up against each other and they would just insult each other. And and it was very it, it, the Comedy Fight Club one is the most sort of. Uh, community like because right. they all know each other so like every time someone happens to say the word aids everyone starts chanting aids it's that <laughs> Mark, kind of like you would love this you would and for some reason we had our own version of this in yuck yucks called your hood's a joke um yeah. except instead of the comics um roasting each other they roast each other's neighborhoods or where they're from which mm -hmm. is an interesting twist it's run by um, a guy named Denis Anwar, and it's very very good yeah, no, it's the only thing that anyone considers me. Uh, it's the only thing that anyone calls me about is to judge or be in roast battles. It's my stand up, you know, I assume is fine, but it's really the judging roasts that <laughs> that right. club owners actually give a crap about get, getting in contact with me for. As a club owner, I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, thank you so much. Follow Dave on Twitter at Dave Cyrus. Yeah. Dave Cyrus. Guys. Thank you, sir. Let us now go to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is, as I said, the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. I can't tell you the number of people who, who were asking where you've been and said, thank God you're back. We missed you. Uh, that's very nice. I also got a couple of uh, direct inquiries, too, of people saying, where are you? Uh, which is really, really nice. 
Um, I prefer to deal in the thousands, but <laughs> I, I, I got a few, and that's right. good. But before we go any further, I just want to say this about your experience with battered women. Yes. I prefer them without the batter. <laughs> I find the batter makes them greasy, uh-huh. and it takes away from the taste of the woman. Right. So just saying. Right. And j- just so we're clear here, because we just I spent a lot of time talking about the cancel culture. Do you believe women should be beaten? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Was that joke about beating women or was it at your expense? No, neither. It right. was a joke about language. Yeah. Um, it was a joke about um, the inefficiency of language and the impre- imprecision of language that batter could mean two different things. Right. Could you do and that in front of a group? Covering, and part of the joke is the absurdity of covering somebody in batter. Um, just as a visual, that's kind of funny. So, no, it has nothing to do with the subject. What people could say, and they could be right about this, is that uh, in doing a joke like that, I trivialize a serious issue. And I will buy that. But that's my job. Could you tell, could you tell that joke at a battered women's shelter? Only if I had the car running. <laughs> no, you could tell it. This is, this is how I measure what is. You could do that joke. If you were performing at a battered women's shelter, you would do that joke. Probably not, because they probably heard every variation on an idea of batter, and it would be hacked to them if nothing right. else. But they wouldn't be. They, that would be what was offensive to them, not uh, the slight trivialization. If they knew me, and if they knew what my history of comedy is, then they probably wouldn't be offended. Because why would they ask me to perform in the first right. place if they didn't know that? You know, don't hire Lenny Bruce and then get upset because he's Lenny Bruce. So you could affect you. You can tell jokes that are at the expense of any protected class, as long as the intent behind the joke was to make everybody, including the protected class, laugh. Yes, but I would go also add that uh, character. Uh, on stage means a lot too. You have to understand what the character is doing as a character. That the person who's on stage and says "I" is not necessarily representing himself as the actual "I" that he's saying he is. He's uh, talking about the "I" that is a fictional creation of a character talking from that point of view. Mm-hmm. So you like I in the during the Clarence. Time, I'm sorry. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I used yeah. to. Okay. I, I, I used to do a joke where I said, and this was during the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill thing. I would say, I know how to wipe out sexual harassment in the workplace. Don't hire women. Yeah. Now, um, here, here's yeah. the difference. And then I would sit in it. I, I would, in other words, I took a massive dump on stage and then... I, I bathed in my own poo as the as people booed me and 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 it of course it was politically incorrect of course it was wrong to say that but I didn't do a hit and I I let them argue with me and it be and they knew I didn't mean it and well they should have realized you didn't mean it because you're a comic right comics don't talk about there's this whole thing about how comics come from truth. But actually, they come from lies, or they come right. from at least augmented truths. If it were just the truth, it would be a TED talk. But right. it's not. It's 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 jokes. Jokes are exaggerations. They're inversions. 
There are all kinds of technical things so that people know that you don't actually mean it. And the problem Sam got into when you were booking him was he was preaching what he believed about gay people. That it was funny, but he was really not saying he he was being truthful about his intent. And that's why he got into trouble. Uh, Yeah, I I kind of had to deal with this on the weekend because I got a call from CBC Vancouver that said they wanted me to talk about the Chappelle controversy. Who? Now, I know. Who? CBC. uh, That's the. No, no. What controversy? The Chappelle controversy. Dave Chappelle. Never heard of him. (laughs) Okay. So what did you say? um, uh, and they thought they were going to make me. Of course, it's a very woke and politically correct organization, CBC Vancouver. And I refused to to capitulate. And I think I kind of made them look kind of stupid. And uh, that was fun. I got all kinds of um, emails and Facebook postings from people saying that I'd really put them in their place. And it was really appreciated. Wait, so you defended how, what was because I just spent the first hour of the show. Then uh, we won't go there. No, no, I'm just curious. And I'm not going to argue with you because uh, I've already spent. But aren't you really just pre- worried about censorship? Yes, of course, I'm worried about censorship. But, you know, censorship doesn't apply to all media in the same equally. I think stand up comics have a certain kind of protected status that um, you wouldn't find with, say, politicians you wouldn't find with doctors or lawyers. And not only that, but there's also the issue of place. You do something in a comedy club, you do something in a comedy special. It's it's framed in such a way that um, you know what the art is inside the frame. The same jokes done by somebody the next morning at the uh, water cooler, uh, if water coolers still exist, I don't know if they do, but uh, at, at the, in the workplace could be completely wrong. And yet done by a professional, it's okay. So okay, so this is, this, this is an interesting conversation because you've had a deal with this. Let's leave Chappelle out of it. Let's leave Sam out of it. Let, let's just talk about the tension between the comedian, the audience, and the club owner. Okay. A comedian has the right, let, let's say uh, there's a comedian who is making fun of the Haitian immigrants trying to get into America and has a bit about whipping them, and which our Border Patrol did. And he defends the Border Patrol for whipping them and has a bit that dehumanizes the Haitians trying to get into America. Half the audience thinks it's funny, half the audience doesn't. Uh, as the club owner, I would assume you would say, I'm not, it's not my responsibility to censor him, and, and nor should it be, correct? The last thing you want to do is look to me for moral, ju- moral guidance. <laughs> Trust me. And even further, you wouldn't want to go to most people who own comedy clubs for moral, moral guidance. Right. You'll want them to, to make those statements, because if you did... Um, they might be right in this particular case, but they could be wrong in another hundred cases. So right. it's better that they stay out of it. But that's not why uh, why club owners would make that decision. It's based on our economics. Are those 50% of the people going to come back that don't like it? Or are they just going to shrug it off and go, well, I didn't like that comic and I didn't like that what he said, but I'm coming back to the club. 
Right. So let, 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 this is important to me. This is like a master's class in freedom of speech so that we could finally put an end to people hiding behind cancel culture and censorship. So let me let me put it this way. Uh, we'll make it personal. I am a Holocaust denier and I have a, an act that in some segments of the community does very well, where I say the Holocaust, the numbers have been exaggerated. And I do a bit, let's say, you know, Jews always Jew you down, except when it comes to the Holocaust and they Jew you up on the numbers. What's with that? And then I start backing this up with facts that the Holocaust, they killed a couple of Jews, but certainly not six million, right? Yeah, and I actually used to do a joke like that, which was, um, you know, these the, the people from the Holocaust, they say six million, they killed six million Jews. It was four million, five million tops, <laughs> right? Um, and it would get a bit of a laugh, not a huge one, it, but it was it was enough that I, I continued to do the joke until I got sick of it. Okay, so but I'm, I'm not Jewish. Oh, hang on. I'm actually, I'm, I'm talking about the, um, the cruel part of human life. You know, I'm not saying it's okay to kill Jews. Quite the opposite when I say, oh, it's four or five million tops. By the way, do you have glaucoma? Because it's blurring. No, no I don't. You Maybe blurred you know. it. Okay. So uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I hope, well, I, hopefully it's the lens and not the early onset. On so if I were a if I weren't Jewish, if I were a comedian and I had a 20 minute chunk saying the Holocaust didn't happen, the Jews should shut up about it and I'm getting laughs. Uh, would you book me? I'm getting laughs. But I'm, not, but I'm not sure you would get laughs on that. Well, but I'm just saying, but, but it gets laughs. There. You're making a huge leap here, David. You're making a huge leap of saying that particular kind of have you um, been to France? The Holocaust is actually going to to work. And there's a, there's hear, a comic in France who was doing very yeah, Jude Donay. Yes, his I name? know he came. His name is Jude Donay. Right. Um, it's it's like a stage name. I don't know what his real name is, and I know. Um, I think he played he played in Canada in Montreal, and there was a huge outcry. This was about ten years ago. He hasn't been seen here since. But but um, but here's the point I'm making. Of 360 million Americans, there are 36 million Americans who would very much enjoy a comedian trivializing the Holocaust or the plight of the Haitian immigrants. Is that fair to say? And if there's a, com a comical... No, 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 you've got your numbers way off. It's not 10%. It's closer to 30%. Okay. <laughs> he has a following. Uh, this is the way it works. You're a club owner. You can make a choice as the club owner to put commerce above morality or more either way. And you decide, you know what? I'm going to book this guy because he has a following. How does it play out now? OK, if you're asking me how I would do this. No, no. How it should play that the way that there we've gone through, not you and I, but there is a dance to this. And it's OK. And the dance right now with Chappelle, there is a dance with Chappelle going on right now. That 
is necessary, but people don't understand the steps, the dance steps. Explain the dance okay. steps. Right. So um, I'm not exactly sure what, what you're after me to say, but most comedy clubs have a, um, a certain audience that are nurtured over time. They come to the club not once to see somebody they love, but to come, they come many times to see a lot of different comics, many of whom they don't even know. There's a tone to the comedy club. And the tone is that it would not be overtly racist, overtly uh, problematic, overtly any of these things, that it's all a joke. What you're describing, or somebody like Dujonet, well, you noticed he wasn't booked in comedy clubs. He was booked in a, in a, uh, a theater where he would get people who came to see him and only him because they are already into him because of the Internet and they know who he is. That's different from most comedy clubs. Most comedy clubs and most comedy club owners kind of book people within a certain range. There's a certain uh, continuum. They don't go much outside that continuum one way or the other way. Pretty, some comedy clubs like mine have quite a bit of leeway. Others have airplane jokes, you know, air, airplane food jokes, right. and that's about it. Um, but I, I don't know any comedy club owners that would book somebody who was just a hate monger. They'd have to be screamingly funny. It would have to be obvious that it wasn't necessarily uh, true. And also they have to be equal opportunity slanderers for it to really, uh, to really work. Like look at Lisa Lampanelli uh, when she was doing her stuff. She used to go after everybody. She was sure she went after everybody. She didn't go out there and do 45 uh, minutes only on Puerto Rico. I love her. She, I love her, but you know, she's not doing her act anymore. For, for the wrong reasons. That's right. She's not doing her acting. She's doing like uh, consciousness raising corporate talks about uh, racism and in comedy. And she was really fun. She was. Wow. I took my kids to see her. My kids were like 10 and 12. I don't know. Really young. And I remember walking out and I go, did you notice when she used the N word? It was I looked at my wife. It was 20 minutes into her act where she drops the n-word and the place it was a thing of beauty because of the degree of difficulty and the timing i looked at my i looked at my watch exactly 20 minutes into the act she knew when to say the n-word and the african americans in the audience just were like ah that is art david they were waiting for it Right. They knew why they were there. Right. They were there with a very <laughs> precise artist who knew what they were doing and how to do it. Right. Right. That's what they wanted. You right. know, I've had experiences like this. You get this from certain communities. The Italian community is probably the best example. Um, how many times have I had um, a big Italian group come to one of my clubs? And then afterwards, they come up to me and I say, so how was the show? Did you enjoy the show? And they went. Yeah, it was good, but uh, not enough what jokes. <laughs> because they like the attention, and they're not ashamed of what people would make fun of them for. Right. Because really, what are you saying? You uh, you have a fantastic sense of style. You're really good at construction. Um, it's all about being good at things. You're even good right. at you're even good at criminality. Right. Um, it's amazing to me that the Sopranos got on the air. Uh, because I think if it was almost any other group that would have been just, you know, complete uh, hell to pay from uh, the activists in that community. But in the Italian community, no, they're perfectly fine with it. 
South Asians are like that, too. They love to be mocked. They love it. But these are two groups that are quite comfortable within their uh, role in society. They're kind of winners in a lot of ways. They're not destitute. They're not horribly poor. Uh, they're not horribly uh, insulted or there's not that much. I don't hear a lot about Italian racism. So the dance steps, as I see it, is okay. if you're t- if you're Lisa Lampanelli and you're telling those jokes, I would testify that it's art and she's not making fun of anybody. It's at her. It's at ultimately at her expense. The same way with Rickles. It's it's impossible to pull off what they've pulled off Rickles and Lisa. But it's it's a miracle of comedy. There's an episode of Denzel Washington on Letterman knowing that Rickles was coming out and he stayed. He moved down the couch because he wanted Don. It was, you know, and I thought, what a what an amazing I mean, it was just beautiful. Uh, well, to be insulted by Rickles is like going to a, one of those, you know, whale shows uh, at, at one of those, you know, whale farms and then getting spewed on. Right. Um, it's, like, right. it's an honor. Frankly, it's an honor. But it's got to be funny. And Denzel <laughs> knows that Don doesn't mean it. And he's he's saying this is of a different time. And he's but it's really hard to do if you're saying something that you mean it's not funny and it's dangerous right and so how do you let the audience know that you don't mean it uh, remember what ripples used to do certainly in the later part of his career he worked with a band right um the band every time he would do eight ten lines that were racist or sexist and then he would sing but i'm a nice guy as if you had to do that but maybe for the people who came to to those kinds of concerts you did, but I'm a nice guy. Right. And just to reinforce the fact that it's all a joke. Right. Which you and I both hated. I'm a nice guy. Me too. Yeah. It's yeah. like, get rid of the band. Don, you don't need this. So the dance that goes on, like with Netflix right now, there's no need to panic. Nobody's getting canceled. No, we've done. But- we've done this move before. But here's the criticism that I think is valid. The, the issue is not to do less comedy, that somehow doing less comedy will be more moral. The, the idea is to do more comedy. So where are the transsexual comedians on Netflix? Right. Where are the... Right, they're, they're coming up. You'll be seeing... You'll, you, 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 well, well, I hope so. You will. Because at least that's equal time. You will. And I think when there's equal time and they make fun of me for being a breeder... Um, I'll be perfectly fine with it, and I think so will everybody else. But I think if you're going to allow uh, Chappelle the the soapbox, you got to give the soapbox to everybody else too. The favor that right, the favor Dave Chappelle has done to the transgender comedy community is next year you are going to see twenty transgender comedians yeah. have, having That's specials. Right. I'm sorry, I'm not sure that was his motive, but um, I think that is something that's going to happen, and it has to happen. Um, and and then nobody can really complain. Right. So when people scream cancel culture, it's a bogus, it's, it's camouflaging their bigotry. Nobody's saying Dave Chappelle can't say what he says, 
But there are con- words have consequences. And if you don't speak up and protest, then you don't end up with 20 transgender comedians with specials on Netflix next year. Well, you, you have, have to hope. Yeah, you have to hope that that's what's going to happen. Oh, oh trust I'm me. It's good. I'm, I'm assuming this, but uh, also we should assume nothing. By the way, part of the expression, I'm lowballing that estimate. <laughs> I'm serious. I think you're going to see nothing but uh, transgender comedians as a response, not to Dave Chappelle, but as a response to the response of Dave Chappelle. That's the yeah. free marketplace of ideas. If you're going to say something offensive, I have every right to be offended. Correct? True. But, uh, true. But uh, have you ever seen any trans- transgendered comics? Have you ever watched any? Yeah, yes, uh, yes. Well, how would you know? <laughs> okay. They talk about it. So what? Maybe it's a career move. It's like Tootsie. Maybe this is the new Tootsie. Right, right. Uh, so let's plug some company. This was great. I'm so glad you're back. This is, and your son is beautiful. In fact. Please, I didn't want to be the one to tell you I'm quitting. This is my last show, but okay. Hey, <laughs> um, we should do that. This is your farewell tour on my show that this yeah, was like Stephen Allen Green used to do. That was, that right. was his book. Remember? Uh, I don't remember that much about him. But about him LA and the idea I, was yeah, that this was his last show. Right. Uh, your son, I was going to put a clip of your son up on YouTube, and then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Because no, we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I had, it was such a, it was so cute when he came in and hugged you, and then you said, we're going for the Brian Jones look with him. That, that was yeah. Brian Jones, Kurt Cobain, only uh, uh, blonde rock stars that didn't do too well in the end. <laughs> Does he listen to comedy? Does he have a favorite? Or you're not allowed well, to say. I take him to the club uh, maybe once every two weeks. Great. But he sits there with his iPad and, you know, does all his games. I don't know how much he's really listening. I think when he's 14, he's going to be very interested in, in what goes on in my life. It's uh, going to be fascinating. Uh, you and I share the same parenting uh, credo, and that is your kid should be pretty much exposed, within reason, to absolutely anything when it comes to comedy, as long as you can discuss it with them afterwards. It's going to be interesting to see uh, what he chooses in sure. 20 years for you know but, he, but i also um am reacting to the way i was brought up which where my parents told me nothing they tried to protect me to the point where my father had cancer when a serious cancer when when i was eight and i never even knew yeah i never even knew my father <laughs> lost his business when i was 10 i never knew did they what my father lost his business when i was 10 years old i never knew they carry on as if nothing is wrong. Right. This is, this is my, how my parents believe children should be brought up, protected right. from the world, because they'll have to deal with the reality of the right. world soon in this. Yeah. And uh, that's not how I do it. Right. That's not how my wife does it. Right. We tell them everything we can. Right. Mark Breslin. That's why we're looking for a new psychologist. If you know one, let me know. <laughs> Mark Breslin, thank you. Who's uh, plug, plug uh, your clubs? We're, well, most of them are open. They're open in, on a limited basis, and we're only allowed to put so many seats in, but they are open. 
I go to the shows all the time and people are laughing. Great. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. Yes. Thank you. Let's go to Los Angeles where Howie Klein is standing by. Are you there, Howie? I'm here. There you are. I have to pour a glass of water. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a song. And then when we come back, I will have a glass of water positioned in front of me. And I, I hope uh, you, you have some information that is going to make us happy. I hope, uh, well, maybe. Okay. I will, uh, we will be back, but let's get a glass of water. That's right. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me.
Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and uh, he joins us today in uh, in Los Angeles. Hello, Howie. David, hi. Good. Sorry to keep you waiting. I had to get some water. That was Professor Mike Steinell, and he'll be on later in the show. You really getting water? Is that like a euphemism for what you were really doing? Uh, that, I was really getting water. I would be honest with you if I, if it was something else, like giving water or, yeah. or giving something that was watery. Let me ask you about Bernie Sanders, who published an article in West Virginia, I think the Charlottesville something, going after oh. Joe Manchin. Charleston Gazette Mail. The Charleston Gazette Mail. Bernie Sanders went into Manchin's backyard and pretty much shamed him for not supporting Build Back Better. What was Manchin's reaction? And was it real? Was was Manchin genuinely offended that Bernie would do something like that? I'm sure he was. Remember, Bernie uh, got more votes than when Bernie ran for president in 2016, he got more votes than Manchin did uh, two years later in uh, in many, many, many counties. I mean, really a lot of counties. Right. Uh, Bernie is no stranger to voters in West Virginia. They, they know him and they like him. He didn't just beat um, Hillary in all these counties. He beat her in every county. But he also beat Trump in many counties. In other words, you go to these, these um, especially rural, but not just rural, you go to these counties in West Virginia that are very strongly working class, and Bernie, although he ran against Hillary and beat her, he got more votes than Trump did, who, who won the Republican primary. But Bernie, Bernie is known and liked in West Virginia. So he wrote this thing, and, uh, and Manchin was, was somewhat upset, although I hear that, um, and he said, uh, you know, we don't need some out-of-stater coming in and telling us what to do here in West Virginia. But I, I, from what I'm hearing now, is that it's sort of they're going to get together and, and talk about how to um, go forward with this problem, which is something that they can do. It's, it's obviously nothing that that lunatic um, cinema will do. But right. I think that Bernie and um, Bernie and Manchin will solve it. And then it's going to be I don't know who's going to talk her into anything, but we'll see. So this is good news. You have a piece over downwithjourney.com. I think it's your latest. It's entitled Cinema, <laughs> Still a Psychopath. Mansion wa- works to cut aid to families with children and to seniors. And what yeah, is that? So what is that? Part, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say the senior part is really bizarre. I mean, there are three states that are have the most, um, uh, the highest percentage of seniors, and West Virginia is one of them. And and that, that's his voting base. And he wants to. He totally wants to take out all the things that Biden wants to do for senior citizens. And that that's shocking. So he's really going after seniors and and to some extent uh, uh, families with children. So, so it's pretty weird. I don't know what he uh, what he thinks he's doing. Right. I didn't. Uh, thank you, Leslie. Just got some coffee. I didn't uh, talk about Build Back Better at the top of the show because I felt we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. We know that Bernie is going to meet with Manchin. 
But we really don't know what the final bill is going to be, do we? Uh, no, of course. So we're, we're just hearing rumors, right? I mean, what, what's going to happen is, yes. Well, I mean, we're not hearing, it's not so much rumors as we're hearing what people want. In other words, we're hearing a lot from Pramila Jayapal, and she is uh, giving, whenever she speaks, she talks about what the Progressive Caucus wants um, and in terms of policy. But I think what, what Manchin and, um, and Bernie are going to talk about is some, some of that, of course. I mean, Bernie insists that it's about policy, but they're going to have to decide on, on a, um, what they call the top line, how much, how much is going to be spent. Because policy flows from that. And Biden is saying front load it, cut it down to from, you know, five years to 10 years. Correct. No, no, no. Uh, you have. You said, first of all, you said that opposite. I'm sorry. But, 10 years, uh, 10 years to yeah. five years. So that's Pramila saying that now Pramila met with Biden today. And if Biden is saying that she must have uh, had a good impact on him. But that, that's, that, you know, and the reason for that is simple. And, and I, I think we've talked about this before on the show, which is if you say, for example, give people cheaper drug prices and drug, the drug, drugs go down by uh, half or a tenth or whatever they go down. And then five years from now, the Republicans are in control and they, or conservatives in general. And then they try to jack up the prices of drugs. <laughs> and everyone's going to have to pay 10 times more or they're going to take away child care that people have just had for five years. I mean, that, that, that's not going to fly. That, I mean, so, yeah, uh, famous- I, I really believe in, and have for a long time that the way forward is to uh, just cut the duration. Right. Keep the programs, cut the duration. There's a there's a famous memo that Bill Crystal, who should rot in hell, wrote to Bob Dole. I believe Bill Crystal was Bob Dole's advisor, and he advised him against Hillary Care. Dole was the majority leader. He said, if you get Hillary Care, if you allow Hillary Care to pass, you'll never get rid of it. And the Republicans will remain the minority party forever. <laughs> and, and so the re- it was Bill Crystal who killed Hillary care. Uh, so by, you know, if they have to lower it to five years, let's get this stuff going by any means necessary, like the child tax credit. Once people, yeah. as you say, they, you write about this. Once people get used to the child tax credit, you're not going to be able to get rid of it. Yeah, it's going to be very, very hard for them to get rid of it. You know, you know, you know, one of the things that Bernie is really, really adamant about is that Medicare starts covering dental and, um, uh, you know, ear care and eye care. And that that's something that the Democrats, that the conservatives have prevented since the since before Medicare was even passed. That this has been always part of. Hello. Hello. And and if we finally do include it, do you think how hard is it going to be for the the, the conservatives to then take it away? That that's and they know that as well, which is why they're fighting so hard to not ha- allow it. Right. Manchin is seventy five. What does he want? 
you know, they get they get into these jobs and they they think that they they own the jobs. They they define who they are, their being based on these jobs, and they don't want to give it up. And you know, maybe he's you know he's very very rich, so he doesn't really need more money. Although you know, I uh, what I've experienced from from rich people that I've come to know is that the richer they get, the more they want. So it's not like they you know they get really rich and then they're satisfied at some point. I mean, I'm an anomaly that way. Right. But everyone I know who's wealthy uh, is the opposite. You know, they start comparing themselves to people who are richer than them, and they, they want to be as rich as that. But so maybe that's what the problem, they, I don't know, maybe that's a problem with Manchin. I'm not sure. You've explained this a couple of years ago, and you, you, you explained it to me. I understood it when you explained it to me, but it, my mind is a sieve and I so this, this, this is what I don't understand. Our friends over at Sludge reported uh, on the 15th of Our October. Over where? Sludge. Everybody should read Sludge. They, they, uh-huh. they go through the documents and they said that Manchin got one point six million in the third quarter of this year in donations. Close to half a million of his donations in the third quarter came from fossil fuel donors. And so, I'm sorry. I didn't say it. Yeah. And, and, and this is in light of Biden saying that Manchin is killing the climate change in incentives in Build Back Better, that Manchin is fighting the incentives in Build Back Better to transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. So what does he need? I don't understand why he needs that much money in West Virginia. I know he's he barely got reelected, but does that kind of what does he do with that money? No, well, he, I mean, he does have a competitive seat. I don't even know, and I don't know what his plans are. I don't know if he's going to run again. Uh, I, you know, I, I kind of think he's not. He, he's, he's a wealthy man. He, uh, you know, he, his, his son's business, although it's his business, but it's run by his son, is a, um, a fossil fuel energy brokerage. And, um, and, he, and he collects half a million a year from it, Manchin does. So, you know, that that probably explains something about what's uh, about what his motives are. I, you know, it's hard to say to ascribe motives to people you, that, you know, they should talk to them. So how do you and not not physically, but how do you hurt Manchin? How do you scare somebody like well, I told someone in Congress today uh, to get the, to, to try to get this out? Uh, about him uh, trying to uh, just take the whole elder care thing out. I mean, he, he can't win an election uh, if, if um, older people in West Virginia see him as, you know, trying to prevent what Biden is, wants to give them. Uh, so, you know, I suggested that they just they just really start pounding that. Right. And I've told my listeners to call his office it's on the screen right now i'll give at the bottom of the hour i'll give out the phone number going after the daughter for the epipen does it register when you have that much money 
Isn't that just the price of doing business, a little humiliation in the press? <laughs> I hope. The, th the thing is, is that uh, you have to be very careful with Manchin and, and cinema to, you know, I, I think cinema's already made up her mind that she's leaving the Democratic Party at some point. But with Manchin, if you don't want, you know, remember, Manchin can get anything he wants out of the Republicans by switching parties because he doesn't just switch one vote. It switches the entire leadership of the Senate. So if he were to leave or the, uh, the nut was to leave the Democratic Party, uh, the Democrats would be the minority party and they would have no say over anything. Uh, Biden couldn't even get his, his nominations considered. Well, we're going back to the Obama years. It feels like you, who didn't vote for Biden, uh, you were Obama in 2012. I didn't vote for him either. Yeah. But we're playing into the it's hard to to govern in Washington. Right. It's, this is like the same trap I fell into in 2010 with Obamacare, where, you know, evil Mitch McConnell and, you know, and, you know, poor Barack Obama, he's trying his best. But they're I mean, I asked David Cobb, who's coming up in a little while, what he would do, what he would recommend to Biden. He said he would he would take Chris Kirsten Cinema's committee assignments away, treat her like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Treat she would leave. She would leave right. immediately. Right. How much uh, you, know, you, you have to you have to you have to play uh, a more subtle game with these people. There are things that there are things that Biden can do with Mansion. Cinema is another case. P people don't understand. She is she's a psychopath. You can't deal with her like a normal person. I don't like Mansion, but he's a normal person. You you can you can bribe him. You can blackmail him. You can you know shame him. There are things you can do with him. Uh, you can make him a hero. You, uh, Biden can, you know, fly him to West Virginia and Air Force One and have a big festival <laughs> or something. Right. I don't know. But but if she no, she's not that. You can't do it. I don't know what you need a psychiatrist to tell you what to yeah, do. You with said her. this before she was elected. I've been saying this for a decade. I've known her before she was elected, not just to the Senate. I've known her before she was elected to the House. She's a crackpot. She's insane. She's literally insane. People don't understand. They think I'm exaggerating. They think I'm, you know, being hi hyperbolic. No, this is a crazy, crazy person. There's nothing that can be done with her. I mean, there is, but I, I don't know what that is. It's not normal politics. It's none of that stuff. I've given her phone number out and <laughs> for people to call. The, they don't answer the phone. Not only isn't it, you know, she represents Arizona. They don't have any, you know, if you speak Spanish, press two, none of that. You would think a senator from Arizona would invite Spanish speaking constituents into her world as a Democrat. Nope. And the answering machine is full. At least you can call Joe Manchin's office and tell him to vote for Build Back Better. So, yep. Well, like I said, he, you know, we don't like him, but he's a normal guy. He's a, he's, a, he's just like a, you know, he's kind of human. She's kind of like something else. She's, <clears throat> yeah, she's in her own head. Let's talk about, that's my mother calling in. Uh, I said, I must've said something. Uh, there, <laughs> uh, you know, they had an interview with Jake Tapper 
John Stewart was on with Jake Tapper and he had an interview with The New Yorker and he's come down, you know, from on high to warn us that democracy is at stake. Uh, gee, thank you for that. That's that's a headline. John Stewart says democracy is at stake and he's just regurgitating everything we've been reading and said for the past six years with Trump. Trump, how much of a threat is he to the Republicans right now? Are we going to see, because the midterms are right around the corner, the primaries are coming up. Are we going to see Republicans brave enough to leave his orbit? Um, Well, I, I mean, a few did. But they're not the people who have um, elections coming up, generally speaking. Uh, you know, there were, there, were the, there were the 10 um, members of Congress who, who voted to impeach him, members of the House. Excuse me for one second. Bless you. Hang on. To a friend of mine who's listening, that's how real people sneeze. I'm not going to... That's how people, at least... That's how my people sneeze. I, I went near some pepper. I'm <laughs> you, sneeze like, you sneeze like a human being. I'm a loud <laughs> sneezer. What is this? Where I have a neighbor who complains that they can hear, my, you, that I, they can hear my sneezes. Well, well, I'm glad that it was just two, two sneezes. Sometimes it could be six or seven. But I, I, you ever hear of Harira? Have I talked about Harira before? No. Harira is like the national dish of Morocco. It, it, it's a soup. It's incredible. Uh, you know, I, I obviously I make a version a, ver, a vegan version of it, mm-hmm. but it, it, there's usually lamb in it or chicken or something. But but it, it, it's incredible, delicious, amazing um, soup. And I, I was putting some pe- and it's for tonight. And I was putting some pepper in it, and and I inhaled some pepper, so that's why I sneezed. A loud sneeze, it, it, especially in the age of COVID. You're, you're saying, leave the room. I just sneezed. You know, the sneaky <laughs> sneezers are the ones who kill you. <laughs> All right. So what were we just talking about before the sneeze? I'm how, sorry. How robust your basso profundo sneeze was. We were talking about the threat of Trump and whether or not this is the midterms. Oh, the, the primaries. The, the, and yes, the primaries in the Republican Party. So, so when you look at the ten House members who voted to to impeach him, uh, one of them has already ran, run off with his tail between his legs. Uh, Anthony Gonzalez in Ohio, right. uh, and you know some of them are are going to fight to the end. It looks like they'll fight to the end, but they're but basically they're going to all lose. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying every single one of them is going to lose, but probably every single one of them is going to lose. Certainly most of them will lose, but I think all of them will lose. Do the people who challenge um, Trump are going to lose? It, what? Are you, I'm sorry. You're saying the people who challenge Trump are going to lose? Yes. The people who voted for impeachment are going to lose. And it, I'm sorry. Chain, what about Cheney? She's definitely going to lose. She doesn't even have the slightest chance. It's Kinsinger? like shocking. Kinziger? Kinziger is, a, yeah, he doesn't have a chance either. The, the, the thing is with these, with these um, people, if they manage, if a few of them will, but very few of them will, if they manage to get through the Republican primary, then they'll be uh, taken out by a Democrat. Kinziger is one of them. 
uh, if he manages, uh, you know, the, the, his district has just been uh, gerrymandered, and it's uh, he's now going to be up against our friend uh, Marie Newman, and in a, in a d- district that leans uh, Democrat, so he's in trouble. Uh, so even if he wins the primary, which he may not win, I don't think he's going to win the primary. But even if he does, then she'll take him out, and it's going to be the same thing, you know, for Catgo in Syracuse. Even if he wins uh, the primary, and he may. Uh, he'll he'll lose the general, so you know they're they're in a they're in a really bad situation. All of those people. When Trump was yelling and screaming about how you know he was he put it on his blog, his statements of the forty fifth president blog, and he said that uh, five uh, that his voters will not vote. Uh, unless um, yes. the problem is solved with the stealing of the election. You know, he, he wants, I mean, he has all these demands, crazy, insane demands. And um, a, a poll was done in Georgia of Georgia Republicans, and 5% have already decided they're not voting. And another 5% or 4 or 5% are leaning in that direction. So, and in that, if that happens, it, just think of it as ten percent a round figure. They're going to be uh, two less Republican congressmen. All the Democrats will be safe, and there'll be a Democratic governor of of Georgia, and the and the Democratic senator who's in a, in a tough race will also be reelected. So go Trump. So, if uh, if okay by January first. Build Back Better will be passed in some fashion. We'll have the two. Will we have a bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better passed by January 1st? Because I know at the end of the month, Nancy Pelosi has set the end of the month as the new deadline to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That presupposes that they're going to vote on Build Back Better as well. By Christmas, by January 1st, will we have those two bills passed? I think we'll have two bills passed, but what they'll be is another question. And then the question is, if... if I mean, Bill, the, the, infrastructure, the hard infrastructure bill, you know, that the cheap one that you know, kind of was written all by, by all conservatives and isn't any good... That one has already passed the Senate. So it's like not like the senators can take back their vote. As long as the Democrats in the House don't change anything, it can pass. If the Democrats in the House try to change even a word, then they have to go back to the Senate to have it uh, voted on again. And, and those Republicans who, who, who went along with it last time might not go along with it this time. In fact, I don't think they would. Right. So then uh, they would have to combine the two bills into one uh, package uh, for reconciliation. What do you think w- will survive Mansion and Cinema? What do you think we could see? You know, I, I, the front loading, cutting it down to five instead of ten. Are we going to? I mean, this is conjecture. It's not fair to you. But what 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 is like a, a slam dunk, as George Tennant said about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? What's a slam dunk in the reconciliation bill? That, that just is- I don't think there's any slam dunks. Uh, I think they're going to they're they're cutting it up and dice, dicing and slicing, and it's uh, not going to be pretty. I think that 
taking it from the other perspective from the uh is that all of the hopes that we had for um a clean energy bill that they're dashed because mansion will not vote for a bill that has that so that so that's that and so come january 1st the midterms start and the democrats need trump they need to right <laughs> yes. they have to do you want you know the republicans to take over the senate and the house do you want no trump? no i think there's a, there's a there was a funny story i didn't i didn't read it yet but i have it uh, i i'm going to uh, i have it on my desktop to read I, and i believe it was in the wall street journal and it uh it said there's a new conspiracy theory that trump is actually a democrat trying to destroy the republican party he so yes what is going to end up if the democrats get a filibuster proof senate is that because republicans died from covid or republicans didn't bother to vote because they figured why bother it's fixed which will be the bigger cause of it well they can't get a filibuster proof that's not there's there aren't it's not even close i mean they'll be lucky if they maintain a majority i mean if they come out of this with a majority of one or two it's, it's going to be a miracle what if we can no one them thought they were going to win Georgia? Did anyone think they were going to win both seats in Georgia? I mean, right up until the day that they won, no one believed that that would happen. Right. Is that because Trump said it's fake? Yes, it was, it was all Trump. I mean, it was, it was swing voters, independents, moderate Republicans uh, who who just said and this guy is like over the top and uh, we got to stop him. And, and that's what happened. And so you said you had some nice news. Does it wait till? Yes, I, I, I think this is what's happening. I'm almost certain is that, well, Ju- Julie Oliver, who is an incredible candidate in the Austin area, um, is, is she told me she was going to start a, um, an exploratory committee to run for Congress uh, this uh, in this session, in this coming session. So what, ha- what happened when the Republic, what the Republicans did when delay when delay uh, redrew the map of Texas, the congressional districts in Texas, he decided to crack Austin. So, in other words, he cut Austin like a pie to prevent Democrats from 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 having any power. So, like for example, let's take the tenth district that had lots of Democrats, but it went way into the into the rural areas and 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 into Harris County. I mean, if you know the map, I mean, think about how and that's 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 the county Houston is in. It didn't go into the city of Houston, but it went into Harris County all through cow country where and 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 into these right wing suburbs north of Houston as well. Um, and that way that, you know, it wasn't a heavy majority of Republicans, but it was, it was a majority of Republicans. And all those Democrats, say 52 percent Republican, 48 percent Democrat, all those Democrats would never be able to elect anybody. So that was what uh, Tom DeLay did. Now, the new Republican gerrymander is the opposite. Instead of cr- cracking, they packed. So they created these. Democratic districts that that are uh, oh there's Julie on the other line calling me now. Oh, Damn. I, if I knew how to get her to 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 make it so that we could all I would do it, but I don't know how to do it. That's okay. Uh, but so is I she, won't I won't answer. Is she I'll, I'll, is she running? Back. 
yes, she's going to run. So, uh, you know, she, the reason that we have to talk now, she and I, is because I, 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 she didn't put her, she didn't put through her Act Blue page yet. According to Act Blue, they said they haven't heard from her. According to her, uh, one of her staffers, she's been working on it all day, but right. they're telling me they haven't heard from her and asked me to get in touch with her and ask her to call them. So I don't know. In any, in any case, she is going to run. So what I, but I, what I wanted to say is there are these two super democratic seats now. One of them in central Austin is liable, and the one that she's going to run for, is liable to be the single most democratic seat in the whole country, more than San Francisco, more than Oakland, more than New York, more than anywhere. That's how they packed all these Democrats together. And what they did is they protected six Republican incumbents by taking all the Democrats out of their district and putting this into this one dump district. Hmm. The silver lining there is that we can get someone like Julie, who would be you know amazing for us to have uh, a voice like her in Congress. However, the bad news is that another Democratic district, also very, very heavily Democrat, but pretty much a, a, a Hispanic district, that one is represented now by Lloyd Doggett. Lloyd Doggett is kind of a, you know, he's, he's kind of a liberal, but not, he's not like a, he's not like a fighting progressive. He's just there, kind of liberal. When no one is looking and he's in committee, he's usually on the wrong side of things. Uh, but his voting average, his vote is okay. He's, a B, he's got a B. Mm-hmm. With a B, uh, with a B grade should not be representing this new district, but he wants to move from his old district where he doesn't live. He lives in the old district. He wants to represent the new district. And we need someone in that district like Julie, not someone like, we're talking in Austin. He's in Austin. He's 75 years old. He, he, he doesn't have any energy to do anything but fundraise anymore. And you know, it's not, he should retire. You know, what do you have to die in the seat? Go away. He's been in Congress for 30 years, right. almost. Enough about Stephen Breyer as well. Uh, the Supreme Court, he should retire, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. Please bring Julie on. She's been on before. And uh, tell her I said yeah, we'll bring her on as soon as she makes it official. Yeah. And everybody should go to Down With Tyranny. Read him every day. We just scratched the surface. Thank you so much, Howie. Okay, thank you. Good to talk to you. Enjoy the. David, uh, are we still, are we still on the air? Yes. I, I wanted to ask you something. But we're still are, on the are air. Are you um are you distracted today about something? Is everything okay? Why? You seem distracted. Uh, you you know usually you're like so sharp and on top of it, and you seem like your mind is wandering to other things. And I'm I'm wondering if there's something wrong. Uh, well, I am getting older. I, and <laughs> Not as old as me. <laughs> uh, sleep deprivation might be. Okay. I, I have not. I hope- I've had horrible, horrible insomnia. Like I, I'm getting oh. I'm getting to bed at like seven in the morning and waking up at eight. So it's just been terrible. And not good. Not good. I'll be better. I promise I'll be better next week. I hope so. For your sake, not mine. All right, Murray. It's good to talk to you, Murray. Give my best to his staff. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Read Howie Klein over at Down With Tyranny. Uh, well, let's go to Humboldt County, where my good friend David Feldman is standing by. He is 
He ran for president on the Greenpeace ticket. And, uh, uh, David, David Cobb <laughs> ran for president as uh, on the Green Party ticket. He is a lawyer. He lives up in Humboldt. He works with indigenous people. He's setting up public banking, and he always has something important to say. And we're grateful that he stops in here once a week. What do you have behind you? Oh, you know what? It's interesting. I I move things around. This is what you're looking at for those who are listening. Uh, Feldman's sharp eye, uh, sleep deprived though he is. Uh, That is a puzzle piece. Right. And each piece of the puzzle, one says patriarchy, one says imperialism, one says capitalism, and one says white supremacy. Uh, This is uh, a a teaching device that Cooperation Humboldt used uh, when we first got formed to help people understand the interconnected nature of power over extractive, competitive, dominating systems. And then it says... And what we need to do is transform to a power with regenerative economic, gender inclusive uh, system. So for us, yes. This is great. This is so. Do you, can we talk about this? Since yeah, it, absolutely. So just for my listeners, you're saying that the four parts of the puzzle piece that we have to solve and get rid of the patriarchy. That's one. Imperialism is two. Capitalism is three. White supremacy is four. Uh, listen, listen, if you, can we break this down, tease it out? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I, I, the the I'm patriarchy. Let's we'll start with the patriarchy. And I will, uh, I, I, will, I will frame it by saying, because what is happening, you know, uh, when we watch Trump, et cetera, what we're seeing is the ruling elite are par- uh, are polarized as, as surely, uh, like it's not just on the left. What we're watching is a system in collapse, uh, David Feldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that it's so important to understand and uh, the, this interlocking puzzle piece is because that is in fact the worldview, right? We have a worldview that is based on a economic system. Remember, we've done this before, but I'll do it again. Uh, just just uh, off the cuff and say, remember that capitalism actually has a very easy to understand explicit definition. It is an economic system that is premised on one, the private ownership of the, of the means of production. Number two, that uh, goods and services are produced as commodities to be bought and paid for as opposed to uh, use value, right? right? Again, this is just standard economics. Number three, that labor itself is just one more commodity that's bought and paid for. Number four, that the uh, profit maximization is the reason that you do everything and then the fifth characteristic, that the entire thing is facilitated by the market. Now, I like to start, and you'll notice we're just stop, we're breaking down that particular puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. The reason it's important to do this is because, as I just described it, I challenge any listener, go right now uh, to Wikipedia, go to a macroeconomics tech book, go to anywhere you want. And you might find some quibbling at the margins of those five characteristics that I just gave you, 
But I promise you, David Feldman, that is literally the definition that will be taught in an introduction to macroeconomics uh, uh, in this country, right? Or right. anywhere in the world. Like that's basically it. And it shouldn't that taken alone. Any of those things usually don't make people freak out. But then I say, wait a minute. Now let's think about the implications of all of those together. That literally means unlimited growth. And when we talk about unlimited growth on a finite planet, then we're literally talking about the ideology of the cancer cell. Right. right, right, and then couple that with the amazing advances in technology, robotics, automation. Literally, we are consuming Mother Earth faster than she can possibly replenish herself. Right, right? so we are creating a truly existential crisis. And what really sucks is all of this incredible wealth that's getting uh, created is being hoarded. Uh, by a small group of people who are literally mentally ill. Yes. They, are, they, they are taking us over a cliff. So capitalism is absolutely one of the problems, but it's not the only problem. Right. Because white supremacy uh, is not merely racism. It is a profoundly insidious worldview that is premised upon the idea uh, and, and basically it comes out of the racialized capitalism of the creation of whiteness in this country. People like to talk about how, oh, slavery always existed. But the pathology of slavery in this country was was unique because it was very specifically created around pigment alone. Right. It was not. And then to justify it, it created this idea that Africans were inferior and deserved it. See, Back in the uh, uh, b- before that, the idea was, you know, one tribe went to war with another. My tribe beat your tribe. We enslaved you like to, sucks to be you. But there was never any. And you could look like me. I could enslave somebody. Absolutely look like me. Right. But that's the other point. It was not. And you are subhuman. It's I defeated you. Right. And so I have just I have enslaved you. There was no qualms about it. The creation of whiteness in this country in order to begin the capitalist enterprise. Right. Remember, we didn't have specifically capitalism at this point. We had a kind of agrarian feudalism that evolved out of it. So there's a historic worldview. So white supremacy is ultimately a power over Uh, We assert that this cultural phenomenon is the best. That's the second piece. Notice that they're both power over dominator systems and worldviews. The third one, heteropatriarchy or patriarchy, is simply the idea of uh, the the domination of men over women, uh, the, the idea that men are supreme, et cetera, et cetera. And imperialism and settler colonialism is the same thing, only uh, applied specifically to uh, land or, or, or mat, like land masses, right? And here is the end. I know Feldman from my own uh, research, my, not, not only my mama and papa and my big mama, which was my grand, great-grandmother, I was fortunate enough to know her as a child, like I know from that and then research that I've done that uh, I descend from Scottish and Irish uh, uh, heritage, ethnicity. And I know that the English empire basically, came, and my people, 
back in the day, right, were indigenous to Scotland and Ireland, living in right relationship with Mother Earth, tending it as stewards. They were not owning it. They were part of it. It was a worldview, right? The English Empire raped, pillaged, and plundered and drove my people off of their ancestral homelands. They came to this continent, the North American continent, and raped and pillaged and plundered and drove another people off their land. And this is the, the, the thing that I really want to land on, David, and that is trauma. You know, you, you, you often will, behind the, the jokes and, the, and even the political analysis, you have, and I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass, you have an astute, keen compassion and awareness around trauma. And what I'm telling you is I genuinely believe that this power over toxic behavior has traumatized all of us. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is heal ourselves and each other by getting in right relationship with the land, with each other and creating a new political economy. Because remember, economy just means management of the household. That's literally what it means, right? And what I'm saying is our approach of commodifying everything and just has, has actually a very bad way to manage the household. We're, we're going to destroy our home if we don't shift. The good news is that there is a way to shift away from these systems towards a, again, the, the economic system of a solidarity economy, towards an inclusive gender equity, towards a decolonized worldview, uh, to an ex towards an explicit anti-racist perspective. So this puzzle piece of the interlocking nature of, of what is so toxic and harmful for us, uh, and I'll end with this, this is systemic and it's destroying the planet. And Mr. Feldman, I am not fighting to save this dying system. I'm fighting to create an entirely new system, one that's based on love and compassion and caring and enough for everybody as long as we share. It's really that simple. So this is important for me. I'm not, uh, there's some things I understand what you're saying. I'm just thinking about priorities and how we sort out what's in front of us, how we choose to sort out the news and which basket to put it in. And you're saying there are four baskets that are connected. They are white supremacy, the patriarchy, imperialism and capitalism, that when you see a problem, you can place that problem in one or all four of those baskets. This is a, you know, healthcare in America. Well, mostly a problem of capitalism, little white supremacy, little <laughs> patriarchy. I, I was talking earlier that 40% of female doctors quit after six years. It's an astounding stat. Yeah. What? Google it. My God, yes. like, yeah, again, you've heard me quote my, one of my favorite uh, political theorists on your show before. I'll do it again. Lily Tomlin famously said, no matter how cynical I get, it's hard to keep up. I am going to go uh, and I don't Google it because Google's a, a corporate noun, not a verb. Right. I will do an Internet search on it. Right. I probably will use Google as my search engine, but I will do that Internet search 
You better be right, Feldman, because if you have misled me, you know I'm what? Call you on it next week. Once I said to somebody, "Bing it," and they beat the <laughs> crap out of their boys. <laughs> they thought I was saying, you know, Bing like Bing Crosby, beat your kids. So I, I can't say Bing it. You can't say Bing it. All no, right. they, Fair it means you're going to beat your kids. Uh, bad guy, Bing, <laughs> Bing Crosby, Cosby. Yeah, Crosby. Your, uh, your, 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 your jokes are getting a little too esoteric in your insomnia. Belt. I have no, I, I know. Uh, <laughs> by the way, anyway, so. Uh, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, imperialism. Here's what I, let me make this personal, forgive me. Yeah. I get capitalism. And, and that's, uh, for me, I'm beginning to understand that capitalism is, is a serious problem. I'm ashamed to say that I am coming late to the other three. I'm coming late to white supremacy because... I've lived in a bubble of privilege, a semi-permeable bubble of privilege where until Black Lives Matter, uh, until Obama became president, I didn't quite grasp. Yeah. I couldn't believe that white supremacy lived inside of me. And that no, I, and, and that you know, I, because you're a good person, David. I don't and like, so, uh, you know, you're a decent person. You're not as good as me. Uh, yeah, right? Nobody but, is. Even <laughs> you're not as good as you are. I, exactly, right? But, but, no, but seriously, look, I, I will now quote another uh, uh, influential thinker, and that is Maya, Maya Angelou, who famously said, Do the best you can. And then when you know better, do better. Right. And so that's actually how I think about this, because, look, uh, I grew up in this society as well. And uh, I did not uh, like I was not taught that white supremacy was a thing. In fact, I was just steeped in it without knowing any better. Right. Uh, and uh, so I was completely ignorant. Uh, and I will just tell you this story really quickly. Uh, and I was very active in the anti-apartheid movement as a student because I'll, I'll age myself at 58 years old. The University of Houston was very active. Uh, and uh, there's a great story about how when I first came to the University of Houston, I saw a big sign that said, end apartheid now, my, literally my first week of school. And I was like, oh, apartheid is bad. I know about that. I'd like to end it. And I walked over there. And within five minutes, I ended up in an argument with the person behind the table. Now, it wasn't a yelling and screaming argument, but it was a political discourse because this joker was trying to tell me that I was, whether I liked it or not, was unintentionally supporting apartheid simply because I, like he, was a student at the University of Houston. And it had some kind of crazy idea about because uh, our board of regents were investing in corporations that did business in South Africa, and that was supporting that regime. But David Feldman, the thing that sent me over the edge and I just pounded the table, because that guy told me that the US government supported apartheid. And I will never forget, I said, man, where did you go to high school? This is the United States of America. We're the good guys. And Feldman, he did not yell at me. He did not ridicule me. He said, hey, look, like I've got all this material in front of this table, but I don't think any of this is going to convince you. So I'll make you a deal. The MD Anderson Library is literally 100 feet away from us, right? 
there's a, a cover story on Time Magazine. You know Time Magazine, right? I said, of course. I like said, like, so if you would go read that article and then come back and talk to me, and I'll make you a deal. I'll read anything you want me to read, right? And then we can just have a conversation, right? And so, like, to, to cut to the chase, I'm telling this story to be humble and to, to get you, like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was, like, vehemently arguing, uh, you know, something that was factually incorrect. But he did not degrade and humiliate me. He took me where I was. He also didn't, like, excuse it. He challenged me. And so then, to, to, to make, to speed up the story, by the end of the semester, I'm on the other side of the table having those same kind of conversations, right? So that's one thing. We don't know what we don't know. Here's the second thing, and I'm going to get really personal, because like probably the my sophomore, junior year, something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but like I was very active in the apartheid movement. Like we got, we disrupted the, the Board of Regents offices. Here's something I learned, by the way. If you just play by the rules and go and like submit your little petition or, you know, even have your student representative on the Board of Regents use their three minutes to say how terrible it is uh, and then go on, nothing happens. You know what You know what actually changed it? When we brought a hundred students screaming and chanting into the Board of Regents office and disrupted it and said, you're not gonna meet. No more business as usual. Like, like, like this university is going to divest from its holdings in, in South Africa or it won't continue. Like we are going to stop it. So I learned a lot. Yet one more quote from another famous American. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Here's the other part of that. You show me how much injustice any people are willing to tolerate, and I will show you the exact amount of injustice that will be visited upon them. So I learned that you have to be willing to be disruptive and militant. Not violent, but disruptive and militant. Here's the last part of the piece. Two, three years into my work, I, 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 I'm a good person. Like you, Feldman, I am a good person. And I had a very dear friend who was an African-American woman. We were, we were very close. And in the back of my head, because I grew up in poverty, I, I, I thought to myself, but I would never say it, right? Like, I just wish that women and people of color would get over it, right? Because really, class is the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if like, we just unite around class, that we could beat the ruling elite. But because Serena and I were so close and so uh, you know intimate, and I felt trust, I could tell her what was in my head, right? And I will never forget the day that I had that conversation. The look in her face as she listened to me, it was a combination of sadness, anger, frustration, like all of the feels, all of the emotions as I like, I, I just, I authentically expressed myself to her. And she said, David, I wish, I know the words that you think are coming out of your mouth, but I wish you could hear the words that are coming into my ears. Because when you say that class is the really, the thing that really matters and that people should get over identity politics, has it ever occurred to you that that's because your identity is as a poor white kid and that 
you're literally telling me that my lived experience doesn't matter and I should give up or get over my own trauma and my own lived experience just to make you comfortable because we can't win unless I like submit to your understanding of this. Mm -hmm. David Feldman, that my friend was a paradigm shift. And I mean, as in, I felt like I had been punched in the gut. I still remember, I like, I felt like the whole thing was swirling. I began to cry and I was crying because I had hurt somebody I loved and respected because I had been so profoundly insulting. I didn't mean or intend to be insulting, but the impact was surely profoundly insulting and degrading. And I was angry at the society that had done that to me because I am in fact a good person, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And that's when I realized that, and, and uh, Ed, Eugene Deb said it best, if there is ever a poor class, I am in it. If there is ever like, that's when I understood we have to actually build a mass movement where we don't denigrate one's identity and position because one's identity and position is literally how they see the world. But I will never see the world through a black woman's eyes and she will never be able to see the world through a poor white working class male's eyes. But together we can heal each other. That's why I think it's so important that we have right. an understanding of that interlocking uh, jigsaw puzzle and understand that the solution is a new system. Let's do this. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No, no, I, I want to continue on this. I, I want to next week talk about the four pieces of the puzzle, white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, and patriarchy, because it really is a way of seeing the world through four separate lenses that are interrelated. Speaking to class reductionism and and i i think that i still am a, a class reductionist that i but the the one thing that is so important to keep in mind about a rising tide lifts all boats and a rising tide will wash away everybody's identity as we all succeed and there won't be bigotry the most bigoted people I know are millionaires. So the most bigoted people I know are the people I've worked for. The most bigoted people are in country clubs and gated communities. So how can anybody say the reason people vote against their own self-interests because they're racist. All we have to do is give them a good education and give them money and they won't be homophobic, misogynistic and white supremacists. Then how do you explain that all the bigotry flows from the top down, not the bottom up? It's separate. It's separate from class. Well, this sounds like a good uh, way to bring Dr. Fraud into the conversation. Yes. Well, let me thank you. And uh, thank you, David Cobb. Let me bring in Dr. Harriet Fraud. She is Hi. the ho host of Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. Welcome, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Hi. 
I'm a host of It's Not Just In Your Head with Max Golding. Right. Here I am, and glad to be here and glad to learn from you, David. Oh, that's so kind of you to say. Although, she was talking about me. Hang on for one second. She was talking about me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Well I have to played. steal. I have to steal the compliments wherever they are. Hey, man, that's right. Sop it up. Look, I'm from the south. I know to sop up. Like you, you need a biscuit to sop gravy, son. Like you did good. That was well played. Yeah. But I, I like. Uh, we missed you last week, uh, Harriet. Uh, and unfortunately, and I'm really excited to say, I have to get off the call because I actually am meeting with folks at the California Public Banking Alliance. We are in the final stages of negotiating the rules to promulgate how the first public banks in a hundred years are going to happen. And let me just really quickly say, you yeah. know, so when we pass that cutting edge law, and I'm honored that I had a small role in helping to draft it and lobby for it. California bill AB 857 that actually uh, creates up to 10 local or regional public banks cutting edge the first time in a hundred years that that's been possible. But remember that's, enabling statute, right? So now, uh-oh, now the fight shifts to the Department of Financial uh, Protection and Innovation, like the, 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 the bureaucratic regulators. And as a lawyer, I can tell you, there are rules and then there are rules. In other words, we could, the three of us could very easily create a set of rules that makes it almost impossible to do something, or we can make rules that make it super easy to do something. Here's the thing. We in the public banking movement went to those regulators and said, the legislature said that they wanted to create an experiment of public banks. Uh, public banks serve the public good. You should make it easy to create these public banks, right? That was our argument. Wall Street lobbyists came and said, oh no, banks are public money and they are dangerous. And you know, if you lose the public trust, like, oh my God, the whole house of cards could come. You should make it much harder to create a public bank. To their credit, the, the, the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation played it right down the middle, or at least they are so far. In other words, they said, look, banks are banks. Public banks are publicly owned to be sure, but they're still banks. And they're right about that. And so what they're saying is, we're, it looks like they're not gonna make it any harder to create a public bank, they're not gonna make it any easier, which means the capitalization, is, like it's hard to create a bank, right? It is not easy to do. All to say, I've gotta jump because we're, we're, we're having a strategy session to take the next level, but it's looking really good. And I honestly expect by 2022, I'm gonna be able to, to come onto this program and maybe I'll bring somebody else from the public banking movement uh, that will start the pro like we're going to see a public bank chartered in either Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, or uh, uh, LA, San Francisco, or, or or Oakland. Those are the three that are going to be. One of those are going to be the first public bank in a hundred years. Mark my words. Great. I got a job. Thank you so much, David Cobb. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Doctor Harriet Fraud joins us, and Bye. always great to see David Cobb. Let's talk about COVID, America, and rape in the next half hour. And we'll take questions. I always hog you if you would like to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud in the Zoom room, raise your hand. I know that people complain that uh, I don't open up 
the floor for questions when you're on. So please raise your hand if you'd like to talk to Dr. Fraud if you're in the Zoom room. COVID, America is leading the world in COVID cases. Yes, it is. Although we are only about a quarter of the world's population, we have about 20% of the COVID cases. And that's really quite remarkable. It's, it's almost five times, you know, four or five times as many COVID cases as would be per population. You know, we are the world leaders in those two areas, COVID and rape, mm -hmm. oh, as well as armaments. That's very important. We do produce more weapons and have more money dedicated to weapons. And those right. things are related. You know, one of the things that I have been thinking about when I think about how we're the world leaders in rape is, okay, what's the different, what, what is one thing like the world leaders in arms manufacture have to do with the other? And I looked at where do, you know, what is the biggest concentration of rape in the United States? That's the armed forces. Or in prison. I mean, that's what conservatives prison, will say. Another, right. Prison, although they don't um, tabulate those very well. But of course, uh, most of the rapes in the military, 76% are not reported also, even though there's a right. wild amount of rape in the military that are reported. But I realized that what it, a rape does is the same as a capitalist invasion. You come in, you take over, you invade, you come from the inside out, you conquer, and you assert yourself. Wow. And that's exactly what you do in rape. And some of these um, evangelicals preach, evangelical ministers actually advocate sex as rape, which is very interesting. There's a guy in Moscow, Idaho, who has a, um, he has a megachurch, and he says that this idea of a mutual pleasure party in sex is the wrong idea. A man conquers, invades, and plants his seed. A woman receives, accedes to the man's will. That's rape. And there is a model of the, you know, of conquering and invading. And one of the things that's relevant, I think, is that in 1452, the reigning pope at the time gave permission to explorers. If you find any people that are not Christian, you have the right to conquer and invade those people in the name of Christianity. And that's so, really parallel to what this my, uh, minister in Moscow, Idaho, is doing. In the name of Christianity, you can rape. Because that the principle that you go in, you invade, you conquer, and you dominate. Because that is your mission here. That is your right. Is one of the reasons I think the United States is the world rape leader, and that's according to the Harvard Medical School studies. And I think that's one of the reasons that rape is not taken too seriously. 60% of the New York rape cases, and New York's more sophisticated there, are never 
taken seriously and never processed because uh, according to the victims, they're asked to do things that they feel terrible doing. Then when they say, I don't want to do that, they throw the case out. Right. So the, the, the conservative Christian would say that kind of sex that the megachurch preaches is human nature. That's uh, men, warriors have been raping the, the captives since the Bible. That, 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 that is an animal. I'm yeah. sorry? God tells them to go in right. and take the virgins for yourselves. But, but right. they would say, this is what I've heard. They will say that men view sex as an act of aggression and that it's human nature. Yeah, but if you read um, the most thorough book on gender, it's called The Gender Brain, The Gendered Brain by Gina Rippon, where she goes over all the studies in this big fat volume. There really, there are no psychological results of gender. Mm -hmm. That's socialization. That's what I was going to ask you. So that we, we say with sex... Are, we're born with our for you know fetish organs, whatever. Yeah. But we're born by the time our you know by the time we're four, we're imprinted. Right between one and a half to three is when gender definitions crystallize in the child's brain, and, and sexual taste is imprinted by those first those formative years in the relationship between the child and the mother and the father. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. But the main thing that's defined is gender. And they tested by putting um, little electrodes on children and seeing how they respond to male characters, to female characters, from traditionally male to traditionally female things, to see because once a child defines him, her, or themselves as male or female, they attend to the messages in the culture that go with that gender definition. Look, from the minute you're hot out of the womb, they don't say it's a baby and it's a whole baby that's got all its parts. They say it's a boy, it's a girl, right? Mm -hmm. Things are given in pink or in blue. And they've done studies of the nurses interacting with the little bundles that are just born. And with the girls, they say, oh, you're so cute, you're so pretty, and they're, oh, aren't you the little strong one for a little boy? Right. So that the second they're in the world, they're related to differently on the basis of their sexual organs. And those children who have ambiguous sex identity, gender, well, they have ambiguous sexual identity. There's a malfunctioning of the adrenal gland that makes the sex difficult to determine. And those children, this was written up in John, at Johns Hopkins, those children who were actually chromosomally and hormonally male, but were brought up as female, are not <laughs> masculine. So what, let me You're just take, can, I, can I take a side tour here? Sure. Just, just a little detour, because uh, I don't pay attention to, like, uh, when somebody says gender is a fact, I don't pay enough attention to this conversation because 
there's, there, there are only so many hours in the day and I'm worried about Build Back Better. And my feeling on transgender Americans is, are they safe? Are they happy? Are they being hired? I don't want to debate right. gender. And I, it, it, I only care that the transgender youth are safe, secure, and thriving. I don't... So, but a conversation has arisen in the past 10 days about somebody saying gender is a fact. Is that true? Is gender a fact? It becomes a fact by about three years of age. You know what gender is assigned to you and you start attending to the behaviors of that gender. So, but, but if you remove the societal, removing societal dictates, is gender a biological fact? And what no, is gender? Not. What it's is a gender? Biological fact. I'm sorry. Sex is one thing. I'm sex sorry? are the sex organs. Gender are the meanings attached to those organs, which depend on the society you're in. For example, in Victorian society, women who got sexual pleasure were considered deviant because the meaning of female virtue was you didn't feel anything. That changes. So what does gender mean? Gender are the social meanings attached to your biological organs. The social and psychological meanings. So there is, so gender can't be a fact then? No, it's, it's, it can't be a, a, a biological fact. It's a social phenomenon. And we've decided as a culture, if you have these organs, you are this gender. Exactly. And in some societies, like in Lapland, there are certain behaviors around reindeer herding. That I mean, you lost me at Lapland. The minute you said Lapland, I'm off making a joke. I'm, let, me, let, me, yeah, right, let, me, let me get no, back to okay. Where the lap dance was okay, invented right. with the reindeer, whatever. Um, Their currency is they, a rolled up dollar bill in Lapland. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. In any case, it's female are assigned certain jobs of sewing the leathers and curing them and so on, and males are assigned others of herding the reindeer. But if a family doesn't have a male, they grow, then a female becomes the male and does the male things in the family. Right. So right. It is a social role. It is a social identification. It is a psychological social role. It's not a biological necessity at all. So what is the, again, this detour is important to me, but it involves kind of what we're talking about. What is the conversation that we should be having about transgender people? What is the only thing we should be discussing when it comes to transgender people? I think we should be discussing that people should be able to do what they want. If they want to pee in the ladies' room or the men's room, let them do it. Who are so they what? hurting? Who are they hurting? Nobody. No one. It's just the way all arbitrary divisions between people should be eliminated. And that's an arbitrary division. And it's a, a chance to hate someone. What we should be saying is what matters is people's humanity together. Not where they go to the bathroom. And, and we're finding, we finally found maybe a transgender rapist. And in in I was reading, they, they finally found maybe a case where somebody used the bathroom and exposed them. I mean, the, the, you have to, re it's like guns. Like, it's like 
I, I subscribe to a newsletter that tells me all the time somebody stopped a home invasion with a gun. Non-existence. It's like it no, never, it nobody ever stops a home invasion with a gun. There's like, it's anecdotal. Once every three months, right. they think well, somebody stopped people it. People kill each other because they're angry and they have a gun right. in the house. That's what they do. Or have accidents or the kids shoot other kids or whatever. That's right. These are social messages that have an agenda behind them. But there is no biological agenda behind gender. Sex organs are different. Gender behaviors are not biologically assigned. They're psychologically and sociologically attributed and assigned. And so what are your people are afraid of what? That their child might be ambiguous and sorting it out and that there is there are lefties who are trying to push your Confused, baby, shop, yeah, confused to, to become. They're not really afraid of that. They're afraid that American society is breaking down, that the white middle class doesn't exist anymore, that their positions of superiority are financially are eroded by their proletarian, you know, their proletarian or proletarian identity. That they don't have the little grocery store and the little hardware store and the little shoe store that gave them status in the community. They're workers at Walmart that's taken over everything. But, but you know, if, and they're nobody. if that's Ber what they're worried about. If Bernie were here, one of the reasons Bernie is, I think, the most important politician in my lifetime, he would he would try to understand people who are he would allay the concerns right. of people who are afraid of transgender people. He, right. For example, you could if I if it were the 1860s and you're, you know, the Civil War, you could you could say to a plantation owner, I understand that your way of life is about to change. You're going to lose your property. Well, you're going to lose That's your right. wealth and that this will affect you. But we have some programs in place that if you free your slaves to blah, 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 blah. He, that, that's what Bernie would do if he were trying to stop. That's uh, right. You can understand without forgiving or right. allowing. And you can understand why people channel their distrust of the United States, their distrust of change onto whatever victim they choose. But I don't understand the trend. I don't, I, what I don't understand is why people are so caught up in, like, like what trend. What would Bernie say to, you know, if he, if he were doing a town hall, what would Bernie say to somebody who says, I don't want to share a bathroom with a transgender American, or I don't want a trans, I don't want somebody who used to be, identify as a boy, now who identifies as a, a woman, competing in female sports because they're built. To, what would Bernie say? Would he recognize their concerns? How would you? Say, I understand what's frightening you. Gender. Gender is changing in the United States as men's position as the dominant bread earners and the dominators are, is threatened. Now that corporations abandoned America and 
women have to work and want to work, they, men's position in, and therefore men don't get family wages and women have to go to work, men's position as financial controllers of the household is eroded. It's scary. It's scary when as a woman you don't think you'll be supported for the rest of your life because you got married to somebody and you were white and they had a good factory job. And it's scary for men not to feel like you are the king of your manor because they're all financially dependent on you and your wife won't leave because she'd starve. You know, that's scary. Your position is eroded. What you have is a possibility of connection and fellowship and sisterhood on a level that you never imagined in a shared and better country. That you, you know, that's something to look forward to. And so being a class reductionist, which I'm not, I I think at one point, who cares? I might have been. But a rising tide, if you're a transgender person, you're you're more in terms of class, you're more likely to end up on the streets. You're not going to get rented to and you're not going to be hired. So there is a class element you will be financially discriminated against if you're apparently transgender if it doesn't show nobody will know but you know if you're an apparent transgender person you'll be discriminated against and looked at in another way this whole thing is just silly it's silly who cares you know, in the women's room, women shut the door anyway. And so what? The people are peeing. In Europe, men's and women's bathrooms were the same thing all the time. You know, Amy Sedaris has something which might not be politically correct, but it makes fun of the whole thing, which I love. Jack and Jill went up the hill so Jack could see Jill's fanny. But Jack got a shock. And a face full of cock because Jill was a fucking tranny. <laughs> the word tranny, yeah. tranny is problematic, but it depends who's saying it. You know, it just yeah. makes you laugh. Right. The whole thing is silly. And who yet cares? it's. But we make the mistake. Who care that it's symbolic of your gender position being eroded and your security in life and identification? being changed and you being frightened. Right. The the problem is when I dismiss this stuff as bigoted and homophobic and transphobic and stupid, it doesn't go away. I can ignore Tucker Carlson, but he's going to keep saying these things. And before you know it, there's like overwhelming fake evidence and fake arguments but you go, what? You know. Uh, yeah, well, you don't control the media, unfortunately. I wish you did. Right. I mean, what it comes down to is that the capitalist system has a capitalist media, and there's a lot of money in misinforming people. And so they do, as David Zuckerman shows us, makes a profit to put this stuff out. Oh, oh so Mark, Mark Zucker. Uh, Mark. Yeah. uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg. Yeah, Zuckerberg. But David Zucker from Airplane, who's a rabid conservative, penned a piece in the 
I think that's in the in the Washington, not the Washington, the New that's York. That's what confused me. Yeah, Mark yeah. About yeah. how he couldn't do airplane now. Some of the jokes that he did. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, so what? So People what? People don't realize that they've been insulted and they don't want to be insulted right. anymore. Okay. Right. It's okay. of a time. There's a great, I watch it, there's a great uh, W.C. Fields movie where he plays yeah. a dentist and it is rape. It is funny. It's rape. I mean, he is drilling the the woman with the, with the drill and her legs are sprayed and he is raping his patient. And I don't remember that one. <laughs> oh, it, well, it's probably, you know, it's incredible because it doesn't age well. It's amazing that. No, it's from a different it's time. It's from a different time. It wasn't right back then, but he didn't know any better. And it's of a time. You And I don't think it should be canceled. I, I don't think, I think you do what. Turner Classic Movies did with Gone with the Wind. It's right. th this was this context. Is, movie. Yeah, this is what it was, and this is a this is not true. Right. There were no there no such thing as a happy house slave. That, you right. Know. And if there were no money in it, we wouldn't be deceived on the level that we are. And if there were a real, um, we had a real strong communist and socialist presence. We would have those alternative channels. We don't. Right. Those alternative parties, those alternative channels. We don't have that. I have another question, then I will get back to rape and COVID. The, the, the end game for Stalin and the Russians was not to get rid of money, correct? No, it was the end game was supposed to be a communist society, which they didn't achieve, you know, right. where there was no class and so on. And they declared it, Stalin declared it, but it didn't exist. What Stalin did was they created a class of bureaucrats that took the profit and the extra and made all the decisions, taking the hands out of the, the money that they earned out of the hands of the people who earned it. Right. If they'd had co-ops, it would have been a different thing. Right. But did, did, somebody was saying to me that Karl Marx wanted to eliminate all forms of money in a Marxist utopia. Do they get rid of money? Is what that they do is they get they get rid of an employee employer class. So those class lines are gone. Everybody's a worker together. Right. Accountability as workers. But they don't mow down your individualism. They, no, they don't, and they don't, you know, socialize your toothbrush. Right. But you're you're still a person as you are when you're in a co-op. And and people's, if somebody is a genius, they're recognized as such, and make a contribution. Right. But then they don't patent it and use it only for themselves. Right. The idea is to better the society and everyone around you and be connected. Now, the idea is one thing, the realization is another. The Paris Commune was much closer to the ideal, even though it didn't last very long, but it was a lot closer than Stalin's Russia, which created a class society. And of course they got freaked. They, got, they had a civil war 
right after World War I, and then four nations invaded them, the United States, Germany, Japan, and who was the last? I forgot the other one, but the four nations invaded them, and they didn't feel they could spend a lot of time on social experiments because they had to de- fit constantly be on the defensive right. in a hostile capitalist world. And they still made tremendous leaps. They made huge mistakes, but they housed everyone. Women could be beaten to death when that revolution happened. And they're equal citizens with subsidy for childcare and kitchens and and home care and all sorts of things that they achieved that nobody else had. They had women's conferences with women from all over. They had a commissioner of women. They had the first cabinet minister in the world, Alexandra Kolontai, who was exiled by Stalin. But I mean, it made tremendous strides. They educated their population, which were the most ignorant backward people in Europe and then they became the second world power. It's like China, mm-hmm. you know, who came from being the most backward, poverty-stricken nation with people in extreme poverty to being the second power in the world and taking 880 million people from poverty. Right. And for all their authoritarian things that I don't like, their new impulse is what they call common prosperity bringing prosperity down to everyone Great. while the United States gets more and more unequal. And they're out competing us on everything except weapons production. And that's what we're going to be talking about with our next guest. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host with Max Golding of It's Not Just In Your Head. Capitalism hits home and it's not just in your head. And how do people contact you? hfraud at gmail.com is the best. Fantastic. We love you. We're so glad to see you. I love being here. I miss you you. so much. Thank you. We missed you last week. We do. Thank you, Dr. Fraud. Coming up, we're going to uh, go to to Canada to talk to uh, Michael Clare. But first, let's do, if, if you have, let me very quickly bring in Dan to do Community Billboard. uh, If you don't mind, let me bring Dan in here. Are you there, Dan? Here he is. I'm here. Where are you, sir? I'm here. Right. Uh, Dr. Uh, Adnan Hussein and uh, Michael Clare are here. I have a feeling you guys are going to go longer than a half hour. I would assume there's a lot to talk about. But let's quickly do community billboard and talk about the people in our community. What do you have for us today, Dan Frankenberger? Well, we have a message from Valley Vox Theater uh, following a very successful Sin Femme Summer series and a hiatus from the long-awaited re-carpeting of the theater. Valley Vox returns at 4.30 on Saturday for a Halloween spooktacular. Okay. And they are uh, following an entrancing pre-show assembled by projectionist Mike Frankie. Uh, they're going to screen The Old Dark House, starring Boris Karloff and directed by Universal Monster Star maker James Whale, plus an Adams Family special featuring Don Rickles and an old-time radio play from the Valley Vox vault. Fantastic. So, uh, you, you can contact them at, at Valley Vox on Twitter or email them at valleyvoxtheater at gmail.com for a free Zoom link. And I sent you uh, some pictures a few minutes ago. Did you? Yes, I did. Okay or... Let, let's do oh. this. 
All right. All right. This looks like, oh, my God. Look that at this. That is from Glenn Kostick. Uh, he's back at it again, baking his bread. So this is a, a wheat bread with a mixture of seeds on top, which we see that once in a while from him, and it looks delicious That's as beautiful. always. Yeah. Uh, the, the next picture is from Fwad. And he and some friends were in Seattle the other day, and this was a drone photo from one of their favorite places uh, called Rattlesnake Lake. So that's looks dry. Awesome. Yeah. Well, they said they were. Uh, he was broadcasting live from office hours in that area. I didn't catch it, but and was that his drone? Uh, it was his friend's drone. Uh, wow. He was on the ground. Wow, it's pretty cool. My listeners love drones. That's why they listen to me. Mm. I drone on and on. <laughs> Okay, what do we have here? What? That's um, fake. That's, there's no place like that exists. Th this is from Dave and PA, as you might guess. Uh, last week on one of the shows, I mentioned uh, hoping to get some pictures of the of the trees around his Airbnb property starting to turn for fall, and you can start to see the colors are beautiful. are changing there. Okay, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. You and I are going to stay there as we go on our yep. crime spree. Who is that? Handsome. This, is, this picture is also from Dave in Pennsylvania. He said uh, his cat has become a David Feldman Discord fan. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the on the phone there, it's David Feldman's Discord. Oh, look at that! What's the cat's name? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Oh boy, here we go. What is that? So, lastly, uh, we're promoting uh, Kristen Calabrese's art exhibition. Yes. that's going on in LA. Um, this is a this is actually a painting. That's a painting. That's a painting. So her, no, her that's a phone. That's no way. Yeah, this piece is called Saving Eggs. So it, for those listening, it's a it's a image of a kitchen sink with some dirty dishes in it and a dish drying rack and some plants and some eggshells being saved on behind the counter. That is amazing. Yeah, it's we have to show that. some professor Mary Professor Marianne is coming up after this. She's been posting her paintings online. They're unbelievable. Yep. So her show is going on in L.A. It's Chartreuse. On, uh, yep, Chartreuse. And it's going. Uh, it's running until uh, November 21st, and it's going on from 6 to 8 every evening on 7503 West Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Great. And one last message on a somber note. We have a message from a friend of the show, Invisible Ninja, where he had a, a family member pass away, Mary Lynn, and we wanted to extend some good wishes to her. And for any trans people out there having a hard time, uh, reach out to supportive people and groups, and you are normal and you are loved. Say, say that, is there, and for it, say that out loud, please. Let's get that. Is there yeah. a number we can put on the board? Um, there is a link that was sent to me that I can put up there, but it was to the obituary. I don't know if that would be appropriate or not. What, was this person but, a transgender person? Yes. And they took their own life. And, you know, we were talking about that a lot of the last yes. week or so. Uh, the only thing that matters is keeping them loved and safe. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger. Thank you. Uh, the only conversation Dave Chappelle should be concerning himself with when it comes to transgender people is, are they loved and are they safe? Everything else is violence. Let us now go on that note. <laughs> let's go to Professor Adnan Hussein, who is chairman of the religion department. 
in Kingston, Ontario, over at Queen's University. And you also attended Deep Springs College, which was featured on 60 Minutes. And every college should be like Deep Springs. Hello, Professor Adnan Hussein. Sorry Hi, to keep you waiting. Six you. minutes. Not that that's it's getting not tired. too bad. Not yes. too bad. Yeah. Uh, close enough for government work. Uh, I'm afraid, however, our segment here is not necessarily going to cheer people up. It may alarm you, uh, and maybe that's uh, part of the point. But um, uh, recently, on a panel about the uh, end of U.S. Uh, occupation uh, and military engagement in Afghanistan, I had the really great fortune to meet uh, Michael Clare, uh, who's joining us today. Um, and um, he told me about a very important initiative that he's involved with called the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy. In fact, he's a founder of it. And um, I thought it would be really a good idea um, to discuss uh, the work of this committee and why it's so important that we pay attention to these things with him. And so uh, I just want to introduce and tell people, if you don't already know who uh, he is, that he is a professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C. Many of you may have read um, his frequent uh, columns as defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Um, he also writes for Tom Dispatch, which is a wonderful site. And uh, he has a very interesting piece there that maybe we'll talk a little bit about in this context. And he's the author of about 15 books on military, geopolitical, and resource affairs, including Resource Wars, Blood and Oil, The Dangers and Consequences of America's Growing Petroleum Dependency, and most recently, from 2019, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. So, uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us to talk about uh, your important work uh, today on The David Feldman Show. Oh, I'm pleased to have this opportunity to talk with you folks. Well, you've been doing a lot of work um, recently on U.S.-China relations, um, and um Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why you're so concerned about the state of U.S.-China relations, in fact, even alarmed uh, uh, by the situation. Well, bear, bear in mind that I taught peace and conflict studies for the past 40 odd years. And so I, I, follow, I follow these things. And you, you, you get to have uh, sensory awareness of trends. And, uh, you know, for the past 20 odd years, we've been worried about conflict in in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, conflict arising from uh, the clash between the West and and Islam in that part of the world and and U.S. intervention, oil, and all those things that are, that we, we, we're familiar with. But I sensed in the past five years that the U.S. military was moving away from that concern and was was considering China as its primary enemy uh, adversary and move moving American elites to adopt that view. And now, you know, at the final stages of the of the Trump administration and the Biden administration, that is now the prevailing view in Washington, that China is our top adversary, overshadowing everything else. 
and will be so for the rest of this century. And that America as a nation has to mobilize all its resources, military, diplomatic, technological, economic, everything to prevent China from rising uh, to equal status with this country. That is the foreign policy, the military policy of the U.S. And the, the problem is that China has a vote in this discussion and the Chinese people are not going to accept, uh, you know, after overcoming poverty and, and becoming a, a great economic power, are not going to accept being hemmed in by the U.S. and kept its second-class status. Mm-hmm. And there, thereupon, you, you have a, a tremendous source of friction. And on top of that, there, 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 are, there are issues in contention that could provoke a clash, Taiwan, especially the South China Sea. So you, you have this underlying stress and hostility and actual flashpoints that could trigger conflict. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with that. Well, yes, I mean, uh, I want to get into some of those specifics. I'm sure David will want to as well. But, you know, something you said there just triggered a question about this posture that the United States is taking. And you're pointing out that this is something that uh, the establishment or the, you know, polit- policy establishment, the foreign policy elites that set the agenda for U.S. Uh, policy, as well as the Pentagon and uh, those concerned with military affairs, um, you know, really have determined that China is a threat because of their growing strength and power um, and that they may be a challenge to the U.S. Uh, One question I have is, why is it such an imperative of U.S. policy that the U.S. has to be the dominant and sole dominant hmm. power. I mean, this seems a presumption that is bound to run into, you know, and create conflict um, as nations rise and fall. If your ideology is that you must be the dominant power, it seems like this is a recipe for, for, for conflict. Well, it's absolutely a recipe for conflict. And I think to understand it, you have to spend time in Washington, D.C. You know, I worked for a think tank in Washington, and I now travel there periodically on a regular basis and spend time listening to these foreign policy elites. They talk differently than the rest of us outside of Washington, and they think differently. There's a belt, you know, inside the beltway mode of thinking. Um, and they don't take into consideration what most people outside the Beltway think. You, you, so you have to begin with that premise mm-hmm. that this is a self-appointed, self-replicating elite, mostly white male. Uh, you know, let's start there, and and um, mostly educated at elite institutions, going back for generations: Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And they have a certain mindset that that America is the chosen nation, mm-hmm. you know, that 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 the U.S. has been chosen by the almighty to uh, shed light to the world one way or another. Um, and the thought that there could be another power uh, that is not Western in origin uh, that could play an equal or greater role in the world. Uh, is unfathomable to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, not that he, um, well, you know, Samuel Huntington in his Clash of Civilizations was really um, kind of interested in the, you know, the shape of the post-Cold War uh, geopolitically. What would it look like? And, um, you know, he basically identified the Islamic world and China as the two rival civilizations uh, with which the U.S. and Western civilization, as he thought of it, you know, might find itself or would necessarily find itself in in conflict. And you could say that the first 20 odd years or so, um, maybe almost 30 years after the end of the Cold War, that uh, the U.S. sort of confronted the Islamic world in its competition for you know, control of oil, but, you know, on other bases and that now, you know, that other prediction of his is sort of this almost self-fulfilling prophecy is, is, is emerging. Um, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Ex exactly. I mean, I don't agree with it either. I think, it, but, you know, I think the right wing definitely seems to take, uh, um, you know, he's he's sort of provided, I think, the direction for right wing foreign policy uh, establishment. They definitely have taken this up. Yeah, I, I don't think that's so. Um, uh, the, the, first of all, when I'm talking about this foreign policy consensus, there's nothing right wing about it. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a Democrat, liberal, uh, Republican consensus. Uh, that that believes in in, in America's uh, chosen right to be the dominant world power, um, so it's as liberal as much as it is Republican. So, glad you point that out. Yes, yeah, and yeah, I could give plenty of ex you know. Bill Clinton was Obama did completely. Uh, in alignment with that perspective. Um, well, and in fact, we're not seeing that the Biden administration is doing anything differently, even no. keeping the tariffs, uh, you know, Trump's tariffs on China has not uh, changed that policy at all. And, you know, when I, I feel I have a stake in this, I had an article in the same issue of foreign affairs that had uh, that original article. Right about the clash of civilizations. And my article was about the emerging naval arms race in the South China Sea and this, mm. you know, in the, and between China and its neighboring countries, which is now the dominant world uh, narrative. Uh, uh, so uh, I think that he was wrong. Yes. yes. Uh, and, but it, it's a convenient argument, but it, it, excludes, for example, the fact that America's principal ally in the Middle East is the most extreme Islamist power other than the Taliban. Right. The fathers of the Taliban. That's right. Uh, the Saudi regime. Exactly. So uh, I, I, I think that's just something that's used to hide the essence of American policy, which is classic geopolitics, mm -hmm. the, the pursuit of power, wealth, and resources. And the fact is that China and the U.S. are engaged in a struggle, a global struggle for control over wealth, power, and resources, Indeed. as was Rome and Carthage back in the day, and, and Britain and Germany. Um, and that's, I'm saying that's the way elites see it, mm -hmm. in that 
in that context. Right. David, you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 this is thank you for doing this. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what you just said the the geopolitical control for wealth and resources, that's so ingrained into our way of life here in America that. So what do you say to conservatives who maintain that history insists nature abhors a vacuum that if we don't dominate the world, somebody else will and we will pay an economic price if the Belts and Roads Initiative grows and expands. What do you say to Americans who say who believe that our way of life will be affected if China becomes the preeminent superpower? Well, first of all, I, I, I don't take seriously the notion that China will become the preeminent superpower. I don't think there's any chance of that. So that's a whole discussion we could have. I think all that is exaggerated and fabricated. China has too many internal weaknesses uh, to achieve that status. And it's so far behind us in many key areas. So I, I don't think that China's going to become the dominant superpower. The question before the American people is, how high a price do you want to pay for an unnecessary Cold War with China that could lead to World War III? How high a price do you want to pay for that? And I, I think the price that we will pay for that is so much higher than the cost, the risk we take of cooperating with China on key issues like climate change. I've just written an article, uh, which you could get from The Nation tomorrow or TomDispatch.com today, that makes the argument that if the U.S. and China do not cooperate on climate change, you could kiss the planet goodbye. You know, your grandchildren are going to burn as in, in a hellish planet. There's, there's no question about that. I dare anybody to prove me wrong on that. There's no chance on hell you could do it. And I could say that because I just wrote a book uh, called uh, All Hell Breaking Loose based on Pentagon documents. This is the view of America's military and intelligence, the, the, the people the conservatives turn to, the leadership, the generals and admirals. That's what they say. Yeah, that uh, uh, article is The Burning Future of U.S.-China Relations. Uh, people should go uh, read that. Um, you've been talking quite a lot about uh, this uh, military buildup and arms race. That's often been seen as America's one great advantage, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that even if there was outsourcing and de the decline of America's industrial base and so on, that nonetheless, it had this de decisive military advantage. Um, is there a cold uh, sort of an arms race going on between the U.S. and China? How would you characterize the state of that uh, situation? Well, that's a very good question, uh, and there's there's no doubt that there's an arms race underway. That China aspires uh, to to match the U.S. in naval capabilities in the Pacific, uh, in particular. Uh, one, one one person wrote in the chat: Does does China aspire to, to be a, a global superpower? I don't think so. I think China aspires to be the dominant power in Asia. And, and for that to happen, 
it has to be able to overpower the U.S. Navy in the Pacific. So there's no doubt there's a naval arms race underway. And the U.S. has uh, many advantages, and China has advantages. Uh, The U.S. uh, relies a great deal on aircraft carriers, which China is 50, 100 years behind us in aircraft carrier technology, uh, trying to catch up. But they're compensating by uh, by having um, intermediate-range missiles, which could attack American aircraft carriers, uh, making them a liability. So what do we owe Taiwan? What about Taiwan? What does America owe Taiwan? Owe Taiwan? In terms of its defense. And, the, and she, I believe, has hinted that there's, they'll be reunited peacefully, I believe, the leader of China, she has said. But well, is uh, that a legitimate flashpoint, Taiwan? Absolutely. We're, we're talking World War III territory here because, uh, but the legal status of U.S. guarantee for Taiwan is in the, Taiwan Relations Act of 1980, which says that if if any country tries to resolve the Taiwan question by force, meaning China invading, the U.S. would consider that deeply disturbing, no words to that effect. But it doesn't say that, that the U.S. is obligated to come to Taiwan's defense. And this is called strategic ambiguity is, is it uh, is is it should america come to taiwan's defense should we pay attention to democracy in hong kong are these legitimate concerns absolutely uh my organization the committee for saying u.s china policy is very critical of china on hong kong and on Uh, Xinjiang province, where the Uyghur people live. Taiwan, uh, I I believe Taiwan is entitled to a democracy. What I don't think is that the U.S. should guarantee it's going to come to its defense without any kind of agreement between Taiwan and China beforehand. Uh, if, if, If the Taiwanese rush to independence, assuming the U.S. is going to come to their defense, this could provoke a war that could become nuclear very quickly. And and I think that would be catastrophic for everyone, including the Taiwanese. We we had a guest, Henry Huckamacki is going to be on the show later. He had a guest, a columnist from McLean's up in Canada, who was discounting the quote, propaganda that the West is getting about the treatment of the Uyghurs. And Professor Hussein and I have gone back and forth curious as to people who are denying that the the Muslims in China are being rounded up and placed in work camps. What what do you know about this? So what I know is mainly from reports from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. You know, and I've worked on human rights issues for 50 years, most of my life. 
and you have to come to trust somebody. And I've come to trust Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch as being the most reliable. And they claim that abuse, widespread abuses are taking place. We post their reports on our website, saneuschinapolicy.org, and people can go to our website and see the links and go to those reports and read them and decide for themselves. But I find them persuasive. And to that, widespread abuse. Some people have come on this show and downplayed the term genocide for what's going on in Tibet. How bad is Tibet? Uh, Oh, horrible abuse, terrible abuses and violence occurred uh, historically in Tibet. Genocide, because I've worked on the issue of genocide, is a legal term. I prefer to use it in the legal sense, as defined by by the UN Convention on Genocide. What's happening, I think, in Tibet today and in, in Xinjiang is cultural genocide, the wiping out of a people's culture, language, traditions. Mind you, if you've been... Uh, following uh, what's happened in Canada, where we know that the government rounded up Native people and forced them to go to boarding school where they weren't allowed to speak their language and were tortured if they did, uh, that's what's happening in China and in Tibet. We Cultural have... Genocide. I, I, can you stick around, how, Professor Hussein? How are you... Yeah, sure. Oh, okay, good. Then let me just ask one more question, and then I'll be quiet. West exec, most of the the foreign policy of the Biden administration comes to us via West exec. Uh, so the minute the Biden administration took office, we were warned that a war with China is imminent, and the Pentagon, like a prosecutor, can indict a ham sandwich. We're, if they could show enough proof between the treatment of the Muslims, Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwan being threatened, you could easily gin up a war in America against China. And we are not talking to China. Our military attaches are not communicating. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff testified that he got on the phone with his equal in China when Trump was doing what he was doing and said, calm down, calm down, there's not going to be a war. Uh, The jury is still out as to how important the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, actually is. But we are not talking to China right now, are we? The Biden administration is not communicating with them. We're communicating whether that communication involves in a real honest exchange of ideas, a back and forth is another story. We are communicating, but I think, I think it's my side, you know, uh, we say what we don't like about you, and they say what we don't like about you. Uh, 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 that's not real communication. That's mutual propaganda speak. Uh, the one person who I think made a real attempt is John Kerry, who's a little bit of a hero. He's the White House climate envoy, 
I, I think he made a genuine attempt to reach, to communicate with the Chinese over uh, collaborating on climate change. And I, 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 I see that personally as the one way that we could avoid a trap of a war cycle is the necessity of cooperating on climate change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems that instead of uh, pursuing that sort of a productive policy um, that might be a benefit to the world and peace is uh, this new uh, defense pact that uh, the U.S. has established, AUKUS, and the sale of uh, U.S. nuclear submarines to Australia is a very provocative sort of move. And in fact, it reminds me very much of, as a historian, the Manila Pact, you know, these defense treaty organizations that the U.S. formed around the world with different regional sort of uh, security arrangements, um, like the Manila Pact of, uh, I think it was 1955, uh, was again an attempt to um, really restrict uh, communist China at the time, you know, communist China's um, regional uh, influence. Um, and this seems to be an, a, an attempt at doing the same sort of thing, uh, to take an aggressive posture and use the military as the way of achieving their, you know, political objectives in the, in, in the region. Um, how can we sort of turn back uh, towards more productive uh, kinds of engagement? What needs to what needs to happen? Uh, well, when you say we, that's an important that that's mm-hmm. that you have to dissect that word we. You know, I, I, if I if you and me and you know the colleagues we believe in we're in power i could tell you what we could do but we're not in power so so the we has to be questioned what what those of us not in power has to do is to try to influence those in power on this issue and and that that's what i'm trying to do is to uh, uh alert people the public about the dangers we face and tell people to tell their members of Congress uh, or whoever they could influence to to do something about this, to to um, speak against the militarization of U.S.-China relations. Mm-hmm. I, this is not. I, I'm not saying we embrace China and and uh, ignore the bad things that China does. I'm not saying that. But in, in a world where uh, we're so mutually interdependent, especially for planetary survival, climate survival, uh, you, you know, you, you have, we have to learn how to be critical on one hand, uh, but not, not so that it consumes all the air. Uh, we could be critical, but we have to collaborate with China. And that's the message we have to give to, to, to people in power. And let them know that if they don't move that direction, we're going to look for other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that seems like an important area. You've mentioned the climate cooperation, um, and you're, uh, you've just written this article that talks about, uh, I think, in very alarming terms, um, how without cooperation between U.S. and China, there's really no chance to reverse um, you know, the climate emergency and the disasters that await us. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what's at stake there and the nature of, um, 
you know, uh, climate policy? Uh, has there been any productive engagement on, on climate questions? There was actually during the Obama administration, uh, President Obama went to Beijing, I think 2009 or 2010, um, met with the previous president, Hu Jintao, and they set up commission, joint commissions to seek improvements in renewable technology. All got shut down when Trump came to power. Uh, so there is an opportunity there. Uh, for the U.S. and China to reestablish those cooperative relationships uh, on things like, um, you know, storage of uh, from wind power and solar power is an important issue. Batteries, more efficient automobile batteries. China's becoming the leading manufacturer of electric cars, and uh, that's the technology we're going to need. But we have something to contribute. Uh, so... Uh, there is that potential. Um, th- but if we don't cooperate, uh, then and work to reduce emissions, uh, there is the problem that China's the leading emitter of coal, the leading emitter of carbon dioxide from coal, I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, if China doesn't reduce its coal emissions, it's going to be very hard to meet the UN's target of keeping warming from uh, rising above two degrees above the pre-industrial level. If, and China needs to be urged in that direction. And if the U.S. is in a hostile stance towards China, they're not going to listen to us on this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I, I think uh, Kerry's mission has to be upgraded. And the more hostile message we send to China has to be quieted down to put the, the climate message first. And if, if we do that, then I think we can work with China to, as we draw down our own emissions in the U.S., uh, we can work with China to reduce its emissions. And that's really the, because the two of us are responsible for such a large share of global carbon emissions. That's the only way you're going to reach that two degree target. The rest of the world can't do it. Right, right. Um, that's that's just one of the huge uh, looming problems that uh, conflict between U.S. and China and the lack of a productive, cooperative relationship um, is costing uh, both U.S. and China and the world as a whole. I think another one um, that the same uh, U.S.-China policy, uh, uh, the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy has also identified are other big global problems like the pandemic that we're, yeah. we're dealing with as well is that, um, you know, there were opportunities and perhaps you can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what the cost of um, the suspicion and the hostility uh, has been when it comes to global health policy and stopping this pandemic. This is something that also deserves a lot of attention. I, I'm, I'm less familiar with virology than I am with climate change, to be honest. And there's there's a lot of debate about what happened in Wuhan in, you know, around uh, January 2010 and uh, 2020. Uh, and, and 
December 2019. And uh, I, I wish if, if, if relations between the U.S. and China had been better then, and there had been more cooperation between the medical establishments of the two countries, I think we could have prevented the global spread of COVID. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we didn't have that kind of cooperation. And now we're learning that there are going to be all kinds of var- variants. Uh, and you need global cooperation to identify these and prevent their spread. And, you know, that's another reason for, for cooperating with China, as, as with other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems that every one of these opportunities gets turned into a means for prosecuting, you know, advantage from, you know, one side or the other, but particularly, you know, the U.S. and the far right that really like to play upon the racism and xenophobia and suspicion, yeah. you know, that now they've turned this into uh, you know, a reason to continue to be even more suspicious of China is that is turning it into, uh, you know, not a kind of unfortunate failure uh, to stop it, but it becomes an opportunity for imagining in paranoid fashion that this is somehow, you know, deliberate by China or, you know, it, it feeds this kind of um, polemical uh, relationship and it just seems to exacerbate it rather than finding opportunities to come together. Yeah, but, uh, You have to be careful though to distinguish between the Republican right and the foreign policy blob in Washington. Hmm. Uh, the Republican right is using China as a hammer, a sledgehammer to go after the Democrats in the 2022 midterm election. Yes. They, don't, they, don't, they don't care about the lives of Americans and, and the costs that this is going to bring. They only care about, uh, you know, hurting, hurting Biden and the Democratic Party. And so they're using China and Taiwan as, as a sledgehammer to it. And, and so they'll find any they'll find anything and use it. So right, but the danger, but the danger of it seems to be is that you know uh, this definitely poisons the you know waters uh, and makes it much harder you know for actual good faith overtures to cooperate together. Even if we did turn away from this military militarized confrontation, is that China is sitting and watching all of this and imagines you know that you have a nation that is dedicated to a very hostile and aggressive stance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, you're you're. After- Absolutely right about that. All, all I meant to say is that the liberal plus conservative consensus to stop China is much more powerful. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to go in a few minutes. Maybe you have a, a final wrap up question I could. Well, I guess maybe just tell us a little bit uh, finally about uh, the how people can get involved in the activities of the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy. What kinds of things can people do to um, be part of the uh, potential solution here? Well, our, our committee is, is, is kind of a, tends to be, it, it intends to be a, a kind of a networking connection between uh, you know ordinary people out there uh, and people in Washington who are working more directly on on these issues. So 
uh, and and as an information source, so people could uh, come to our site, saneuschinapolicy.org. We have a, a, a statement that we ask people to sign. We provide information, and we post action alerts on coming legislation and what other organizations are doing in this field. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Michael, I, I'm really appreciative of you coming on and talking about this crucial issue um, that we have to get involved with. Uh, the dangers are so great, as you've been pointing out, uh, that we can't afford to um, ignore uh, not only the opportunity costs, but actually the spinning out of control situation could be so dangerous to all of us in the world. So thank you for the work you've been doing on it. And uh, we will look forward to supporting uh, the same U.S.-China policy uh, committee's work in any way that we can. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank well, you. Thank you. And thank both of you, David and Anand, for giving me this chance and, and a very good conversation. Please thank come you. back. And the best way for you to come back is if my listeners go to saneuspolicy.org and sign up and purchase All Hell Breaking Loose, the Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change by Michael T. Clare. That's K-L-A-R-E. Thank you so much, please. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're talking, uh, I don't know how you're doing on time, Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, I know that Professor Marianne Cummings is up next. Do you mind if we do a quick postmortem? How are you on time? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay on time this, this okay. evening. That, oh, that yeah. was uh, really interesting, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, how much of this is about the Dr. Strange loves? Professor Ann Lee, is, if you want to join us very quickly, uh, she mentioned the sale of that submarine mm -hmm. to Australia. We're in trouble with France because they lost out on the money. That's right. So how much of this, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that people look at this at, in terms of money and weapons. Are they that, how much of a role is money in all this? In, well, in it's, it's got a huge role. I mean, obviously, much of this, uh, as, as Michael was pointing out, is a contest for control over wealth and resources. And part of the U.S. strategy um, has been in the last couple of decades to leverage its military superiority and its military technology uh, into creating a web of alliances um, and markets for its, its military hardware that ties and binds those countries actually to U.S. policy geopolitically because you know, you end up getting involved with, you know, with this military pact, the AUKUS pact, the Australia, UK, US uh, pact that incidentally leaves out uh, Canada and New Zealand. Um, uh, and they're quite upset about being uh, left out of it. Um, 
you know, is is a way of creating a military alliance that also uh, works to ensure that there's a market for U.S. Uh, not only military hardware, but also the training and support services and the whole kind of set of capillaries involved in the military industrial complex. It ties these countries more closely into that network and continues to, you know, give the U.S. a kind of advantage economically, but also geopolitically, because they they can't really go against the U.S. now that their entire defense, uh, you know, is built upon this sort of level of cooperation and they need the U.S. technology support and training in order to use this uh, effect effectively. So uh, th there are things that go so well together uh, as a kind of strategy, it seems to me that is, you know, there's a lot that, you know, money has to do with it. Um, but sometimes you're not sure if that's just a positive outcome, you know, of the geopolitical interests or if sometimes those might be driving, you know, U.S. Uh, policy, uh, because that's one of the few advantages we seem to have uh, economically is, you know, tying people and making them dependent on our military hardware. You know, a malignant narcissist always has to have an enemy. There has to. Be, and and uh, Professor Ann Lee, can you hear us? Oh, yes. I, I was going to say, say thank you for joining us, by the way. Uh, speaking, speaking of which. Uh, you're not a malignant narcissist, but, you know, I've been in, I think all of us, you know, at one point or another, think somebody's out to get me. There has to be somebody, there has to be an enemy lurking out there who wants to destroy me. Is that a permanent state for a superpower? Does America have people or is, you know, our politicians say bad actors who are hell bent on destroying our way of life. I hear that over and over again. Every side of the political spectrum when they're running for office says there are bad actors out there who want to destroy our way of life. Sounds pretty paranoid. Are there bad no. actors out there? Does China? Does I mean, does Putin want to destroy us? No, he wants to destabilize us. I think that's it's in his interest to mess with the U.S. in whatever ways are possible. Trump so do is, we uh, have enemies? Do know. we have enemies? Well, we are our own enemies with all due respect to, you know, uh, uh, Walt Kelly. I, I I think that in the issue of... of that's a pogo Australia, reference, by the way. Yeah. I, <laughs> right. The Australians... Uh, this this recent thing is is really more of a posturing because it's about future submarines and in some ways it's maybe a, a negotiating ploy to use against the French. So it, it's really much more nuanced, I think. In other words, uh, the Australians will get perhaps U.S. subs, but they're not going to get them for another decade. This is, uh, and in fact, what they might get is transfers of old U.S. Virginia-class subs. Uh, the problem, of course, as I mentioned in the chat, is that they're, they're nuclear capable. I mean, not the power, but they can launch cruise missiles with up to, and, and not that we're going to, you know, but these are dialable uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of kilotons can can be launched by a single Virginia class sub. It, it is state of the art. 
in 10 years, it won't necessarily be state of the art. But the tradition in uh, such navies and, and the U.S. policy towards navies is we give them a lot of our hand, hand-me-downs. A lot of fleets are, and it is a, a competition between the East and the West relative to navies. I mean, in other words, the Russians also hand me down their, their, uh, some of their equipment as well. So it is, it appears like a Cold War thing, but it's not so easy like that. The Australians themselves are very much into the arms sales game. They're, they're, they have a huge military industrial complex relative to what they make. They don't make really big ticket items, but they make a lot of support material that, and, and, it's it's a you know it's a cash thing they it, they make a lot of money is china making money off weapon sales and do they have a military industrial complex oh indeed they do they they're they they have some very serious uh, prestige issues at at a variety of levels the aerospace industry you know is going to it's them against boeing in in that context in terms of domestic air air stuff but is that part of the belts and roads initiative or they're not just building dams but are they also arming the countries they're investing in uh no i don't think that that's as explicit but i think that there are uh they have to protect their interests in a variety of places where they're expanding to and you know that's but but i think they have a much uh, a different approach to it in other words they participate in in UN peacekeeping now, you know, they, they do things that uh, America does, doesn't do quite as much anymore. Right. And you can see how weird that appears to some folks in terms from a competitive point of view. But back to the, you know, I, I think that uh, there, it, it does follow on, I think, some very traditional lines. That's all. You know, the, the whole business of Australia versus Asia goes back to World War II. I mean, there are some things that are structurally still there and that, that lingered through, you know, their their defense establishment is built. They've had some issues with uh, uh, national security and espionage relative to to the PRC in Australia. So there's tension in, in, in that particular context as well. And it's, and it's not a unified position, needless to say. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't have a strict, uh, even though they have a wacky, you know, prime minister, you know, that could change at some moment. Uh, it, 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 what we have is a very fluid situation where, unfortunately, diplomacy has to start stepping in because China, in some of its own policies, truly believes that it owns the South China Sea. And that has to be negotiated not not by one or two nations, but literally, you know, 10 nations uh, to really talk about those, these things. Because right. they go back to the 17th, 16th, 17th century. The, uh, the provocations that we've read about in Taiwan, the Chinese were flying in Taiwanese airspace, but doesn't, aren't parts of mainland China, aren't they considered tai, Taiwan airspace? It's, it, what, what is the provocation? Are they provoking Taiwan? Uh, it seems more like seasonal play, with right. all due respect. It's, it's no different than the testing of, uh, of NATO, uh, NATO pact uh, 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 forces by the Russians. So just, they, this is a very standard you know, thing. I think that the press makes too much of the standard sort of 
well, we'll fly a we'll fly a squadron even closer because they're they unlike and not unlike the U.S. are just testing out you know what are the limits of our of the defenses. These are I, I it show us what you got. It. It's like two guys, and I mean guys. I rarely see well women do too on the highway. You know, you're, you're at a red light and you're revving up your engines. What do you got? What, what, and it's a way of, as you just said, exploring what your capabilities are. And then so we then our military industrial complex will make adjustments accordingly. These, these, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, Anne, you're right that these little feints and, um, you know, obvious uh, superficial competitions are things that the media makes far too much of. But what's ignored, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, what's ignored, I think, um, are the deeper kind of infrastructural uh, kinds of elements that um, are the real systems that kind of control money, for example, in the world, uh, you know, the technology um, and platform kinds of competitions, you know, how like Huawei and, you know, other sorts of um, uh, you know, platforms uh, like, well, like TikTok, etc., are seen as a threat to, you know, one of the only uh, areas that the U.S. has a kind of decisive Technol technological and cultural kind of advantage, you know, the, you know, social media companies and, and so on. Um, I remember when there was um, uh, real consternation, although the press didn't again talk about it so much, um, but when China was uh, able to put its own satellites into uh, space, right? You know, it's like there are certain key things that the U.S. in the post-Cold War period had kind of exclusive dominance over, you know, that was sort of hardwired into the way the world works. You know, its currency is the reserve currency. It's like, you know, uh, the, the only kind of power able to, you know, really dominate space. It, you know, is the one that has created the global platforms and social media and so on and so on. And these are being challenged. And those seem to me really the much bigger sort of threats than like a few planes flying too close to Taiwan kind of thing. No, no I, I agree with you that, that this is, these sectors are actually much more important. I, just to go back to uh, domestic airliner production, they have an entire several lines of of commercial aircraft that, that challenge uh, America's sort of dominance or uh, America and Airbus the, the sort of dominance for commercial aircraft. They have they have something that's almost identical to the 737, which mm. is sort of the, you know, it's like the F-150 of, of aircraft. Uh, and they're going to sell them to a whole bunch of countries. And, and you know, this is this is going to be an issue. But but to go back to your, what you originally said about Huawei, uh, yeah, Huawei is exactly an example of that. It is about global dominance, and it is about sort of, bifurcating the markets. I mean, it's a Cold War at a, at a slightly more commercial level. That, mm -hmm. that whole Huawei thing was not about the U.S. so much as it was also involving Canada and PRC, you know, in terms of arresting, uh, you know, functionaries. It, it, it was a hostage, literally was a hostage situation with all due respect. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's just crass in that sense. In other words, uh, diplomacy should have been deployed to sort of work through these kinds of issues. The problem, of course, is about reserve 
reserve currencies, about mm-hmm. loans, about the, the current financial situation, or whether there's going to be you know any kind of major global economic crisis, and and it could easily be brought on by brought on by some sort of climate problem, which which they are thinking about. But it is clear that we need to have more, you know, international cooperation rather than these small feints. That's why I think the sub issue is not quite as uh, uh, threatening. On the other hand, there's PR at work. I mean, when China launches a global hypersonic missile test. And, and we don't have a lot of knowledge on this. I'm sure we have actually, in the reality, quite a lot of intel on it. But it also highlights the fact that it's a technology that's not so obscure anymore. I mean, the Russians have been doing exactly the same damn thing with their hypersonic te- uh, missile tests. And the problem, of course, is that you have to develop in, in the usual technological competition an entire defense system that's going to to combat hypersonic missiles. The problem, of course, is that hypersonic missiles are cheaper and they can more easily be deployed by a whole bunch of folks. It's the same problem with drone. No one talks about drone deployment. I mean, how many smaller countries now have their own drone production? And this is where the real problems are going to occur. I mean, all of our little worrying about, you know, Republican worrying about Afghans coming to our shores and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's really more about, you know, the people with drones and who knows what that that issue is about because we can't even control our own airspace relative to drones. How persistent is the ghost of Henry Kissinger? He's still alive, but fingers crossed. The ghost of Henry Kissinger and Metternich, the triangulation, the destabilization of Asia, that Kissinger opened up China to divide communism, to make Russia and China to accentuate their their problems. Are we destabilizing, for example, China and Russia announced a joint venture to the moon? That's threatening to the to America. We don't want China and Russia on the same team. So it's it's another faint, though. I mean, I do think, well, you know, they share a monster border and they do have to trade. So it, it's it's not I mean, those things are logical relative to Belt and Road. The real issue, of course, is goes back to some of you know things that Adam was referring to the issue of finance, of currency, of of telecommunications, which is, you know, uh, Russia is just never going to get there by, by comparison. So we have to uh, in terms of the United States not get caught up in this sort of uh, kind of posturing about about triangulation when, in fact, you know, Russia is, with all due respect, becoming a uh, back to what it used to be, a sort of resource power, you know, one that's more dependent, more we associated with being a, you know, Gulf state oil state in in that sense. And of course, they've been using that leverage to manipulate all kinds of financial markets just because we have been paying damn attention because, you know, we've had four years of idiocy. And, and I, I think that these are the kinds of things. And it's like like what I was mentioning before, Pandora Papers is only about non-Russian things. I mean, it's really like, you know, somebody over in the Kremlin was going, well, this will screw with them. 
I mean, it, it, it positions an entire body of sort of uh, Eurasian assets that, that are not even part of Pandora Papers, and yet that corruption is still there. We know that's there. We know that the PRC itself was is occasionally, you know, uh, prosecuting corruption in the, at that level. So it's much more complicated, and we need to, to create international institutions that 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 work on better alliances all of the things that that the previous president didn't didn't think about at, at all i mean it, it just you know we're, we're we've lost four years literally it, it, it's like the japanese losing 10 years on their economy you know this is these are major issues that need to be fixed i want to be respectful of everybody's time i know professor hussein is busy uh we're bringing in Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Professor Lee, I have two questions and then I'll be quiet. Because uh, I think I don't. So when you say Putin wants to destabilize the West, is that our intent? Is when, when you sit in the Oval Office, when you go to the Situation Room and you look at the world, anybody who's getting too powerful, any region, that's too powerful is a threat to American hegemony. So we go out of our way to destabilize any area that gets too strong. Is that our foreign policy? Well, it's always been our policy. I mean, we've done this throughout all of our wars. I mean, more specifically, I mean, it, it, it's like what we were doing just after the the end of World War II, you know, it was a scramble. You know, how many how many German scientists are we going to get, and how many are the Russians going to get? I mean, there there's these are important matter. Okay, let me give you a very trivial example. But you know, all that the the kerfuffle over over Greenland was not just about about Trump being an idiot uh, and thinking he could actually buy it from the Danes, but there was also there's also a, a the PRC had actually some interest in not buying Greenland, but but influence, but getting things uh, uh, engaging in, in in the Greenland economy. So it, the, all of these things have greater subtlety to them. And similarly for for the Russians uh, sending money, which, you know, the, there's just not enough reporting done on this, but Russian money going to various parties. I mean, we already proved it relative to uh, the chiefs of staff of McConnell and uh, 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 Rand Paul getting money in 2016 or funneling money to Trump in 2016. I We need to, there's more of that. That's not an isolated uh, case. I think we need to look at more of these structural elements. I mean, after all, you know, we haven't heard a lot about uh, uh, uh some of the uh, favored Russian oligarchs. Uh, I mean, there's just been like radio silence over the last year about uh, some of these people who happen to be neighbors of the Trumps and the Kushners and blah, blah, blah. You know, th there's a lot of stuff that's still out there. I mean, I just think that it's there and we need the, you know, journalism needs to get onto this. Such a great, this has been such a great show. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. It's a privilege. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. It's a Thank privilege. You. Thank you. It is just a privilege and uh, uh, humbling. And please uh, 
go to wherever you buy books and pick up All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. It's written by Michael T. Clare. And who do you have on guerrilla history this week? Uh, let's see. Guerrilla history. Uh, we're going to actually talk, I think, very soon um, with uh, Bronco Markitic uh, from Jacobin. the Pandora Papers. He had a very interesting piece uh, we had sort of referred to, referred to it. And Anne was just sort of mentioning about uh, different ways of interpreting who's benefiting from the release of this tranche of documents. So we're going to talk with him about what's in them and also about the release of them very soon. I want to show off for you in front of Professor Marianne, the Mudgeless podcast. I've been reading about the Middle East. The Mudgeless was the Ottoman parliament. Is that correct? It means to sit? Yeah, well, it's an, it means an assembly uh, and literally a place in which people sit together. And so, you know, it has meant different things, but all of the uh, modern development of legislatures basically used the term mudgeless to talk about the assembly or the parliament. Um, and the Ottomans, of course, were among the first in the Middle East to establish a, a, a parliamentary body, which isn't well known. I mean, they actually had a pretty progressive period for a bit in the late 19th uh, century. Uh, and they called it, yes, the Mudgeless. Um, which so means to, to sit. Go, sorry? It means to sit. Yeah. It, Whereas Parliament, I want to make a broader point to I was thinking about this. Parliament. Of I'm yeah. sorry? The place of sitting, the mudgeless, yeah. Parliament comes from French to talk. Right, right. Yes. And sitting means listening. Listening, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need to do a little less parliamentarying and more mudgelessing. Yeah. <laughs> you might have something there. Excellent point. I, Excellent. I had that in my pocket to keep you coming back to this. I wrote that down. I'm like, oh, this will keep <laughs> Professor Hussein coming back. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah. uh, well, thank you. And, and people do go check out SaneUSChinaPolicy.org. Um, sane, yes, SaneUSPolicy. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings, for your time. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physics professor and she's torturing me with her razor girl Twitter post. Did I get rid of? Hang on. I need to get rid of something. You're putting your art up on Facebook. You are a, a, an amazing artist. I mean, it's oh. just incredible, incredible what you can do with paints by numbers, the way you're able to get the appropriate color with the appropriate number. You are just you know, you're you're amazing, and you put your foot where your mouth is, and by that I mean you are parks commissioner, a parks commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, and you put your feet where your mouth is. You get you go door to door, toe to toe, with voters, and uh, thank you for taking time to be on the show today. What is uh, what are you making of? But did you have time to listen to the interview? I saw you in the chat. I was listening. I just listened to part the last little bit of the interview. I, I was uh, tuning on earlier. I had to leave for a uh, 
Park District meeting, actually, board meeting. And get into it, Rosanna. Yeah. And you, you're fighting with Rosanna Arquette. Uh, I saw that she uh, had posted something very foolish. Uh, uh, and, and I'd just seen her, her uh, sister, Patricia Arquette, in this amazing movie last night. It's about 30 years old called True Romance. Was that Quentin Tarantino? Did he write that? He wrote that. And I have to say, that is some of the finest script writing I have ever seen. That movie. He didn't direct it. Some Tony Scott, I think, directed it. Don't know. Is Harvey Keitel, is there a scene, there's a famous, is it Harvey Keitel where they, they gives the speech yes. about what Italians he are? Christopher Walken. He, oh, I didn't even want to ruin it for people, but it is a, that's the thing I'm thinking of. That was probably the most perfect set of script writing I have ever seen. Is that the that's scene where fact. he talks about Italians being black? Yes. He oh my God, that's what that is. figures out how to deal with an impossible situation, and he basically mindfucks uh, Christopher Walken, and it is astounding i haven't so. seen it for since it, i remember that scene going oh my god so. that, that that movie was just great all around <laughs> I, I think i had seen it about 30 years ago but i hadn't really you know I, I i was really paying attention to it last night fantastic damn i also saw you went after mckinsey there was an ad for McKinsey either on facebook oh, or right. twitter things, why are they popping up in my twitter feed i know and you I, I mean, I don't understand. I, 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 and they, they annoy me. You have to swat them down like flies. Mayor Pete, so. Mayor Pete Buttigieg has mm -hmm. two babies. He's taking paternity leave. But he came back to d defend Build Back Better. He's our transportation secretary. And he went after Joe Manchin and said, if we don't pass the, the climate provisions in Build Back Better, it'll be too late. Were you somewhat more forgiving of Mayor Pete? I found myself saying, okay. He I'm no more forgiving of Mayor Pete for what he did in the past than I am of Colin Powell for what he did in the past. I mean, you know, I'm happy if Colin Powell in recent years sounded more like a human being. But, uh, you know. Never apologized. Never apologize. It was astounding. Uh, the Young Turks actually sent a reporter uh, about three or four years ago to check out Mayor Pete because he was thinking of running at the time. Like, why is this, you know, mayor of South Bend, Indiana? It's pretty damning. He was basically supported and installed to protect a racist police force, which right. he did. Right. There was a and scandal, right? Th there were more than one scandal. I mean, we're talking people he fired who were trying to uh, who were trying to get to the state's attorney over how egregious the behavior of the police department was and the cover up of their behavior. But, uh, you know, I uh, but, you know, he's the guy that you get when you want kind of like a identity politics, checking all the boxes type of, you know, calmly guy who can, you know, uh, sit in front of some pretty hideous policies. And he right. can talk. He's a talker. He just can't speak very well in many languages. <laughs> right. But his crime hasn't been committed yet. His real crime. He, if, if he can get Build Back better, if he can keep the climate change portion of Build Back better, 
then he has. You would have to, at the very least, keep that in because the bipartisan bill is just wretched. You know, it's not good. It's a negative. Like, as in, it would be better if it hadn't, if it doesn't pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the whole, a, a, the full $3.5 trillion bill passing would, on the whole, make the two, the buy package uh, better than not better. But it's, uh, you know, and you just keep, you, you keep asking, well, why did they do this, get, you know, this two bills for what purpose did they do these two bills if they didn't if they meant to pass any of the stuff that's in the reconciliation package you know whose idea um, was the two bills i don't know i i don't know but remember that i think there was one bill that was incredibly inadequate but it was biden's bill and biden bill was originally about 2.5 trillion dollars and that got negotiated down to the one trillion, which is point something, which is basically only about you know uh, five hundred billion in real in, in new funding because they're going to repurpose some of the COVID money among other things. And it basically got um, uh, it bargained down to what Mitch McConnell originally mm-hmm. proposed. You know, because he he proposed a counter bill when. The administration proposed their first bill, right? And uh, you know there was a after that, uh, Bernie Sanders seems to have taken issue, and he seems to have crafted something that he doesn't want to even. He's willing to give somebody else credit for because he's just that kind of mensch, you know. So I, whatever I think he's caving or doing something I don't like, I have to remember that Bernie Sanders is a better man than I'll ever be. (laughs) I mean, he's he is a mensch. So that's how I think when Bernie Sanders started making noise that, hey, look, you know, he's the he's the chair of the budget committee. Things are not going to get passed through his committee unless there is another bill. Mm -hmm. So that so that's basically what I remember of this history. So the original Biden two point whatever trillion got whittled down to what Mitch McConnell basically wanted. And uh, some of the more egregious parts, like they had included some very regressive taxation on, um, on, on gas, which would hit the working class and the you know, working poor hardest. So uh, I want to ask you I a difficult they... question. Oh, OK. Because we've been following Build Back Better. I said on the show that we're, we're going to stay on top of Build Back Better for the next couple of weeks nothing else is as important as build back better and you are less willing to compromise than i am which is weird because you're an actual official Mm -hmm. you're a government official who did not vote for biden and you are less forgiving than I am, and I do nothing other than opine. I'm of no use. But here's what I've been hearing, which uh, we did a Congress Club meeting yesterday with Ralph Nader. Were you there? Did I see your name there? No, oh. no, I, I was at Alan Minsky's meeting yesterday. Oh, OK. Uh, so 
here's what I heard Ralph say. You got to be careful not to alienate Manchin because he'll switch parties the way Jim Jeffords did. And then we lose the Senate. Uh, and then I heard Howie Klein, who is on the same page as you are, did not vote for Biden, doesn't will not allow a gun to be put to his head and pick the lesser of two evils. He said today, and I've heard them say this before, you got to be careful with Manchin. He'll go become a Republican and then we lose everything. I have asked repeatedly on this show. What do you tell Biden to do to strong arm this legislation? How do you get Manchin and Cinema on board? I asked David Cobb two weeks ago. He said, you deprive them of committee assignments. You do to them what Marjorie Taylor Greene had done to her and Steve King. Just kick them off the committees and humiliate them. And that made sense rhetorically. I went, yeah. But then the answer is you do that. Then they become Republicans. It's starting to feel the way I felt in the lead up to Obamacare, where I'm starting to feel sorry for Biden and Schumer the same way I felt sorry for Harry Reid and Barack Obama in 2010. It's really hard to get things done. And and so nobody has given me the proper answer. Bernie, for example, campaigned in West Virginia this past week. He took on Joe Manchin. He wrote a piece in mm -hmm. the local newspaper there and tried to he didn't humiliate Manchin, but he took him on. He had promised he would do that if he were president. He would go to McConnell's districts and he would go to West Virginia and embarrass him. And Manchin is now supposedly meeting with Bernie. They're going to have bilateral talks. But Manchin was angry and said, I don't want a socialist telling me how to run my business, stay out of it. The problem is we're stuck, aren't we? We're, we're Who's we? Well, Who's we? I mean, people who want Build Back Better passed. We're, but they're not going to get it passed if they give what if if they cave into Joe Manchin. Right. Because so I, what? But what do we do? A month ago, he wants to slap the Hyde Amendment back on that bill. Right. Which would outlaw the funding of abortions in Obamacare. So, but, you but, know, so what do I, we do? What is the answer here? Well, the thing is, is that I don't I I can't sympathize with the Democratic leadership or the Biden administration. They, I know they created I this. I get that. They, they created this mess. They can wallow in it. But if you are not, if you stop just obsessing solely about the next election cycle and start looking, start being willing to think a few election cycles ahead, um, I wouldn't be in their position because I wouldn't be in their position if I was in the House and I was one of the uh, self proclaimed progressives, I'd be saying, then they get nothing. Finally, you have to, sometimes when you bargain, you have to be willing to walk away. So there's a lot of stuff that Manchin really wants in the bipartisan bill. 
he wants something. Okay, you know, we want something, which is less than the bare minimum to like save this planet. I mean, to me, this is not, this is not a difficult, this is not a difficult decision or would not be a difficult decision for Denise to make. And if Manchin goes skittering off to the Republican party, then, well, what good of a party would we be if we were catering to Manchin anyway? Let him skitter off and nothing gets done and the Democratic Party can do what they did to Bernie Sanders, you know, when, when Manchin is up for re-election, if he's running again. If not, you can just work hard to get people elected who, you know, won't. Who, who. If, look, one thing I would do, and I have not heard anybody discuss this. But you're talking about, a two, is, you're talking about two to four years from now. But what we're okay, looking yeah. at. But, it, but you know, th- that's the long term. That's what I'm saying. We have to but we don't have, thinking we, long term. But we don't short-term, have we don't have long term. Well, that's right. And we won't we're not going to have anything if we pass something that man, makes Manchin happy. That we will have done nothing. We will have done a net zero with the bipartisan bill if we pass a week, if we pass a week uh, uh, reconciliation bill. We will have done. We will have done zero, and we're con- we continue to zero, do zero. But there is a way out of this if you're not if you're not interested in Manchin's career. Why aren't they talking to one of the girl senators? Somebody should be talking to Lisa Murkowski, for instance. Lisa Murkowski owes the Republican Party nothing. She did vote against. Uh, she. She did a vote against uh, the last Supreme Court justice. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. right. Manchin voted for him. Oh, gee whiz. What happens if he goes over to the Republicans? <laughs> he gets screwed anyway. No, but I mean, if you really, uh, both her as Susan Collins is just, well, how old is she? She's got to be over 70 by this point. So she's got a whole nother five years. Maybe you get these two are not facing any imminent threats to their personal positions of power. You sit down and you talk to them. And if you can get one of them to flip, then Manchin will suddenly lose all of his power. You get him to believe that maybe one of those girl senators will flip. But, you know, here I am. We're talking as if we have a leader in the White House who is, you know, a skillful politician and a real leader when we don't even know how much of his frontal lobes are still functioning. So there's somebody in the White House who is like, you know, pushing this stuff. And then there's Bernie Sanders. And who knows what Bernie Sanders is very persuasive. I mean, he could persuade a room full of Trump supporters to get on board with Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders is the kind of, and I think the other thing with Bernie Sanders, because I've heard over the years, many positive comments from Republicans is that when Bernie says he's going to do something or not do something, people believe him. The usual politician, you know, just kind of outgasses and BSs and who knows what this guy really means. But Bernie has that kind of unique feature that for somebody who's been so long in Washington, that when he says something, he's believed. 
Right. So who knows? I don't I can't read minds. I have no idea what he's talking to Manchin about. But there are ways if you were serious. Now, if you just wanted to look at look for excuses for something not passing, then all of these things that you've just been talking to me are are plausible. Okay, but but now you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. You don't know that. I know that. The patient is on the table. Mm -hmm. You can't say to the patient, this is the scenario. You can't say to the patient, you shouldn't have smoked. You shouldn't have drank. You shouldn't have eaten the fatty food. It's now it's you're flatlining. We got to save the patient. What happened in the past we'll address later. But right now, what could Biden do to get Manchin and Cinema? I have to believe that there's something he could do. I like to believe what you believe, that Biden is, is a fraud. He's weak. Schumer is a fraud. He's weak. And Pelosi is a fraud. She's weak. That if they really wanted $3.5 trillion, I notice Barack Obama is in Virginia campaigning for Terry McAuliffe. I noticed Barack gave like one or two comments about taxing the rich. If you really wanted to pass it at $3.5 trillion, you could do it, right? You would bring in, you'd have a national address, correct? Mm-hmm. You've been campaigning all along. How how long has this bill been out there? I mean, months, right? Mm-hmm. We should have been doing this in the first hundred days, but they let months go by as if there's nothing present. You know, they they impeached Trump, who was already out of office twice, to remove him from office, and then they all went on vacation break. I, I, you know, it's like, is this a, a Congress that's at all serious? about climate change or COVID or our crumbling infrastructure or, uh, you know, our crumbling healthcare system or anything. It's, uh, you know, we're heading toward fascism. It's not going to be the uh, maximalist, you know, dramatic Nazi kind, but, you know, the South American model, we're we're well on our way toward that model. Right. And, 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 And the centrists are using Trump to ignore the plight of the 99%. Oh, the, the Democratic leadership loves Trump. Of they course. would love nothing better than to run against Trump again, although he might win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like these guys are, you know, they've got a kind of a lizard brain sort of like acute sense of their own personal political survival. You know, John Stewart is coming down high from his mountain. He's doing interviews with uh, Remnick from The New Yorker, and he was on with Jake Tapper. And through his word salad, he blurts out, you know, democracy is at stake. And he's talking about civility. Uh, How about build back better, John? How about like we either pass build back better right now or nobody's going to vote 
for a Democrat. That he leaves out because he doesn't want to pay more taxes. He's part of the 1%. So if they really wanted Build Back Better, they would bring out Barack and Michelle. They would leave Martha's Vineyard. Uh, Hillary would hold a press uh, conference. Hillary could stay, Hillary could stay home. <laughs> you know, when, when she was Hillary picking up, people. when she was picking up Bill for his uh, infection in California, right. she should have had a press conference and said, my husband, everybody is entitled to the medical care that my husband got. Let's expand Medicare. Let's build back better. Politicize your husband's illness. All hands mm -hmm. on deck in the Democratic Party. That's what Biden should be doing, driving public opinion favorably for Build Back Better. But you're right. He doesn't want to pass Build Back Better. They don't want it. But Bernie does. Bernie so, does. You know, I'm going to be curious. I have no idea what he's saying to Manchin, but... As I've always said, I still haven't given up hope yet that Bernie can pull a last minute stunt and make this happen, because this is his whole political life. I mean, is he going to run for president after this? I don't know. Maybe he might. <laughs> Everything, anything's possible. Right. But I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, he's got to make a mark now where he's at the height of his power, because what's going to happen you know, uh, in, in the midterms, if the Republicans take over, Bernie has no power. Again, this is basically where he and he has been leveraging all of his influence on this bill. And, and I, I think he's trying to lead by example for the House. Like you guys can just walk away from something that Joe Manchin really wants. You know, the world doesn't collapse. Uh, well, the world's been collapsing. It doesn't collapse any further if this bill, these bills uh, don't happen. Then they have to go back to the drawing board and redo this again. And they could do it fast. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to be taking all their vacations. We've still got a raging pandemic and we've got a raging crisis in climate. But uh, it is. But anyway, the, you know, the, let me let me just get something. Okay. I just. There's a okay. I, I've used this phrase before. A prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. The American, the bully pulpit, the president could mm -hmm. declare war on a ham sandwich. You can rally, you can marshal the American mm -hmm. people to say, you know what? I trust him. He, he's coming to me from the Oval Office. I, you know. And you could get if we could get the American people to get behind the invasion of Iraq, if you could get the American people to lose interest in the war on terror for 20 years and not blink at the trillions of dollars we spent on Afghanistan, you can sit in the Oval Office and marshal the proper troops and get the American people to get behind Build Back Better. You can yes, you do can. this right now. But you can make the case, but he doesn't want it. So, you know, there's something about actions or non-actions speaking louder than words or non-words. 
<laughs> something along those lines. But, you know, um, which brings me to Colin Powell just for a minute. Yes, oh, let's have a moment you of know, noise. I, I let's have a moment of noise in honor yeah, of Colin, Colin Powell. Powell. Hang on for one second. Colin Powell has just had this amazing. Hang on for like one second. Hang on yeah. a moment of noise in honor of Colin Powell. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. He, he has had this Forrest Gump-like ability to just show up in all kinds of historical situations. I was reading a column from um, from uh, Robert Perry or Consortium News, which used to be my go-to site, and it's becoming my go-to site again. He's dead. He died uh, three years ago. But uh, he was talking in 2004 about Is this Colin the Powell, defense secretary, Robert Perry? No, no, no. This is, uh, he was the AP reporter that broke the Iran-Contra story. And then he became a Newsweek, uh, head of a Newsweek bureau. But then he got frustrated that Newsweek editors, like chief editor, would just ax a lot of his stories. So in the mid-90s, he got on the inter- Al Gore's internet and mm-hmm. uh, formed Consortium News. It's one of the oldest news, you know, like, uh, web-based news uh, organizations in existence. And it's fantastic. They were the only ones last year, the only West, the only U.S. Uh, uh, group that had somebody in the uh, at the trial of Julian Assange um, last year about his extradition trials. Well, he wrote, they reprinted a, a column of his from 2004 about Colin Powell. Colin Powell was tasked by John F. Kennedy to be part of an advisory crew to go in and see how the, um, see how the South Vietnamese army was doing. And, uh, their group advised because Ho Chi Minh said that the population was the uh, was the ocean in which gorillas can swim in. So they were already systematically destroying villages. I mean, Colin Paul, I just picked up a pulled up something he wrote about that. We burned down the thatched huts, started blaze with Bronson and Zippo lighters. Why were we torching houses and destroying crops? We had to solve the problem by making the whole sea uninhabitable, meaning the whole countryside, meaning wiping out villages and people. Colin Powell has always been this kind of sociopath. He's a sociopath with a silver tongue that makes his superiors feel great about supporting him. And oh, well, look, he's this young black dude. We feel so liberal Mm -hmm. and so forward. And that's been Colin Powell his entire life. You know, he was, uh, yeah, my lie people know about. He was an unindicted co-inspirator uh, for, over Iran-Contra because he was Cap Weinberger's, I think, second in command. I think he was his, uh, you know, he was like deputy secretary of defense. I mean, his whole career has been like speaking for enabling power to do to do what it does. And by God, I was screaming at the TV when he was making this presentation. You could go on Al Gore's Internet at that time to the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency's website. And where they were showing, they were debunking in real time Colin Powell's address to the United Nations. You know, it was just astounding. And even like liberals I knew were saying, well, you know, Colin Powell, I'm going, no, the man is a pathological liar. He's been doing this his entire life. But, you know, they kind of liked the demeanor and they wanted to believe that. I don't know what they wanted to believe. I I was good. I 
I'm ashamed, full disclosure. Oh, okay. I privately said if Colin Powell says there are weapons of mass destruction, uh, I believed him. I didn't believe Bush and Why? Why? Huh? <laughs> Why would you believe? Because I, I, mean, I wasn't really, that. This is, a, this is not rhetorical. I am just banging my head against the wall, even at the time that right after 911, like, uh, George W. has a 90% approval rating, which means most Democrats, which means most liberals, people we know. And I was just like haranguing people, like, how dare you? These guys are criminals. They let them attack us. You know, and of course, I was the bad guy. I, I remember. Midnight Mass. <laughs> I was like, you know, my parents, I agreed to go to Midnight Mass. I'm an atheist, Buddhist. And when the priest was talking about, let's pray for George W. Bush, our president, he's a good man. I just stood up and said, no, he isn't. Good for you. And I had to leave, except that everybody was going, yeah, he isn't. He is. I mean, a lot of people were agreeing with me. But it was just like, I was cool. I was losing my mind because it seemed like everyone around me was just going insane. Like their, their mental faculties were just, you know, suspended. And everybody likes war. I mean, you can... Yeah, you can use the bully. Pappy Bush's approval rating was 90% after the first Gulf War. Unbelievable. I, I remember one of the things, I, luckily nobody cared what I have to say. I said this at the dinner table in front of my family. My <laughs> relatives were all against it. And I remember, I'm not proud of this. I remember pounding the table and, and saying, countless times nobody could be that evil my father said the exact same thing that that christmas he was he's yelling at me going do you know what you're saying do you know what you're saying i know dad i usually know what i'm saying and my mother was like just sitting by going yeah the bush family i don't put it past him you know so yeah, i i, was, I uh, knew hard. i knew they were evil but i thought no, but and I remember thinking Iraq, really? Like that doesn't make any sense. But then I thought, well, it's Colin Powell, and nobody could be that evil. Nobody. Well, if you were reading Consortium News and other sites at the time, you would have known about PNAC and the need for a quote Pearl Harbor like event to, you know, get the country back into war fever. Uh, you know, so I guess I was just reading different things. Then I wasn't relying on the New York Times. The, the, the thing that the thing that needs to be repeated over and over again, I'm going to do it on this show because I repeat things over mm -hmm. and over again. You got to get it through your head. And I still can't believe that there are people who are willing to live with a certain amount of blood on their hands that 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 people think you need to break a couple of eggs to create an omelet you have to crack some skulls to you know and they they talk about 1776 and if people you know we're, i'm willing to live with a certain amount of dead people to get to valhalla they believe that and even and if the valhalla includes pat you know padding their bank accounts with weapons money that that includes it i can't believe that people think that way but they do 
Mm -hmm. And they, uh, and it's easier to think that way when everyone around you agrees with you. I mean, yes. that's the problem. Yeah. They get It's very, very hard not to get into groupthink. And I know how unpleasant it is, has been for me personally, most of my life, not to be able to like sync up with my people around me or even my friends, my family. It is just really hard, but I, for some reason I can't. I mean, I, I stay up at night. Maybe it's just the hallmarks of being a depressant because you have a more ris- realistic view of life, which is depressing. <laughs> and, do you, you have know, a, I, just, I have horrible and so I've been going to bed at seven in the morning and waking up at eight. Yeah. But at least you oh, can that, paint. I, yeah, I paint. You know, I was staying up late, uh, you know, painting the other night. It was like, yeah, because I, oh, yeah, we were uh, celebrating Nick's birthday by watching Grease 2, of all things, which was fantastic. My daughter's favorite oh, movie. Yeah. We have a great artist among our midst it, over it, um, this gal, Joey Matheson, who's got a book on, you can see her book uh, on Amazon or other book. I mean, she's, it's basically, she's an illustrator, does these exquisite pen drawings, pen and ink drawings with watercolor washes. I, you know what? And, uh, I saw, I, I went to my, my email box is... Yeah the way my apartment looked when I was 22. It's got, it's <laughs> yeah. such a mess. I'm going, what's the point? If I, I can't even begin. So I, I saw what uh, she sent me a drawing of hers and it was brilliant. I thought, oh, I can't, if I, I can't respond to this. And I just, if I have, I have not sent out emails to the listeners in months because I'm so overwhelmed now, where do yeah. I start? It's like it, it's like my email box looks like my apartment in, in, when I was 22 years old. What's the point of cleaning this shithole? Yeah, I've got a big mansion with about 20 construction projects going on around here. Right. So Why bother? Get it. Yeah. I'm just gonna, I can't make a dent. There's a part of me that just says I should just throw out, like, clear my email box and start anew. I, I've got, I'm so ashamed. It's been months. The show has an email address. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know what to do. Anyway. Oh, well. What are you reading? So, uh, right now, I just ordered Tom Hartman's book. I, he, I could get him on the show. I should have him on the show. Yes, have him on the show. Yeah. I'm I'm still plowing through uh, the uh, deficit myth because I've been rereading sections of it. And um, I just finished uh, not so long ago Queen's Gambit, which is a fantastic, I mean, I saw the series first and the book is even better. And I've got this book, it's called Hope Without Optimism. I don't know if you can see that. By Terry Eagle. Interesting. I mean, something uh, somebody suggested to me. So, um, oh, yeah. And I've got this, which is like, I need to take a vacation and read this. Hunter S. Thompson. I was just reading through his early articles when he was running for mayor of some city. The guy, guys, I forget how brilliant this guy was. So I got to plow through that. I opened know, so. for him in a cl- when I was in my clown suit. I, he came to San Francisco and I opened for Hunter Thompson uh, 
I was drinking at the time and so was everybody else. Let's let's wrap this up. Thank you so okay. much. Did you like Grease too? You know, it was a weird movie. It's like it was people were too competent in that movie for that movie. I mean, it wasn't even bad enough to be an interesting. But why does my daughter think movie? it's the best movie ever? Well, you know, maybe it hit her at the right time growing up and she was even discussing it and like, oh, you know, I was I was the Michelle Pfeiffer character or I was this character. Of course, I don't relate to any of these characters except for the, the little nerd girl who was the same kind of character character as anybody's in West Side Stories. So, you know, but it was fun. It was it was just as fun watching Nick watch it right as it was to watch it <laughs> so right it's uh and my god tab hunter holy crap anyway it was kind of a weak movie that one of the things that uh the the things in the 1980s that passed me by i guess i was in graduate school at the time <laughs> uh i i was going to tell him my michelle pfeiffer story it's uh next time uh very quick so I had, uh, when I was working on a show, we won an Emmy and, uh, and, uh, so you go up on stage and with the, everybody, and then you go backstage and they feed you and then you have to go all the way around and then you have mm -hmm. to wait to the next commercial to be seated, to sit back, mm -hmm. get your seat back. So I'm holding my award and David E. Kelly and Michelle Pfeiffer are standing next to me, waiting to be seated. And they are a breathtakingly beautiful, powerful, golden couple. Yeah. It's incontrovertible. And up close they are. The sun shines on them all the time. And I'm this in a schlubby tuxedo holding this little trophy I have. And uh, do you love me now, Daddy? Do you love me now? And I look up and D David E. Kelly says to me, I wish I was going home with one of those. And he, he's got Michelle Pfeiffer on his arm. Mm. And I looked at Michelle Pfeiffer and I said, I wish. And he went, don't say it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm don't. I think he's heard it once or twice or a thousand times, you know. He so. said, don't say it. I said, I know. I know. He knew exactly what I was. But it, he was so smart. He knew exactly that I was about to say, I wish I was going home with one of them. And that's why he had. Anyway, oh. thank you. I don't like that's a that's a uh, I don't like telling those stories on the show. Uh, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you. Thank you, David. Razor Girl on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, Professor Mike Steinel. By the way, but before I bring in Professor Mike Steinel, let me give out the phone numbers. Uh, Build Back Better is still not lost. The, the phone numbers are, and then we'll bring in Professor Mike Steinel. These have been on my screen for the Zoom room and our YouTube viewers. Call Senator Charles Schumer at 585-263-5886. Call Kirsten Cinema 520-639-7080. She doesn't answer 
her phone. You can't get through it. And she doesn't have a thing for Spanish speakers. Joe Manchin, 304-368-0567. Please be polite. Please tell them to support Big Back Better at 35 trillion dollars. Call Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi at 415-556-4862. Call Congressman Josh Gottheimer, Gotten Himmel, 973-814-4076. And tell that piece of work to support Big Back Better. Build Big Big Build Back Better at 35 trillion dollars and then go to the ralph nader radio hour website or nader.org and join congress club we had a, a a beautiful meeting sunday with ralph nader and the members of congress club and he's teaching us how to write to our congressional leaders how to call them how to put pressure on our congressional leaders he said and i agree with him that They want you to think they're not listening to you so they can live in their own little bubble. But the fact is your letters and your phone calls do make a difference. And as Ralph Nader says, all it takes is 1% of the population to want something bad enough, they will get it. Which is why the richest 1%, only 1%, but they want their money bad enough so they're getting it and keeping it. Call the numbers on the screen. Please welcome the voice, the the the, band, the orchestra leader of the David Feldman Show, Professor Mike Steinel. Hey, David. I thought you were going to do a better introduction. A better introduction. Mike Steinel. You used, used to tell me, used to tell people what I... What I did, what books I have, what You're CDs right. I have. Yeah, You're absolutely I mean, right. I, you know what? I, mean, I no one knows who I am. Well, they you they hear you. You're absolutely right. I apologize. And and I, Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator. He taught jazz over at the University of North Texas Jazz Jazz Studies for decades. He's got two books out more than two books, uh, The Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. You can listen to Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's on Origin Records. I listen to it on Spotify. You're absolutely right. And Running the Changes is another book. Yes, coming out soon, coming out soon. And then the, the novel's coming out soon, too. Oh, I, I you know what I, I just I, I apologize I assume oh I'm just kind of joking no but you're right I just, I just but, assume everybody uh, knows who everybody is and <laughs> we have new listeners uh, and I, I should do a better job at uh, introducing you you know and you I do think, all the music know, on the show you know it's a I remember way back when I first started teaching and I produced a jazz festival at this college this little college where i was at and um, we had guests that stayed with us during that time and they were kind of artists and when the guy when it was all over the my friend who was 
uh, he, he was actually a mime. He, did, he went around and did mime stuff in, in public schools. And we happened to be in a... A lot of people who listen to this show wish I were a mime. <laughs> but anyway, he said, hey, there was nowhere on the program where you wrote your name. You, di you didn't put your name on the program and you didn't tell people who you were, you know. And, and he said... That's kind of egotistical that you assume everybody knows who you are. Right. You know, so anyway, I try to do that when I, uh, you know, when I go to meet uh, relatives, I say, hi, Mike Steinell. I taught for 32 years. I try to go through the whole thing mm -hmm. with my neighbors when I, you know, get home. That's a joke anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a joke. And another bone to pick. Yes. Um, when you when I play the the funny music, don't mute yourself because I like I like to hear you're laughing. Oh, your laughing is the best thing of the show. You know when you get really going and laughing. When did you play Daddy Don't? Was it two weeks ago? No, I, or think, the... I think it was last week, wasn't it? Was oh, that it two was weeks great. ago? I can't Daddy remember. Don't. I, I yeah, said that, that, that was too. a little over the top. It was great. <laughs> it's the ultimate Rorschach test. Please, Daddy, don't. <laughs> my Daddy, please, don't. I said my wife did. I, I tried to explain that to my wife, and she's, you know, she's very straight laced. She goes, yeah. "Well, what don't you want Daddy to do?" And I said, "That's up to you. <laughs> it's totally up to it you. Depends who your daddy is." Yeah, yeah. If I, for the new listeners, my son said he's writing his autobiography. It's called Daddy Don't, and I, everybody, like. I That's just hilarious. And then Doctor Hershenfeld, the Freudian psychoanalyst, said on the show, "That's." so brilliant it's the ultimate rorschach test it can be it can be whatever you want don't want daddy to do <laughs> it's so evil yeah. it's my hey, son I'm, is so I'm, evil I'm promoting a friend's a cd that just came out um, Bras a good friend brazuka brazuka and you see in the picture it's uh, rosanna eckert is one it's a collaborative group i think they they speak seven different languages there we've got it's it's world music there, there's um <clears throat> some u.s born people there's people from colombia there's a guy from colombia a guy from puerto rico a guy from uh, uh mexico I, there it's it's really a great group and they've mm -hmm. really done a great job uh, with this thing and they have you can go to brazuka i should spell it can you can you read it i can't B A R. R A S U K A. Yeah, you got to get an S. If you do it with the Z, it comes up. That's a a brand of uh, soccer ball, I think. Let me remember uh, Jonathan Katz, Doctor Katz. Well, you, you wrote for that, didn't you? I, I was on. Oh, it. You were a voice on it, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. He used to do. But I this, love I, that. this is his bit. Uh, you know, Brazuka, B as in Brazuka. R as in Rizuka, A as in Asuka, S and Su as in Suka, U as in Uka, K as in Ka, and A as in Ah. Were you were you the voice of the doctor? No, that was Doctor Cass. I was on um, a couple of the episodes. I had one of the jokes. My kids were very young, and one of the jokes they animated was, "I'm a very caring father. I changed the kitty litter box." before my children play in it, right? So they animated that and my kids were so small and 
Uh, and so, like, when my episode was on Comedy Central, I had them watch it because I knew they had it, and they brought their friends. And they, you can literally see two little kids playing in a cat box. And my poor children, like, that's us! And their friends applauded, and they're just covered in cat droppings. And, yeah. I love that show. I, yeah, it's great. I, I, uh, can Squiggle you watch vision. It syndication. Yeah, Squiggle Vision. Yeah, that was really good. Hey, I, I've been. I'm on the. Uh, anyway, everybody should go to brazuka.com, and you can see clips of the videos that they've done. They've really done a great job, and I'm inspired because one of the things they did is they they got a high powered publicist, and we've talked about this. So the last. Three or four days, I've been on the um, prowl to try to find a publicist because I've got all, I've got a bunch of stuff coming out, David. I got the uh, Saving Charlie Parker, the novel, mm -hmm. and then Saving Charlie Parker, the suite, which is a CD, maybe a vinyl, I don't know. And then I've got Running the Changes coming out, and then I've got Saving Charlie Parker, the audio book, and uh, I just don't I don't know how to promote it. I need I yeah. need uh, professional help. Somebody You've said had to, a publicist, haven't you? No, I never. <laughs> no, I was told. That explains so much. I know. I was told by a, a publicist, uh, I I would need something to assist, to publicize. What am I? You have, well, you have the show, and you've got. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people keep writing to me. Uh, I have all these emails piling up. I get a lot of emails where they go, why are, why isn't your show more popular? To which I say, have you listened to it? <laughs> like, do you really you think? Should, uh, see, see, that's the, you need someone on your side. See, that's why I publish this. You need someone who is just there to remind you of how great you are. Instead of all your guests who, who kind of berate you like me, you know. <laughs> well, what a publicist would... Uh, make me get up at five in the morning. I mean, th when I worked the road as a full-time stand-up comic, I worked for people, clubs that had publicists. And I'm telling you, and I would have to get up at five in the morning to do radio. So if it was like Sunday, if it was like a Sunday through Saturday gig, every morning you were up at five to go do a radio show. And it never... People heard me and I go, good, thanks for warning me that David Feldman is at Lung Butters. I'll know not to go there this week. <laughs> that, that's well, pretty much, you know, the more people should... heard my voice on the radio or Good Morning Tulsa, the more they knew, don't go to Lung Butters this week. David <laughs> Feldman is there. It's better if I don't have a publicist. Well, maybe, I don't know, but you know, uh... Eventually, you're going to write your mem memoirs, aren't you? Your memoir. Uh, that's a word we should remember how to say. <laughs> <laughs> Did I screw it up? Memoir. <laughs> and what memoir. is the name of my memoir? Uh, Daddy did. Daddy. <laughs> yeah, Mike. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe you're right, but I, I really feel like I need some help, just some guidance. Yeah. Because I want to, you know, years ago, did I ever tell you about my um, Herb Alpert calling me? The Latin Jew came out. Herb Alpert, the, the Latin, Latin Jew. Didn't they call him the Latin <laughs> Jew? Uh, well, that's uh, that's kind of severe. I think you know. Oh. 
he is he is Jewish, but he's very smart and very nice man. Yes. And he called me like a night when this when building a jazz vocabulary came out, and uh, he had questions because he had he want he's very bright guy but can, always wanting to learn a little bit more. He ran he a, he, he started it was an A and M. Yes. And, he's and, brilliant. I mean, and he bought the Chaplin Studios. On maybe I don't know. He he's you know he found the the carpenters. He found I mean, not only uh, his you know you know the the Tijuana brass, but but he also made a lot of people famous and yeah, you know, brilliant guy. But anyway, we, we had this long talk about an hour about he just asked me about jazz and how to do certain things and what he th you know, and and um, he's very complimentary. The last thing he said, so how's your book doing? And I said, well, I don't know. I think it's doing okay. He said, you ought to consider putting some of your own money behind it. And that was, you know, and I never did. Meaning like you ought to, like if if I was to get a publicist, I would have to pay something. You know, you, right. you, you give up something. And from what I've read and on some of the sites of publicists, it's, it's a fair amount. But, um, you know, maybe you get a story here. Maybe, you know, the, um, my friends Brazuka, they got a great review. They got a four star review in Downbeat. And I think part of the reason was they had somebody who could, you know, it's really to get print, to get print mention for music is really difficult. Right. Um, but you also have to be good. You're like, you're great. Well, I'm just thinking know, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of my needs versus yours. <laughs> People listen to you. And go, that guy's great. I'll give him five stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've also heard that that um, part of it is you have to have so much product out. Like you have to be prolific. And I haven't been prolific. I've, You're incredibly you know, prolific. prolific. Well, yeah, but but in terms of actual things, I've had friends who have 10 albums out, you know, under their own name. But one of my friends said, yeah, you know, they don't really notice you in the music business until you've had five. You got to have five albums. Boom, 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 boom. One a year that does that do pretty well. And then the labels will start to and the labels and the and the print media will start to say, oh, something going on here, you know. And then there are people but, like Hurricane Smith. Remember Hurricane Smith? No, I don't. Or the uh, was he a one hit wonder? Yeah. I was uh, playing the curly shuffle the other night. Remember the Curly <laughs> Shuffle? <laughs> I do remember. Was that Hurricane Smith? No, it was just oh. uh, do the Curly. I can't. I don't want to sing it. But uh, I decided <laughs> if I ever get if I ever get married, the song I dance to with my new bride <laughs> will be the Curly Shuffle. <laughs> I will even take dance lessons just to annoy everybody. I, I can't think yeah. of anything. <laughs> or, is there is there anything more, more uncomfortable at a wedding than the the father the father and bride dance and the, and the groom and the mother dance? They go on, you know. Say, my son in law is a wedding photographer. He's a very fine. He's an artistic photographer, but he shoots a lot of weddings and he's great at it. And um, Jeremy Salapic, if you're in the in the uh, uh, Massachusetts area, check him out at, at his website. He is fantastic. How do you spell it? Salapic, S-A-L-A-P-E-K. He's married to my daughter, Natalie, who is an wow. immunologist. She's an immunologist? Last, she's an immunologist. 
Yes, she has a lab at um, University of Lowell, Mass. Um, she she runs a lab, and they're wow. they're studying uh, they're studying uh, these little fish that um, in some environments it's stickleback fish. In some environments, the fish develop a worm and die. In other environments, the fish develop the same worm and don't die. Hmm. They they survive, and they're trying to figure out what's going on with these fish that some of them are able to to uh, you know fight off this infection. Well, but anyway, can you ask Jeremy, her a question for me? Yeah. What about the worm? <laughs> what about How's the worm, the worm doing? Does the worm die? <laughs> Doesn't she care about yeah, the, the worms? worms. Huh? <laughs> they don't care about the worm. They only care about the stickleback. I'll ask her that. I'll ask her that. Why? Why did? Why is she uh, a speciesist <laughs> or a fish? Why? What? What does she have against worms? She, they're, they kill the fish. They kill the little fish. Well, what about the fish killing the worm? I don't. Well, David, I don't know these things. I don't these mean are, to. I don't mean to existential you. questions. I don't mean to. You got me in a corner. You, you got me in a corner. Where but can I, I say? think? But I Jeremy, think your daughter needs started. to answer. To come on this show, because <laughs> we're we're short an immunologist, by the way. Henry's coming up in a second, but uh, oh, good, good. Yeah, we're short an um, immunologist on this show, so we could use. We we talked last week and and Jeremy was we were just talking about like isn't that most haven't you experienced some really uncomfortable moments with and and usually like when nobody they'll pick a tune and they just kind of rock back and forth you know they're not really and then the, then there's the opposite thing one in ten is the couple that has practiced and the father and daughter who've practiced and they have a little routine and they spin, you know. Right. But that's one in ten. I used to play a lot of weddings and boy, that would be like, oh, geez, this is this is embarrassing, you know. And they I would love to. I would love to long. have you play at a wedding. Well, if you get married again, I'll I'll I'll, I'll come play at your wedding. And re the Reverend Barry W. Lynn will marry me. Yeah. He's got to leave okay. Dr. Joanne first, but I would love to marry. No, I would have him perform the service. <laughs> you would play in the band. We could have uh, uh, Tom Weber and Professor Marianne. Yeah, we could do a whole, you whole know, orchestra. paint me. And oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. But do I have to marry somebody? Can I just just be just a celebration a of me? Just have a wedding. And uh, what about marrying me? Can I just marry myself? I think that's <laughs> why not. I don't know. Dave Chappelle might have a problem with that. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I thought I, I finally watched it. And uh, of course, there's two big articles. Friday's paper. Uh, I wrote the names down. Zinnemann. Uh, Zinnemann had a good piece. Zinnemann and also in, in the Sunday Times. Review, Roxanne Gay had another piece. And they're right where they're right where you are in, in terms of it. And. You know what? You know what bothered me. And no one's mentioned it is the indiscriminate use of the N word and the B word. Right. I mean that that just I, I don't know why that. Um, well, I think it's 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 enough. It's almost. I tell you, here's the deal. I found that it was funny, but a bully can be funny. Right. But still a bully. Anyway, right. that's all. That's all I want to say about that. You know. Right. Yeah, I, I devoted a lot of time to him and 90, 90 minutes. At the I didn't. I looked show, at the clock scoring. and I had another 90 minutes today. To go. Well, I care about this because, you know, he makes me laugh and 
it's disappointing that somebody who makes you laugh that hard could and and then then the then the <clears throat> the blowback that I get from people, and I'm shocked by people's complete lack of critical thinking, how they're not able to parse and they fall for these little bows that he puts on his turds. Like he'll, he'll drop a big turd and say, you know, gender is a fact. And all I'm asking for is mutual empathy, which, you know, no, you just said gender is a fact. You just <clears throat> erased an entire group of people. And then you yeah. wrap that turd up with mutual empathy for. And I go, no, 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 no. I, I know that rhetorical device. You're you're still erasing transgender people, but I'm surprised how so many people don't see that, or they do see it, well, but they don't care about transgender people. It's getting a lot of blowback. I just you Google it, you know, like Vox. You know that website, Vox. Mm -hmm. They have a big thing, pretty good. You know, it's it's basically what you've talked about. I just think it was very self-serving. You know, like a whole special, basically, to try to justify a position you know and, and it's probably by design to get you know like you know there's no thing no, no such thing as bad press he probably will be richer by being controversial than by being not controversial yeah this thing that scared me the most was when he when they would pan back and the crowd going nuts there was a couple of things where he makes a comment and they start clapping. I'm going like, what are these? Are all of these people really in agreement? Or are they just, is it just kind of their, they've been warmed up just to respond that way, you know? It, I mean, it hits a chord with, here's why it hits a chord with me. And I, I said, there's, a, there's, you know, I'm jealous because he's living life on his terms. And I did stand up, you know, I still do it, but I never, I had my moments of success as a stand-up, but I never became a draw. I was always not famous, going from town to town, playing to generic comedy audiences. I was never able to bring in my own audience. And what I really resent are famous comedians who can bring in their own audience who want to be taken on a journey with them and they stay in the gutter. The respect that I always had for Dennis Miller before he lost his mind was he was, you know, a successful comic, but then he got famous on Weekend Update and people came to see him the same way Norm took his fame and he elevated the art. In other words, he said, Norm did this, Dennis did it, a lot of other successful comics use their fame, leverage their fame to work, to lift the art up, which Chappelle used to do. He could take his audience on any journey and he chooses to attack transgender people with all that this guy, and he's so powerfully funny he has so many arrows in his quiver. Why waste it on transgender people? 
Why shoot arrows at transgender people when there's so many other worthy targets? I'd give anything to have his talent more and the draw to be able to know that I'm pulling into a town and people are coming to see me and I can talk about anything I want. And you choose transgender people over and over. I mean, that's sick. That's it's a sin to waste people's time. It's a sin to waste your fame and your power going after yeah. transgender people. It's a sin yeah. to waste your God-given talent and your expertise and the, that got home. It's a there's sin. There's other targets that he's going, you know, that implied that he's going after too. That's what, that's what, uh, there's an undertow, undertone of some resentment there that I find disturbing. And after a while, I, st I quit laughing. I yeah. mean, I would go, I would register. Yeah, that's very funny. But I wasn't laughing, you know. When I saw Norm MacDonald's thing, it made me laugh. You oh, know? my God. It really made me and, laugh. And he's profane. And, you know, yes. he, he and, and he has some pretty uh, bad things to say. Some good things. He doesn't care. But it's, it's in the, it's a joke. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you can say all this stuff and I'll defend you if I get a sense that you're trying to be funny and you're failing at it. But if you're just saying something you mean and it's hateful, sorry, yeah. sorry. You know, if you're that, not being funny, you hate is hate is funny. And I'm all for punching down, by the way. I think punching down is funny or can be funny. Yeah, but it always has been Punching down is great, but you better make me laugh so I know you don't mean it. The only way I'm going to laugh <laughs> is if I know you don't mean it. I think he means what he's saying about transgender people. So it, I th absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Why don't people understand that? Why are people so ignorant and stupid and hide behind? I think people, I think he's saying what a lot of people feel. Right. There's a lot of, you know, like I, I was educated I'm an educated guy, but yes, I remember are. going down to, to Austin to visit my daughters and we had someone in our family who who was transitioning and I had questions about it. And my son-in-law, Ben, who's very smart, he had just taken a class in, um, it was gender, uh, you know, sexual. I can't remember the name of the class, but they, they got into sexual preference, gender identity, and, you know, um, the whole thing. And he straightened me out that this, it's, it's very, uh, it's not necessarily complicated, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of room in there for, for people to express themselves. And, um, you know, like, I don't think Chappelle has been educated that way. You know, he's he got too rich and too famous to listen to anybody. But he, he but sure anyway, should talk about something. else. No, no, I, I want to talk about that because. Uh, somebody explained something to I'm, you know, uh, Kim Kardashian West. I really don't know that much about her. I, I the, keeping up with it, you know, when I belonged to the gym before the pandemic, I would watch if, you know, I would watch these shows. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't care about Kim Kardashian. Uh, one, there are two things that I think Kim Kardashian has achieved. One is she's taught boys what beauty is. Uh, I've had conversation with my son and and his friends. They she shows young men. This is what women look like. Sometimes this is also what women look like. This is when they dress. This is what a woman looks like when they dress up. And this is what a woman looks like when she's just lounging around. And she, I think, has been very successful in helping boys and girls, men and women and in between, understand what beauty is. It it. It's all a, a human being has different angles and facets of beauty at different times of the day. And, and I, I think that is like, I think that saves lives. I think Kim Kardashian's posterior saves lives. You know, I think uh, Instagram kills women with eating disorders i think right kim kardashian has saved lives and the other thing i noticed like everybody when uh caitlin was transitioning i you know how can you not watch and there was laughter when it was being explained there and and she said it's funny and Caitlin said, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. It, it was like a gentle way of she was learning how to deal with Caitlyn Jenner. And there was giggling, nervous giggling and not understanding. And they said, it's funny. But yeah. It was said in a, yes, it, it's okay not to understand. I don't understand all this stuff. And it's okay to laugh nervously. And because it, it's, you know, it was a very gentle come along with us it's funny don't worry you're gonna laugh you're gonna but come with us on this it's funny you can laugh a little at this just don't be mean the other thing and i don't understand anything somebody explained to me about people who are transitioning um it's like your hair my i have i have hair transplants i don't know and you could never tell. You can really. never tell. And somebody <laughs> said to me, what do you think of your hair transplants? And I said, you know, I know that people know their hair transplants. Uh, I know that people want to look at them. I know that. Looks good, David. Well, whatever. But here's the point I'm making. I look in the mirror. I said to God, you messed up, God. You, you screwed up. I'm not supposed to be bald, God. You're not perfect. I'm going to correct your mistake and get these horrible, this horrible transplant surgery and correct your mistake. I ask you to do one thing right, God. Keep my hair. And you couldn't even do that. You couldn't even do that, God. Don't worry. I'll take care of it, God. And I went and got hair transplants. And it's like, I'm being funny, but... I look in the mirror and I see what I want to see. And I should have that right. And uh, a transgender person 
should be able to look into a mirror and see what they want to see. And you have no right to deprive anybody of what they think they, who they think, what they think they are. And it is cruel to deny people who they think, how, how they see themselves. It's more important how a transgender person sees themselves than how we see them or want them to be seen. And, and when you don't honor that, you're evil. You're evil. Yeah. You're cruel Amen and you're that. evil. Amen to that. I agree 100%. I just wish I meant what I just said. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm joking around. I did check out Payday Report. The best. Mike Elk, the best. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I mm -hmm. think you should do like, a, you could do the Payday Report from Feldman Show. And then you have somebody say, you know, like there's a lot going on. Like the IOTSI people, they, a lot of them weren't happy with the tentative right. settlement. And so they did wildcat walkouts. Friday, 2,200 Buffalo nurses struck. 350 Bay Area healthcare workers on Saturday went on strike. The San Antonio Symphony is on strike. You know, I think that if I saw just one thing about the IOTSI strike on MSNBC, but if young people knew that, hey, people actually, there was a, a donut place in Kansas City, I love this, <laughs> it's actually a chain. They, they struck because of wage theft. There's a lot of wage theft with food workers. You know, tips not being distributed. And um, always tip, uh, always tip in cash. Put your, put your meal on a credit card, tip the waiter or waitress in cash. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start doing that. I actually, their, their agreement still makes for that they could still have 14 to 16 hour shifts and they still have imagine working straight 14 to 16 hours that's that's cruel i do that the movies really go you well, yeah you could do that yeah but no i agree with you but if you're getting and i've done that if you get overtime it's fantastic 1,600 work stoppages since March 2020, according yeah. to Payday Report. 1,600 separate work stoppages. That's strikes. That's amazing. Who yeah. knew that was going on, you know? The, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics doesn't report this. Mike Elk over at Payday Report does. We had one of the, uh, the most labor-intensive years and uh, in terms of strikes and workplace unrest, but the Labor Department only measures strikes that involve, you know, I think 100 people, like the little, yeah, yeah. the Starbucks in Buffalo that's gone on strike. They don't report the little work actions because you they don't do, want to. You should do a, a, a weekly uh, strike report. You could. Yeah. Just why don't why don't you do, why don't you do it? You want me to do it? Yeah, and but we we should say we're we're because I want Mike Elk, I want people to donate to Payday Report, Mike Elk. Right. I I he is, he'll he'll send emails if you donate to him. He'll say I need 
us fair to cover this strike. I need this is a, he Mike Elk. I asked him to be on the show a couple of years ago, and then I, I thought, you know, he doesn't have time. This guy no. is traveling around, and I just don't have a big enough audience to help Mike Elk over at Payday Report. But he's doing the work, and and because he's a labor reporter, he doesn't, uh, and he has asthma. He is very protective of his health and his time. So, yeah. you know, uh, again, what, what what do I need him on the show for? We could just tell people to go to yeah, Payday just Report. Read, well, just read read it off the read it yeah. off the website. I love this. They're right at the top of their his website. It says covering labor in news deserts, and I thought, yes, you know, we're in a news. You know, like downstairs, my my wife and my mother in law, they're going to watch local news. I hate local news. Yeah. It's not going to be sensationalized. Somebody got stabbed. It's going to be fluff. They always have a nice story at the end. And it's going to be like two sentences about Biden's problems, two sentences about Manchin. No, no, no insight, you know, just and and uh, and then the a bomb goes off in in, uh, you know, like Lebanon kills right. 100 people. It has that if there's a flood. I mean, you get the local you get the local weather, you know. And then there's sports, but pretty much we're in a news de desert in terms of uh, what goes on with uh, labor. Absolutely, there used on. to be there used to be labor reporters. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, there used to well, be a labor more. beat. Maybe that's my new thing. This just in: they're striking at the Feldman factory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're remodeling the plant. We're closing. That's what Starbucks is doing in Buffalo, by the way, according to Mike Elk over at Payday Report. And they didn't pay anybody, right? Yeah. This, some workers uh, have a union effort in Buffalo. So Starbucks said, you know what? We're not firing you. We're just shutting down the store to do some remodeling. Yeah. HBO just got rid of uh, everybody that was trying to... Um, do uh, musicians there was a, there's a show on HBO I can't remember the name of it it's a period show and they have what they call sideline you know what a sideline musician is no you, it's it's just you're there's going to be music going on in the you know eventually and you're just standing like you're in an orchestra and you're just pretending to play mm -hmm. my friend Bobby Shue was on the spent weeks in Arizona where they filmed that opening scene of The Godfather and he made enough because of the union scale that he came back to L.A. and bought a house way back, you know, like in, in the late 60s. And uh, and then, of course, that house appreciated the value. But he said this house was bought by me working as a sideline. You don't hear him on this on the thing. He's just in the band. And, uh, you know, there's that opening wedding scene and there's doesn't last that long. But he says they were many days and they were very long days. And so you got probably double time, you know, but they refused to honor the uh, the union scale. HBO refused to honor the union scale uh, for the show that was being filmed in. Oh, man, where I, I, I need to I'll check that. That'll be next week on payday report we should have mr hair back on yes but you know don't don't get in the weeds about him i thought that 
you tried to get into weeds about like organizing union. They're already organized. Right. What he can bring is here's what's going on in San Antonio and here's why they're being crappy to musicians. Right. You know. So anyway, but I think I think that's why he might have been reluctant to, to come back on because. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the national like many of my guests. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't get too many return uh, customers here. I'm like uh, Richard Gere and uh, Officer and a Gentleman. I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> Remember that line? Uh, I, Lou here's Gossett, the, here's in the, the thing, rain. Here's the thing. I say this once a year. Okay. You're an amazing trumpet player. You're an amazing composer. Okay. Okay. Sort of. I am a mediocre comedy writer. But let's say... I'm a great comedy writer. There are thousands of comedy writers who can do just as good a job as I can. There are probably 5,000 people right now who could go be president of the United States. There are probably 20,000 people who could sit on the Supreme Court. In other words, nobody's special. If it weren't Bill Gates, it would have been somebody else. The yeah. stars lined up. Steve Jobs, not special. He wasn't a visionary. He was buying other people's ideas. If it, the time, you know, he maybe improved the laptop a little quicker than, you know, had it not been for Steve Jobs, it might have been five years before we had a spectacular Apple product. There are a couple of people who are visionaries. But for the most part, Tim Cook, who runs Apple, there are a million CEOs, nobody's special. That's why you need unions. Everybody can be replaced. I had several bosses who try to convince us that we were replaceable. And one of the things I noticed is so were they. So were they. We can all be replaced. That's why you have unions, because it prevents the race to the bottom. There are 5 billion people, 6 billion, 7 billion people on this planet. 2 billion of them speak English and go on the Internet and somewhere out of two billion people speaking English, you can find somebody who can do exactly what you do. And that's a race to the bottom. That's why you need unions. Yeah. What they do, especially in Hollywood, is they divide <clears throat> you by using your ego and convincing you that you're special. You're, you're a genius. You don't need a union. We're going to make you a producer. Yeah. And and it, and it creates disloyalty. You can all be replaced. And that's what has to be taught in our schools. You're not special. You're not special. I, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I, I have a, a, a close friend who went, went his son's bar mitzvah 
I never saw a speech. It was I, I would love to tell you who it is, but it would be a violation of his privacy. He gave a speech and he said to his son, you're not special. You're not special. Everybody on, you know, to, how, you're, let me, t we're all special. And then he started telling about all these special people who have made his life better. And that's what we should be teaching our kids. You're not special. I'm not going to spend $60,000 a year on your education. You're not special. We got to get this out of our head that I got to send my kid to a private school so he can get into Harvard so he can be. You're not special. And that's why we're so in so much trouble. Barack Obama thinks he's special. Yeah. Barack Obama thinks he's better than the people he was supposed to serve because he law review Harvard. He thinks there are two types of people, those who get served and those who serve. And that's why he and Michelle, the only answer is education competition, get into a top school. And if you didn't make it, then you've lost the game of life. That's how Barack sees education. And that's why this country is so screwed. Yeah. You want to stand out and be special. No, you don't. Yeah. Now, I'm special. You're special. Let's play your song. Oh, yeah. We're going to. Hey, this is kind of in the news. Uh, they, uh, a Security Exchange Commission has okayed the use of EFTs for uh, cryptocurrency now. So you, that's an EFT is like a sector fund. So you can, instead of buying Bitcoin, you can invest in this, this, this uh, fund, which oh, has ETF. a Bitcoin. What's that? It's an ETF. Yes. Exchange, exchange traded fund. Exchange traded fund. Did I say it wrong? EFT? No, I Might just wanted to correct you. ETF. <laughs> so this is features Rosanna Eckert. I don't know. We played this a while. Oh, back. right. And it was, it was first, the, the bed is the, um, the uh, the crypto well no it was the uh, non fungible token song right and then and then <clears throat> what we did was we used the same um, instrumental part but I did this thing where I explain that there's all these names for different kinds of cryptocurrencies and then she scats her ass off singing uh, about these it's really good. And she's the she's one of the driving forces in Brazuca. Go to their website, buy their music. So this is called the Crypto Asset Song. Yes. Great. Not new music, but beautiful music. From, from the archives. From the, ar say. from the archives. Crypto assets are taking the world by storm. Busting every metric, crushing every norm. There ain't nothing you can hold in your hand. They ain't like cash. People say if the market falls, there'll be nothing but digital trash. But here's the craziest thing, the craziest thing of all. When all them people come up with those things, they really must have a ball. Yeah, it must be fun to think of all them things. Like Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Ethereum. Ethereum. 
Tether. Cardano. 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 Polka dot. Polka dot. Polka dot. Chain link. Chain link. Yeah. Theta. 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 Still. That's amazing. Now, those are actual, those are names of uh, cryptocurrencies. There's a ton. There's now, a, if you feel, I, don't, I have no idea why we need cryptocurrencies. <sighs> Actually, there's some South American country now that's going to make a cryptocurrency. They're like, has well, I think it's Ecuador. That? I think it's Ecuador. Ecuador. They're going to make think. it their currency. I don't know. I guess it's. The, 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 the problem is the speculation, the speculative nature of it, you know, like Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin now? 50,000 a coin? What's wrong with wrong. the money we already don't have? <laughs> I already don't have money. Now I have to have another currency that I can't. Well, they're 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 wanting it, everything to uh, gain in value. And people have just like. <clears throat> Bitcoin is now worth more than Tesla. Bitcoin is now worth $80 billion, $800 billion. What does that mean? 
there's that much Bitcoin out there. And, you know, like I, I was, you know, the, the, we have we have a crypto mine in Denton now. There was an article about it. A crypto mine. Things, and you have a, a you, have, you have a crypto mine in Denton and a crypto fascist as <laughs> lieutenant governor. <laughs> That's for sure. But these crypto mines are large rooms, sometimes as big as a couple of football fields, full of servers, sucking the juice, suck, using tremendous amounts of electricity. And there's, they're working on the mathematical problem <clears throat> that needs to be solved every day. And when it is, then that mine gets a, one Bitcoin or a couple if they solve it, solve a couple of. I don't know how many. How can this be good? Know. How can this possibly be good? You know what? It's it's flying pretty much under everybody's radar. That's what's scary. Because I I Googled right before the show as I was listening. By the way, it was a good show. Uh, I didn't get to hear the first part. Was Breslin on tonight? Yes. I missed that. I'll hear it tomorrow. He was great. I do my walk. I love him. Even though he hates my song that I wrote for him, I'm still, I'm over that. I can deal with that. But anyway, um, I, I Googled how bad is how bad is cryptocurrency and nothing would pop up you know it's it's you know like the banks are embracing it now right uh, tesla has has invested in it um other people you know big companies are it's just it's you know like it's in a way where do you put your money you put your money where it's going to grow and nothing has grown uh, near as as fast as Bitcoin or but, 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 other but, but, currencies. But, 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 but I don't, here's what I don't understand any of this stuff. And I really try to. I just I'm not smart enough. If it's a it, it is a bubble because it has no inherent value. Correct. And if everybody all of a sudden needed cash, it, the price would collapse. If everybody started selling the cryptocurrency, it would be worth zero. If everybody who owns a bit... It could go to zero. It could go to zero, like like Hummel dolls, like Hummel collections, you know? Right. In other words, it's not backed by anything. No, absolutely not. It's backed on the full faith and credit of other people's faith and credit. Yeah, and... and as is the it's dollar, from what I understand now, it's not backed by gold or silver. It's no, it's a Federal Reserve note. It's a it's a promise to pay. It's a you know yeah right. But there's nobody promising to redeem. In other words, like a dollar, with a, a dollar fluctuates vis-a-vis -vis other currencies. But you have a rough idea of what a dollar is worth at any given time because it's stable it's very stable yeah it, it fluctuates and people are making money off of that that but a bitcoin is is you you don't hold a bitcoin you can't put a bitcoin in a jukebox no i don't know where i i think it i don't know where where do you that's a good question i'll learn a little bit more about it and we can talk about it next week but um it's you know, crazy but, yeah it it Here's the thing that I really, do know people who have bought Bitcoin a number of years ago, and I'm curious as you know, uh, I'm related to a couple of people that bought Bitcoin. I'm going like, I wonder if they bought it when it was 300 and now it's 50,000. But it's, for one it's the ultimate Twilight Zone episode. Suppose you bought 
Bitcoin? Suppose you paid. What, what right is now. Bitcoin worth right now? <laughs> what, what is Bitcoin worth right now? I think it's it's in the it's over fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. So you could have bought a hundred shares of Bitcoin five years ago at what? I don't know that. I don't know, but but far less. Okay, so it is conceivable that somebody. This is a Twilight Zone episode. What a nightmare! Has made billions. Had made had made billions on Bitcoin. Let's say somebody five years ago spent five thousand dollars, a lot of money, on Bitcoin. They would now have an account that's worth what? A couple million. At least, maybe. What more. a night! I'm being serious. When do you what? When do you sell it? When oh, do yeah, you yeah. what? Because you know it's going to crash. It is a Twilight Zone episode. You are cursed. <laughs> it's a curse. I have. Will I be happy? It, it really is the Faustian bar. Will five million make me happy? Should I wait till it's worth ten million? If I wait, I might have nothing. It's it's kind of what Monty Hall used to do. Yeah, it's, it's behind door one or two. Yeah, you know, you, you, you've got the diamond ring. You want to risk it all on what's in, in my pocket? Want to reach into my Bitcoin pocket? Bitcoin eventually will be uh, a set amount of coins out there. They will eventually, they have, they've got, they've set an amount, someone who's set an amount. You know, no one knows who, who de it's still not known who developed blockchain right. uh, technology. You know, it's just, it was there. They By the way, Monty Hall, Monty Hall. Was he great or what? Well, what an evil show. But to take, <laughs> first of all, dress up like an idiot. Yes. Well, come to the to show. Feldo the clown. Right. And now you need money, right? I'm Monty <laughs> Hall. I'm a multimillionaire. How low will you go? <laughs> <laughs> and to end up with nothing like people who need money are relying on lady luck that something might be better behind carol merrill or inside jay stewart's suppository was it jay stewart i didn't watch it that much i did i <laughs> Did you? Really? Oh, I, I thought this is this is so cruel. <laughs> These people need money. I mean, this was the premise. People, <laughs> they need money. I used to watch. My, see, I'm a little older. I used to watch Queen for a day, and that was horrible too. But Monty Hall people. was was Satan. You're a poor person here. I'm giving you five dollars. Okay, you can keep that, that five dollars, um, or watch you. Yes, you could trade it to make for for what's. In this box, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I need five dollars, but I'd hate to miss out on the the keys to a brand new car. Yeah, it's always better. Grass is and then it would be better. like a donkey, you know. It was just so sadistic, so evil. Ugh. I have watched it recently because uh, my mother in law likes it, and we've had it on in the mornings a couple of times. And I noticed that they do you give you. They don't just like it's one chance and you blew it. They'll let the people come back and let's do another game. They'll give everybody a, a couple of games, which I think is humane. So maybe they maybe they sense. We should your, do that uh, with like a medical like I'm procedures. Gonna, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to thank you for right up front. We're going to drill a cavity now. <laughs> you need your prostate looked at. 
<laughs> you get prostate, in that box may be my glove to give you a prostate exam, or it's just a bill. You want to risk it? All right. Great song. Thank um, you, Dave. I'm delirious. Yeah, you're, you're, you need to get some sleep, David. Try um, to, I know. Try to... Yeah, Howie Klein asked me if I was okay today. Yeah? Well, you seem fine. I thought you were good. I may be delirious. I'm so sleep-deprived. All right. All At right. I seem mysterious, but after a while, I'm only delirious. Into the woods reference. Okay. Is that Stephen Sondheim? Yeah. My, my daughters love that. Every little kid should read, should, should watch that. Only the first part. The, the second part's pretty scary. This is a great musical. Fantastic. Right. Hey, man, I love you. Take I care love you, yourself. too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Well, that's the show. Now, I'm just going to lay in bed and stare at the ceiling. Maybe the mouse will crawl across my chest and say hello. Uh, Mike Steinell. Thank you, Mike Steinell. I want to thank all our guests. Let me just gather my thought. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Please join us. You can, the first hour and a half, it seems, that I'm there and you can talk to me. We had a great 90-minute session Friday night from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. We talked about whatever anybody wanted to talk about. I make myself available to my listeners from 8 o'clock to 9.30 every Friday night on office hours. You have to have Zoom and you have to go to my website and click office hours and it'll take you right to the page and you're in. No passwords required. And then Lane, then Professor John. We have other people hosting half hour. One at Tom Weber. They talk about whatever they want and it's edifying. It's entertaining. It's spiritual. It's everything that's missing in our lives. Office hours. You will meet better people by coming to office hours. I promise you. Just go to my website, sign up, and you don't have to turn on your video. You don't have to turn on your microphone. You can lurk. You just need Zoom. It's a nice group of people, and there are all these different activities that are popping up. It's a great opportunity to learn and organize and get involved. If you're not a lefty, uh, you'll get your head bitten off. Heads up or heads off. You don't want to come if you're not on the right side of history. If you're not a lefty, don't show up. Uh, you'll get uh, you'll get taken care of uh, office hours. We record here every Monday and Thursday. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, hit my website and uh, there's a button to press to attend a live taping. Uh, sign up for my newsletter. I have not been returning emails. I apologize. And uh, I'm going to figure out how to solve that problem. But I have not. That's why I haven't done any pledge breaks. I haven't thanked the people from the last one. So uh, thank you for that. One other thing before. Tom Weber, are you doing Wednesday? 
Let's go to Rodrigo and then we'll go to Benji and then I'll find out if Tom is doing his show this Wednesday. Hey, Rodrigo. Rodrigo. Hi, David. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And you're calling from Mexico. Yes. And and English is not your first language. Is Isn't that it? What is your I'm first language? What is your first language? Spanish. Spanish. Okay. And what is your second language? English. What is your third language? Japanese. Seriously? Yes. Have you thought of moving to Peru and, and trying to get Fujimoro, getting a job with Fujimoro's daughter? I started to forget Japanese long before she was. Uh, She's a good person, though. She's going to re restore order to Peru if she ever. Is she in jail yet? I don't think so. What is your fourth language? French. French. I still remember you speak four French. languages. See, this is why it's so efficient to be an American, Rodrigo. There's only one. We only have to speak one, one language because we're ignorant. We're willfully and ignorant. You speak it poorly. Nobody knows because you make fun of the smart people and they leave. I make fun of smart people. The general you. I what? The general, you, the, all of you. I, I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, all of you Americans. Yes. Make fun of smart people and then they leave. And then you're the smartest one left. That's right. You. A one-eyed in a land of blind people the one-eyed snake is king. No, that's not how it goes. The one-eyed <laughs> snake is a penis. Hang on. Anyway, always surround yourself with ugly and stupid people. So you seem smarter and more handsome in comparison. What's on your mind, sir? I wanted to talk about uh, Colin Powell quickly. Colin Powell, yeah. hang on. He passed away today. Yes. And we need to honor his memory. Hang on for one second with a moment of sound. <laughs> moment of sound for Colin Powell could have stopped the war in Iraq, but he didn't. Go ahead. What do you want to say about Colin Powell? So Today, all the day, uh, the conservatives have been saying that uh, they've been saying that, oh my God, uh, Colin Powell was fully vaccinated and he still died of COVID-19. And they're not saying that he was 84 and had cancer. Yeah. So 
I hope that if you know any conservatives, anyone who's listening, you will realize that his body wasn't even called yet and conservatives were already turning him into another Herman Cain. Turning him into, yeah. He died for us. He died of COVID-19. And we can use him and his death to further our political agenda. By saying the vaccines don't work. Yes. Right. And... This is the fate of every conservative because if you don't have solidarity, sorry, if you don't have solidarity, everyone is replaceable. Even Trump is replaceable. Right. And who wants to live in a faction where everyone is When everyone can be and is replaced, they die and they turn into Colin Powell gave decades to the conservatives. Uh, I was reading. Uh, oh, they didn't really from, like him. Like Cheney and Bush didn't like him. Just what I was reading a quote from. Uh, he, on Henry's tweets that from Kwame Ture who was saying that basically that Colin Powell sold his soul back in the 90s right and by the way I can't play Henry's interview my playback is broken oh no yeah, I have a. I, this is it's. I pr I'm going to play it earlier on Thursday. My playback. You need to be more careful with your phone, this. Yes. Don't install anything. Yeah. All right. Let us. Let, let's keep moving here because it's getting late. Wrap up your your thought, please. Uh, I have an. A thing about trans people, I don't want to start ranting, but I was wondering if you can talk to Mike Steinel about one of his songs, the one where uh, he changed my gender. The, the, my way. Yes. Yeah, something about changing my uh, gender. I, uh, you, you, you seem intent on canceling people. I like the way you think. Let's cancel Mike Steinel. You're right. I think we can get him to maybe change the song. Maybe. I know uh, you know what? You I don't. Know. I, I know the lyric you're referring to, and I'll play it. Uh, if, I, if I'll play it either ne next. It's not as offensive as you think it is. Let me mansplain to you why you should not be offended by that joke that erased your identity. Is that okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna explain to you. This is why you should not be offended. That's I'm making fun of. Uh, okay. Uh, thank I have many trans friends, and 
they usually have to spend at least two years convincing one or more psychologists that they have the wrong body before they're even allowed to take hormone blockers. Right. And then they have to, so depending on where you live, they have to spend another year or two years living as the other gender before doctors will even start talking about letting them have surgeries. So surgeries. It's a very lengthy process and conservatives like to talk about the people who they transition, but it's like 4% and almost all the people who they transition admit that they do it because there was too much society pressure that right. made them say, okay, I can kill myself or I can go back in the closet and they go back in the closet. Right. Right. Sounds like it's a, a struggle that needs to be respected and honored. And the only thing we should worry about is their happiness and security, their financial security and their physical safety. That's the only thing, and be their friend. And uh, everything else is evil. Any other conversation about them is evil. So let's move on, okay? Okay. And hopefully uh, we'll, I'll see you on Thursday. Always love talking hopefully. to you. Hopefully you, uh, you are my favorite English is a second language caller. I just want you to know that of all the people who view English as their second language, why can't it be your first? Why do you have to... Do you have other people who... Who speak, who are multilingual? Oh, Falco. Falco. Remember what my daughter said? He said, I speak Belgium, Dutch, French, German. And my daughter goes, hey, you're just speaking European. That's not, <laughs> that's not. All right, let's, let's go to Benji and then Tom. And then uh, I'm going to try to sleep. Hello, Florida Hello. man. Thank you, Rodrigo. Well, 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 if it isn't the man who puts STD in the word stud. <laughs> All he needs is you. <laughs> great how you doing tonight brother yeah great great florida man we're talking to a florida man benji hey man i know the the holidays are coming up bro and i, I know you're single man if if you're going to be alone during the holidays man let me know because uh because i need to borrow some chairs <laughs> no god bless you being single man I, I sure don't miss being single in florida man uh, yeah i used to qualify my potential dates down here by asking them one question yeah I would ask him to spell gonorrhea and anyone who spelled it right the first time you obviously don't go out with. Right. <laughs> right. That's a good, yeah. No, but, uh, speaking on that, man, I just got back from my, uh, follow-up prostate exam. Oh, really? 
talk about uncomfortable man uh, yeah the doctor tells me to re- remove my pants you know i was mm-hmm. expecting that you know so, so i did that and then then i asked i said uh, where should i put my pants he said uh, just throw them over there next to mine like, <laughs> oh man hey uh me and my wife uh we went out to dinner the other night and yeah. uh, we're done eating and the, the waiter he comes over and he asked me he goes uh you want a box for the leftovers I was like, no, nah, man, I'm too full, man. How about we just arm wrestle for him? <laughs> no. Nah. And now then I'm leaving the restaurant. I, I give this homeless guy $5 and uh, the lady behind me, she goes, you know, he's just going to go buy drugs with that $5. And I was like, so I ran up. I confronted the guy and I asked him, I said, where can I find drugs for $5? <laughs> hey, man, hey, before I go, man, I know it's late, uh, my wife told me the other day, she said, uh, she said, I spend too much time on the David Feldman show. So I said, you sound like my ex-wife. <laughs> she said, but I'm your first wife. I said, exactly. <laughs> I appreciate the loyalty. <laughs> hey, yeah, man, have a good night. Brother. Thank I'll you. see you all uh, Thursday night, man. Let okay. Tom Weber. Are you performing Wednesday? Are you doing your show or Tuesday? Wait. Tuesday, Tuesday, as we have our uh, music. Now, that's from 7 to 7.30 Central Time, so I guess that'd be 8 to 8.30. But um, also, I don't, I'd like to remind people that uh, spirituality and activism is on every Wednesday, and we are in, we're going into Chapter 2 of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, the book by Paulo Freire, and would like to invite people to uh, join us. So, you know, all the information is on Discord. I actually did post the uh, link earlier in chat. Okay. But I'd love to have other people. If you don't mind, though. Can you I, do me a favor and go, you know, by the way, we have a YouTube channel. And there's also a chat in there. Oh, put what, it there? Yeah, put it there. Put the link yeah, in sure. there. Yeah. We'll do that. Well, since I have your ear, um, well, give it back. Do, I need at my age, I need both of them. <laughs> I just say personally, as a parent of a transgender person, I want to thank you for everything that you were saying in your exchange with uh, uh, Mike. Uh, I actually was touched very, very deeply because uh, my child only came out uh, a few months ago. Hmm. And is the midst of transition uh, physically. And I just saw Christine, formerly Christopher, uh, this past weekend at my niece's wedding for the first time in two years. So it was uh, really quite a wonderful thing. You so, know, George uh, W. Bush, to his credit, uh, he held a reunion at the Oval Office of his graduating Yale class. And one of his classmates had transitioned. And George W. Bush walked up to her and said, it's finally, it's nice to finally meet the real you. And I thought, I thought, you know, for a war criminal, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, 
what uh, was done in his administration was despicable, but uh, and I do think that he he should be held accountable. But I do not put him on the same level uh, morally as you know Rumsfeld and Cheney and whatnot. Uh, I think uh, there's a different level of I don't know how you parse all of that exactly, but there's yeah. there's a different feel that I have with him. And it's not yeah. just kind of a likable kind of guy. It's not that. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Thank you. We have to book you on the show. So thank you. You haven't been on for a while. Uh, yeah. So if people want to attend spirituality and activism, that's a Zoom meeting. That's Wednesday night. And if you're, well, if you're listening to us as a podcast, how do we, uh, how would we get people to, uh, how do we do that? How do we get people to what? If you're listening to this as a podcast, how do people sign oh up? Should they just uh, friend you on Facebook? Yes, certainly you can do that. Absolutely. Right. Just look for, actually, what, um, hmm, there's more than one Tom Weber. That's a problem. No, there uh, isn't. Oh, you know what? But for music, though, you can go to Tom and Barb Weber with two Bs, and you can, and then you might be able to figure out how to get me through our music thing and find the right Tom Weber there because I repost things. Maybe right. that'll work. I don't know. Okay. Do you have a website? Uh, for art. Well, maybe, well, all right, we're going to have a, we're going to have a meeting. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I, uh, let me, uh, I will put something in chat again here and I will do what you said in terms of YouTube. Thank you, Tom Weber. Thank uh, uh, you. Thank you for everything. Thank right. you Thanks. for everything. Thank you. Well, that's our show. We, uh, I should, we have a YouTube channel and I'm looking at it right now and there's a, there's chat going on. I see Andy Brown in there. And uh, so thank you for watching us on YouTube. If you're watching us on YouTube, give us a nice review, even if you don't mean it, uh, and share us. But YouTube is a great way to share this show. It's very, uh, it's just easy to send a clip from the show. And there are timestamps on YouTube. So... If you want to share a section of the show, we timestamp the entire show and you can share that. And if you're used to YouTube, you know that it, you can share any moment on YouTube by typing in the, the, uh, the time on it. So please subscribe to this YouTube channel. Please uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you download nonsense like this. iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, Google Play, wherever there is a podcast platform, we're on it. Stitcher and uh, wherever you're listening, give us a good review and share us. Please share this show. We're not for everybody. We have a very limited appeal. It is, it's a, a crazy show. We do, how many hours is this? Six hours and 40 minutes with my squeaky chair. There's a, you know, so share us with whomever you think might uh, enjoy this. All right. I covered everything. Thank you so much. 
My playback is not working. My apologies once again to Henry Huckamaki. I can't play his uh, interview. So I will fix that for next week's show. So I apologize to those of you who are hoping to see Henry Huckamaki. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way